The following presentation of the Midland City Council will begin in a moment. The Midland City Council is the city's legislative body that sets policies, approves budgets, determines tax rates, and adopts ordinances and resolutions to govern the city. It is made up of five elected officials that represent the wards in which they reside, and councilmen are elected to two-year terms. The mayor is elected from among the council members by vote of the city council. City council meetings are held at 7 p.m. two Mondays per month in council chambers at City Hall. This presentation is provided by the MCTV Network, a service of the City of Midland. Replays of this meeting can be found on MGTV Channel 188 on Charter Spectrum, through Channel 99 on at and or on demand at www.cityofmidlandmi.gov. Select meetings are available on MCTV Network's Government Affairs Podcast Channel. Good evening and welcome to our January 9th, 2023 meeting of City Council. This is our first meeting of this year, and we ask that you join us, uh, all, all of you join us for the Pledge of Allegiance, please. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. All right, Lacey, will you please call roll? Honorable Mayor Donker? Here. Councilman Solar? Here. Councilman Brown Wilhelm? Here. Councilman Arnoski? Here. Councilman Waspinski? Here. All right, thank you very much. Does anyone in council have a conflict of interest with anything that's on this evening's agenda? No, no, ma'am, here. Okay, seeing none, then we'll move along to the consent agenda. All resolutions marked with an asterisk are considered to be routine and they'll be enacted by one motion. There'll be no separate consideration of these items unless a council member or citizen so requests during the discussion stage of the motion to adopt the consent agenda as indicated. If there is even a single request, the item will be removed from the consent agenda and considered in its listed sequence in regular fashion. Is there anyone from council that would like an item removed from the consent agenda? Okay, anyone from the city or audience want an item removed from the consent agenda? All right, then, can we have a motion to approve the consent agenda? So moved. Second. Second. Okay. All in favor, please say aye. 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 Opposed? All right, that passes 5-0. Okay, we have a pretty full agenda this evening. We have multiple public hearings, so let me just talk about how the public hearing process works. Um, we will have a staff presentation to begin with. They'll come up. They'll present. They'll talk, be talking to us. Once they're done with their presentation, we will ask them any questions that they might that we might have. Once that is done, we will open up the public hearing. That is the time then that the petitioner will be the first one to come up and speak, uh, you know, about the item on the agenda. Once once they are done presenting, then we all of you have an opportunity to speak. You need to come up, talk, sit, stand on the blue mat, and you address us. This is not a back and forth. This is a, just a, you asking us or telling us what your thoughts are. Once that is done, and, and let me just say, this is not you talking to the audience. It is talking to us and addressing council. Once you're done, then you can have a seat, and we'll move on to the next person um, on that. And once everyone has had an opportunity to speak, we'll let the petitioner come back up. And if there was any questions that were created out of that conversation, um, out of those, out of your presentations, we'll uh, give them an opportunity to speak towards those or rebut anything that might have been said that might not be factually correct. So with that, we will open with item number three that has to do with um, the police department, and that's Chief Ford. 
So you're modeling how this works for everybody, okay? No pressure. Sounds good. <laughs> I am here this evening requesting that we amend the Midland Police Department budget um, as a result of a grant that we received through the Department of Justice. The grant is for the purchase of a fully immersive de-escalation training simulator um, in the award amount of $161,253. This is a fully budget neutral um, grant, so it's not a matching grant or anything on those lines. So we are requesting a budget amendment to our 2022-2023 budget to recognize the receipt of this grant. So if you take a look, it's actually multiple screens. It allows us to train up to um, 10 officers at a time with multiple weapons, um, everything from a fully de-escalated de scene all the way up onto um, an, an active shooter scenario. This will help us in our areas of mental health, de-escalation, negotiations. So, um, and we would be the only organization within this uh, at all near vicinity that has one of these. So we would be able to offer this training up to neighboring departments also. Any questions? Does anyone from council Is have any questions for Chief? Was that a, a participant or how, in, in the back, if you go back one slide? Yep. Um, just to get a perspective on the size. I would love to go back one slide if you could tell me how to do that on here. <laughs> use, use the arrows. Use the arrows, okay. Okay. So yes, that's an officer participating. You can see by the um, radio on their, their collar there. So um, we have, it can go anywhere from three screens up to five screens. So obviously the more screens, the more immersive it becomes. Um, that will depend on once we start looking at the bid process, uh, certainly cost will contribute to that decision. But it allows us to um, use multiple officers and also allows us to upload our own blueprints into that system so we can use some of our own buildings and whatnot, which is pretty impressive. So you'll, you'll put this in somewhere where your current location? Yes, we're looking at some um, minor building modifications to account for the height of the screens. We have a lot of room in the basement, but we also have hanging um, beams that are kind of causing us a little bit of heartache, so we're working on that process. But yes, it'll go right into the LEC, and that will allow us to um, offer that up to our neighboring agencies and, and departments that wouldn't regularly have access to such training. Is the software something that will be updated, or is it you buy it and it's done? So the way that we initially looked at it, um, if we do it in like a leasing-type program, then they always update it for us during the life of that contract. If it works out to where we would have to purchase it, then um, after the length of that contract, we would be um, responsible for all upgrades. So what are we looking at here, a, a leasing, or what's that number represent? We um, This one was a flat-out purchase. Um, we're still trying to figure out if we can make the leasing program work, because that would certainly be our preferred course. But we have to do the official bid process and, and see what that comes back looking like. So for other communities that like to leverage the training, would we charge a fee for the training or that was not my intention. That's certainly something that we could entertain, mm -hmm. you know, to help maintain for costs and, and stuff moving forward. Um, but certainly we always like to be a good neighbor and, and offer up resources that we have that not everyone is fortunate enough to have. Okay. 
So this was a $161,000 grant? Yes. That's for purchase, or is that for lease? That's cost period, depending on how, and then we kind of get to decide how we want to do that. But that cost is for purchase, is how we we put it in for the grant. Okay, so I was just wondering, so if we lease it and it's less money, is the grant less money? Yes. Okay. So the grant would then be the month of the lease? Yes. Okay. And if we get a lease, how long is that lease for? Was it five years? Five years. So, okay, very good. Then would, they might give us another grant to extend that, or does well, that? <laughs> that would be really lucky. Department of Justice often um, gives you a one-time grant to start a project. They very rarely give you grants to maintain a project. So same, similar to what we discussed with body cameras. So. so if we purchase it and own it, the most expense we would have would be to keep it upgraded after, after that, that five years. Okay. So... So we will, um, we initially attempted, or we um, tested a couple of different versions. We will open it up for the bid process, see what it looks like once they return what their specs are. Mm -hmm. And then from there, we'll make a decision at which point we'll come back to council and move forward with that. Does the county sheriff have something like this? No. Okay. So they might help us out. I did future. not get that impression. No? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Any other questions for Chief Ford? Okay, thank you very much. Thank right, you. this is public hearing. I'll open the public hearing. Are there any comments from the public, either in for or against this particular item? Okay, seeing none, then I'll close the public hearing. Lacey B, please read the resolution. This resolution amends the Midland Police Department General Fund fiscal year 2022-23 budget to recognize additional revenue of $161,253 from the U.S. DOJ COPS Office Law Enforcement Agency de-escalation grant and corresponding additional expenditures of $161,253 to provide for the purchase of a de-escalation scenario simulator. Okay, can we have a motion to accept the resolution? So moved. Second. Okay, first and second. Any discussion on this? No. All right. Yep. Seeing none, sounds pretty exciting, though. All right, then all in favor, please say aye. 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 Opposed? Okay. That passes 5-0. That takes us now down to item number four, and this has to do with conditional use permit um, for Bayless Street. Mr. Kane, it's up to you. Good evening. Good evening. Conditional use permit number 81 is a request for Miller and Karagala Inc. for a property located at 510 Bayless Street. Um, the applicant is looking to construct 50 units of multiple family housing at this site. This project is somewhat unique and so I'll just provide some basic context that I'm sure the applicant will fill in more details uh, when they come up. But this project is unique in that it will draw residents through referral from the Midland County Drug Court. This is a court that primarily supports individuals who are in the court system due to active addiction issues. Safe, affordable housing has been identified by the drug court as a necessary um, element supporting individuals' recovery from drug addiction. The applicant has previously constructed a comparable development also known as Andy's Place in Jackson, Michigan. The subject property is located on Bayless Street between Haley and uh, Patrick. This is on the east side of Bayless Street backing up to the Midland Town Center. Can zoom in a little bit closer. You'll see there was a radio station located on the site, and there is a small office building located uh, on the western end of the site, closer to Bayless Street. That building would be removed as part of this project. Subject property is located in the Office Service Zoning District. It's the only property in the immediate vicinity that has that zoning designation. 
within the office service zoning district, multiple family dwellings are considered a conditional land use, which is what brings this petition forward to you tonight. Properties in the immediate vicinity are primarily residential B, multiple family residential, with the exception of properties to the south and east, east which are located in the regional commercial district, and the property immediately to the west, which is located in the community zoning district. In terms of future land use, those future land uses primarily reflect the current zoning of the area properties. So again, the subject property and one parcel adjacent to it are located in an office service future land use. We have institution and civic to the immediate west, high density residential primarily to the north and west, and commercial to the south and east. On the screen, you'll see an overview of the applicant's proposed site plan. You'll note that on the southwest corner of the site, the applicant's two-story proposed multiple family building uh, is generally situated in that corner of the site with a parking lot located to the north. The northern, uh, approximately third of the site is primarily open space consisting of a garden, a recreational area, and some proposed ground-mounted solar panels. Stormwater detention for the property is currently shown in the southeast corner of the site. On the screen, you'll see some preliminary images, uh, elevations of the proposed building. Uh, you'll see it is a two-story format. Um, the principal entrance of that building is facing north towards the parking lot. Those, uh, that western elevation would be the elevation that would be visible from Bayless Street. Conditional land uses are subject to non-discretionary standards, um, similar to a site plan review process. I just provided a brief summary of some of the items that were identified during the staff review of this project um, that have been included as contingencies of approval. Those include adequate provision for fire protection. We'll need to see additional hydrants shown on the plan, no more than 400 foot from any portion of the building. And additional emergency vehicle access may be needed to the detached music building, which is a small accessory building located south of the primary uh, multiple family dwelling. A total of 99 parking spaces are required for the proposed development. The applicant is requesting a parking deferment, and with that, there would generally be an agreement between the city and the developer to provide for additional parking on site should we find, and over the course of the next 12 months following um, certificate of occupancy, that there's a need for that deferred parking. And then finally, exterior lighting requires a photometric plan, and we do not currently have that, and so we would be looking for a photometric plan to support the project. In terms of discretionary standards associated with conditional land uses, those are summarized on the screen. I mentioned we have some contingency items tonight. Uh, approval would be granted to the proposed multiple family housing development in compliance with uh, the accompanying site plan. Any additional uses would be reviewed and approved in accordance with standards in the zoning ordinance. We do need a photometric plan, a parking deferment agreement, a final stormwater management plan and permit, and a soil erosion and sedimentation control permit due to the size of the site. We have received three public comments uh, in support of the request. We subsequently, after the Planning Commission public hearing, received a petition uh, with several signatures in opposition to the project. That petition was included in your packet tonight. So with that, we're at the last step in the process following the Planning Commission's public hearing on November 16th, which is City Council consideration this evening. I'd welcome any questions. Okay, any questions for Mr. Kane? Okay. I just have one about this parking deferment. So you said 99 parking spots? Yes. And they really only want to put in 59 and defer 40 of those. Correct. I, I just wanted to make sure it wasn't yep. an additional 40 on top of that. No, and under those terms, you basically have to show that you have room on the site for the deferred parking in the event that the city finds it's needed. In this case, they have denoted that deferred parking on the site plan. 
Um, so there would be an opportunity to provide that later should we find that there's a need. Okay. So, so how's that determination made? I'm sorry. Go ahead. It's basically made through a review of the site over the course of the 12 months following the certificate of occupancy. The agreement's going to detail our monitoring of that parking area and the leverage that we would have as the city of Midland to require that parking to ultimately be constructed. So is there follow-up on that after that year? Because, I mean, if it's a slow full fill, then you're There would not be. This is not an unlimited opportunity for the city of Midland to come back 10 years later and require the parking to be constructed. It would be a, a once-and-done opportunity under that deferment agreement. Okay. So but wouldn't it be more appropriate for it to be once the you have it fully occupied to kind of then judge? Because this is not really open to the public, if you will. It's going to be, you know, it, as I understand it, exclusively referrals through the drug court. I, we could certainly look at implementing that as part of the parking deferment agreement. Because um, I think otherwise starting, it's not as meaningful, if the, you will. The starting date of that, uh, if the applicant was amenable to that. Okay. So my question is, why was a deferment for the 40 requested? I'm not sure I understand the question. Right. Why do they not want to build all 99? They essentially versus? don't believe that they need that level of parking for the... the uh, for residents that they expect to be living there and their experience with their other projects. Even if it's full? Correct. Yeah, okay. this is what they anticipate their actual parking needs would be based on full occupancy. Okay. So just to clarify that, so that would be, for instance, an example where they go to the occupants of these structures don't typically have the same numbers of cars that an, another apartment building might have. Mm -hmm. And so based on experience um, and or expected experiences, um, they would make that request. Okay. All right. How many acres is this, Parson? Oh, that's a great question. Sorry about that. One second. 6.13 acres. Okay. And then you mentioned the retention or detention pond. There's a ditch that runs along that par property. Do you know, is it connected to that detention pond? Or I couldn't tell from the picture. We wouldn't know that detail at this time until the stormwater permit submitted. Okay. Okay. Any other questions for Mr. Kane? Okay, I believe the petitioner is here this evening. They are. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. Anyway, so this is really a public hearing. I'll open the public hearing, but we'll start with our petitioner. <coughs> Good evening, Council. My name is Jennifer Acosta. Um, I have been... Jen, I'm sorry. I need you to state your name and your address, please. Jennifer Acosta, 2041 East Mockingbird Lane, Midland. Um, I've been working uh, with Mr. Milner and Mr. Karen Jella on this project, first as their uh, commercial real estate agent and then additionally as an assistance uh, on this project. So I wanted to begin this evening discussing uh, why this site in particular fit this recovery population. So first and foremost, in, in looking at a site for 51 units, they really wanted to have you know at least three acres so that they could have all of the site amenities, parking, and everything that they needed along with the, the solar for their residents and for the stabilization of the project. In addition... Um, because we're looking at an affordable housing project, having it not located um, in any areas of town where there's uh, environmental issues or floodplain issues is of high importance. 
Um, and, you know, the most important thing was walkability, right? The residents needed walkability to entry-level jobs. Um, a lot of them do not have vehicles and do not have cars or have lost their, their license. So having something where they could access entry-level workforce employment and be able to walk to work and be able to walk to a grocery store was, was really important. Um, and also not being located near a high school, not being located near certain things was also on, on the list. Um, and with that, um, and working with the Midland Business Alliance, we were able to find this potential site and find a very patient seller that was, was willing to work with us in the time that it takes to get through the process of putting together a multifamily housing development like this. So it is a six-acre site, zoned office. Um, we're looking at, at 50 units. The development is keeping the trees that are on site. The first thing we did after, after getting a contract on the land was we did an environmental for the wetland survey within the area because we thought the site could be a little wet in areas, and they hired a professional firm to go ahead and do an analysis of that and make sure that it would fit appropriately before we moved forward. Um, and then for lighting and, and fuller voltaic, um, all of that, they're really looking at how they can minimize their impact and be a part of the neighborhood and create really stable recovery housing. Um, and that's the really big piece of it too, is you know we're looking at a permanent, long-term recovery supportive housing model. Um, so it has affordability with the Michigan State Housing Development Authority and the team, they're piloting a new approach to recovery, um, which is something that, you know, in my development experience, I was, was really proud to, to have coming to our community in Midland and was really stunned by, by the work that they've done. Um, I'd like to introduce Mitch Milner and, and Joe Karanjala, the additional petitioners, to come and say um, a few more words as well. Um, Mitch and Joe together have put together thousands of supportive uh, housing units in multiple states. They specialize in um, providing housing and supportive housing for the most vulnerable populations in the United States. So between veterans and homelessness units, they've really created models where they look at the long-term support and operations and services for individuals to give them the most stable housing so that they can truly be on the road to recovery. Um, thank you. Thank you very much. All right, and gentlemen, I do need you to state your name and addresses if you would, please. Mitchell Milner, 1803 St. John's Highland Park, Illinois. Uh, <clears throat> Joseph Carangella, um, 1803 St. John's Highland Park, Illinois. Good, thank you. Thank you. Um, Let me start. Okay, you can start. So, Sir, you need to stand on the blue mat so we can, <laughs> that way oh, know, people watching can hear and we can get this on tape. Great. Okay. So, Milner and Karen Jell has been around for about 25 years. Uh, we have focused primarily on creating permanent supportive housing for special needs populations, including. Uh, uh, folks that are physically and mentally disabled, general homeless, uh, homeless veterans, and individuals suffering from substance use disorder. We've created more than 3,000 units nationally, uh, totaling about $300 million in investment. We have uh, 
started focusing uh, on recovery housing, which Andy's Place Midland is modeled after our project in Jackson, Michigan. We've, to focus a little bit on what we've done in Michigan, I'd like to highlight a couple other projects. We've done a project called Piquette Square in Detroit, which is 150 units for homeless veterans, and also Silver Star Apartments, which is 75 units of housing for homeless veterans in Battle Creek, Michigan. And most recently, we've created uh, Andy's Place in Jackson, which is 50 units for uh, people in recovery with referrals from the Jackson County um, uh, court system, recovery court system. So having said that, I'm going to let Mitch talk a little bit about our project here in Midland. Thank you. Good evening. This has been a very interesting process that we've been through. Um, I was called by a retired drug court judge, uh, 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 Judge Harvey Hoffman. Uh, he's from uh, Grand Ledge, uh, Michigan. Harvey called to say, could we build housing for people coming through drug court? We put all this time and energy into our participants, and then we send them home to environments that they can't escape uh, use of drugs, their friends, their family. And we worked for a number of years to, to make that model come together. Uh, we looked at sites around Michigan, and uh, we were directed to Jackson uh, because of the very strong advo advocacy that happened in Jackson. And I'd like to just introduce right now uh, Mike Hurst. Uh, Mike, can you please come up? I'll have you speak. So Mike's dream was the same dream as Judge Hoffman, and that was creating long-term housing to help people in their recovery for addiction. Uh, Andy's Place is named after Mike's son, and I'd like Mike to just give some overview of the, the whole concept and what we're doing there today. Thank you, Mitch. Michael Hurst, hey, 5000 Willis Road, Grass Lake, Michigan. Great, thanks. <laughs> so anyway, uh, you know, uh, Andy would have been uh, 36 yesterday. Uh, he died at the ripe old age of 24. You know, a great kid who uh, worked really hard to, to get back on the right track. He was a young man who played football, basketball track, did all the things every high school kid. And we lived in a little rural community, too. And, uh, you know, for him to get involved in something like that was, was beyond my imagination that would have possibly happened. But then as I, as I started, after his uh, death, I talked to a lot of young kids, and uh, it was in every school I could go to and talk to. So I started to educate the general public on the stigma that really is holding back uh, somebody from recovering from this, this horrible, deadly epidemic that's overtaking our country and took 107,000 lives last year. Not only took 107,000 lives, but also who knows how many families that destroyed, how much of a butterfly effect did that have on generation after generation after generation? Uh, you know, often we we rely on government, the police department, the school systems, everybody to do our work for us as citizens. So I wanted to come up with a plan where the, the citizens were involved in this project. You know, what can we do as a group to help solve this horrible epidemic that's, that's overtaking uh, our country right now? And so, you know, I thought, geez, Andy tried everything possible to get better. He hated being somebody suffering from substance abuse, uh, you know, it, it was beyond his imagination that he could ever got there. And as I talked to more and more people after his death, I found out the same thing happened. They go to rehab. 
we'd spend all kinds of money, ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars on the front end, uh, getting somebody into rehab on a thirty, sixty, ninety day program. Did really good in it, all of them. They get out of that program, they'd fail immediately. So I said, you know, there's got to be something else going on here. So I talked to a lot of doctors, and I talked to one one doctor in particular, Dr. Corey Waller, who was a, a, a an addiction specialist in Michigan. And, uh, you know, he says, Mike, it's a two-year process. He said, you know, we spend all this money on these short-term programs, and then we just throw the money away. And I always like to look at that as, hey, you have cancer, and you need 12 chemotherapy treatments, but we're only going to pay for three. You know, your cancer's going to come back. What happens with the brain is uh, the stable level of dopamine, organic chemical in your system that, that keeps you motivated, gives you self-respect, self-worth, uh, makes you want to do the right thing, uh, that, that level drops. And the only way to raise that level up is to put that drug back in your system. Um, this process is a natural process that was made for something totally different. Uh, this is like at the time of birth, you get, uh, you, know, you get nourishment, your dopamine level goes up, so you constantly nourish yourself. Same with water, same with food, same with doing anything fantastic in life. And the, and the most that ever is raised is, is maybe 200 on a best day. You won the lottery, your daughter had triplets, everybody's healthy. Well, you know, you take these drugs and you can raise that up, especially opiates and methamphetamine, to 900 to 1,000. Well, as soon as you start doing that, you drop your static level down. And uh, that's what's happening to everybody. So I said, well, what do we do, Doc? He says, well, we've got to figure a way to keep somebody stable for at least two years, year and a half to two years, the minimum. So we thought about it, and uh, you know, I said, well, you know, we could do that, but who can afford that? Maybe one percent of the country can afford that. What about the rest of us? And uh, how can we figure a way? And so I talked to a lot of people, and gotten. I was working with Governor Snyder at the time. Uh, he hooked me up with these gentlemen, and we sat down and we hammered out a plan. It was a bipartisan plan that we left politics out of the whole subject. Uh, that's probably why it went so well. And what we're trying to do here is. Okay, we're going to do all that front-end stuff. We're going to get you. You had to go to jail. Yes, we understand. Now we're going to send you to rehab. Now you're out of rehab. If we send you back to the same environment you just came from, it's like sending the alcoholic back to his apartment that's above the bar after you got him all cleaned up. It just doesn't work. Um, as soon as you're around, anything that happens around substance abuse, uh, the use of it, you can watch on TV. That triggers that, that effect. It triggers you to, to want to use and want to use immediately. No different than anybody here. Uh, smells that turkey dinner cooking and wants to eat it right now. And and so, you know, how can we do this? Well, if we, we mix the affordable housing in with it, we, we give them a place to stay where they're not, uh, they just got out of, they've been in jail, they've been out of rehab, they don't have any money, but we, we expect them to go back out on the street and, and survive when they, ha they have no money. They, you know, they got to worry about how, how they're going to get a job, how they're going to pay their rent, how they're going to feed their kids. You know, that, that's a ticket to relapse instantly. So, you know, I always say, I'm going to take away all the barriers. You know, I'm going to take all those roadblocks away. I'm going to take all these excuses away while we relapse. I want to give somebody a safe environment. We want, to give, we want to give those parents a chance to be parents again. We want to give those kids a chance to be kids again. And somewhere along the line, as citizens, we have to step up to the plate. If we want to stop any of this, uh, you know, we got to have a little piece of the game in here. We, we have to step forward, take a different look at how we may have treated people in the past because of their substance abuse, how they looked, you know, what color their skin was. We got to look at all that and say, hey, wait a minute, you know, we were wrong. 
we need to help these people. We need to do something for them. And what we found at Andy's place is they've developed their own community, which I was shooting for all along. They started to develop their own community where they really trust each other. And we have 50 people over there. When somebody falls down and relapses, which is going to happen, uh, you know, you got 49 other people there suffering the same fate there to help you pick you up. And, uh, you know, if we don't, we have Henry Ford Allegiance over there. They offer them uh, entry-level jobs for anybody that stays there. Uh, you know, we want to get them into a job where they got a career and they can look down the road. How can you be the person you always wanted to be? How can you be the parent you always wanted to be? If you have no path, you, you, can't, you don't even have a vision how to get there. Geez, I'd like to be all those things you talked about, Mike, but I, I, there's no way I could get there. So we have to motivate people. We have to give them that opportunity, and we've seen some miracles happen there. You know, in my own company that I own uh, four or five years ago before Andy's was built, uh, you know, one of my employees was overdosed on the side of the road, uh, took full-blown addict. You know, he was the number one man on that project. The uh, drug court advocate for our project there in Jackson, she was in prison. Delivery of heroin causing death. Uh, she's now the drug court advocate for our drug court, one of the finest people I've ever met in the drug court system. This guy that owns a security company, another one full-blown addict. Now he owns a security company that actually runs that place. Um, I could go on and on and talk about all these stories. Uh, but, you know, it's funny, when you give somebody a real chance, you give somebody a real opportunity to, to take a look at their past and then give them a little idea of what the future may look like for them if they wanted to do the work. And uh, i like them to do their work on their own. And I'll be a little bit briefer here, but I want to tell you about Thanksgiving party we had there. you got 50 people over there, 50 people that probably most people gave up on. Well, they threw their own. They came to me and said, Mike, we'd like to have a Thanksgiving party here. And I said, fantastic. We'll have Thanksgiving dinner. I could cater that anytime I wanted to. I said, how about I, you guys go to the grocery store. You buy the ingredients. You cook the food. Bring your grandma, your mother's favorite recipes. They had the best Thanksgiving they ever had in their life. They brought their dogs. They brought their family. They started to develop a community. We had a New Year's Eve party. Did the same thing there. 100 people showed up. You know, Only 20 made it till midnight. Had the best time they said they ever had on New Year's. Uh, you know, these things are all possible. And if we don't get a handle on this right now, if we don't step up to the plate right now and, and, and try to break this generational substance abuse that's going on and on and on and, and give these kids in the future a chance, and I can guarantee somebody in this room right here is facing that same fate that we've all looked at. It touches one in every six people. It touches almost every family that I talk to. And uh, there's something we can do about it. There's something we can do about it as a community. We can do something about it as, as, a, as a great citizen of this great country. And when I talked about bipartisan support, I have to tell you, you know, I'm probably the only picture that's got a picture of me and, and uh, former President Trump's son and me and Gretchen Whitmer on the same project. That's how important that project was to everybody that took a deep look at it. And uh, that's something I think your community can do. Uh, you know, that was the number one project in the entire country last year in the special needs category. The number one project in the whole nation. You guys have a great opportunity here to do the same exact formula here. And it, it's a pilot program. You can make it as good as you want, or you can make it fail by not getting community support and just relying on all the service. I always look at government as this thing. You guys are the greatest asset I have. And, and I think everybody needs to look at that. 
What assets do I have around me? I got government, I got the police, I got the school system. How can I put all these assets together and make something great? And, and that's what really what we've tried to do there. We've had all three of those groups on, on the site, walking around, talking to people, totally amazed. And uh, you know, as far as trouble on a, a site like that, I was over there today. It's, it's quieter than it is in this room most of the time over there. there are people getting better, people recovering, and uh, you know, you want to you want to stop the drug trade in this country. Well, first off, you got to destroy their market. And who's their market? People addicted to drugs. We can get a handle on the uh, addiction part of this whole thing, and then we can work really hard on the rest of the aspects. And you know, any other questions anybody has for me this evening, I'm more than happy to answer any of those questions. And uh, I have as long as the rest of my life to keep fighting this. Thank you. All right, great. Thank you very much. Joe and I are the owners, the projected owners for Andy's place. Uh, Andy's Angels, um, uh, Mike Hurst's organization, is a was a major sponsor for Andy's Place in Jackson, and they are continuing at this point to be a major sponsor. Uh, we have been conducting interviews with uh, not-for-profits in uh, Midland, and we will sign up someone as uh, either a participant uh, in the ownership structure or uh, we'll have some type of sponsorship, but we will have someone involved in the long term with this project that's, that's local. Uh, all of our projects, we've done all of our projects that way. We don't work without a not-for-profit. We know what we're good at. We're real good at building. We're real good at managing. We're real good at uh, policy-making. We're real good at follow-up. We're real good at, at supervising. But we need people that, that know how to get things done in Midland, and we'll, we will identify someone to work with us in the long term and do that with us. Uh, this is a project that can be very creative. Uh, we want our tenants in our building to be a part of the community. We want to bring, we have uh, seven or eight uh, offices that uh, we'll make uh, available for free to organizations that might want to work with us uh, uh, on projects that can involve our tenants and also involve people in the community that want to, in, want to work with our tenants for projects for the gardening, for uh, we have a music uh, performance uh, stage that we, we, we that is part of the project. We want there's a lot of things that we want to see happen for the tenants, and that involves uh, community involvement. So that's what we're looking forward to. As far as our ownership position, our you know our main pro project is, and our main our main role is to make sure that we have long-term stability in the building financially. Uh, we do that by creating a project that has, runs without debt. All the, all the revenues in the project go pretty much go back into the building. Uh, we have the, uh, we'll, we'll have solar energy, which will offset the salt, which will offset the electrical cost. We pay, as owners, we pay for all the utilities. We do not saddle the, the tenants with any need to, to get their own uh, account with the gas company or the electric company. We pay for all those, and, uh, and we save money for the whole budget, which provides us with money to spend on programming for the tenants. The big issue for us is the that we create a safe, sober environment, and we do that by having sobriety as a condition of, of uh, tenancy. Uh, all the tenants are going to be referred through the drug court. Uh, the drug court has literally control of everyone that comes through drug court. 
um, the uh, participant in drug court, drug court sees uh, the drug court judge twice every, uh, once every two weeks to report. There's a whole team underneath the, the judge for um, organizing the social services they get and uh, having a, a needs assessment and a, a goal plan that everyone has to adhere to. When there's a relapse, there's uh, random drug testing by the drug court, so relapses are picked up. Uh, people have to report to the judge, and the judge makes a decision, and uh, uh, Judge Beal will, uh, can explain a little more about that control. One of the questions that was asked was, well, what happens when people graduate from drug court? People are under probation for a period of time after the drug court, and we're discussing, we've already started discussions with, uh, with Judge Bill about how that can be extended so that we can have probationary re, uh, supervision. Uh, the easy thing about proba probationary supervision is if someone relapses, we just have to make a call. We call the probation officer, we call the, the drug court, and they intervene. They have people that are working with their participants all the time, and many times it's a relapse that is addressed and that person maintains their housing and they go on to success at Andy's place. Uh, people do graduate from drug court. They do um, pass the period of time that they're under supervision. Their lease requires sobriety as a condition of, of tenancy. Uh, we have 24-hour security in the building. We, we're manned for uh, 16 to 18 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, so we have eyes on everyone walking in and out of the building. There's one entry. It's made up so that all the other entries are alarmed with cameras so that um, if someone's going to come in or try and sneak in without going by the front desk, it's very, they can't do it. So people come in, they're, they're viewed. Um, if they have guests, the guests are signed in also. The guests all have to leave by 10 o'clock at night. And um, uh, if someone does relapse and they're outside of probation, they, um, uh, we also have the right, and they, this is part of the lease, that people, uh, if there's a, a suspicion that people are using, uh, they have to submit to uh, a drug test. We have an oral drug test that's admissible in court and that is lab tested. And uh, so we get a report that says uh, this person uh, perhaps failed a drug test. So that person is called down to meet with the, with the property manager and and we'll have another we'll have another staff person to for someone to, to work with, and there's only one question, and the only question is, are you willing to get back involved with a social service provider, with a substance use disorder provider, and deal with your relapse and report to us and and keep taking random drug tests so to ensure that you're on the straight and narrow, or do we have to? evict you. And um, uh, so we've been open for two years at Andy's place. And on the one hand, we've only had one eviction that we've had to go through. And we've had many people that we flagged as, as uh, many, we, people, many people were still under the supervision of the drug court. And, and drug court either um, worked with them or determined that that this person was not committed to uh, to sobriety, and that and they 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 removed them from Andy's place. Um, on the other hand, people who were past their period of time, um, once we met with them, they 
some people made the decision just to move out. They said, we don't like the rules. We're finished, we're finished with probation. And we don't want to go back into court for, uh, for a hearing, for, um, uh, for uh, tenancy and eviction. And so we have had relapses, and we've had relapses go both ways, uh, positive and negative. But um, uh, we need to get someone who's relapsed either in a program or out of the building because it affects everyone else in the building. And what's been very interesting is the community has come together the community, people in the community come to us and say, Joe needs help. Sit Joe down, and we think Joe is, is, is failing. And uh, it's a wonderful thing because people really do care about each other in the building. Um, it's really heartening to hear all the stories. Uh, we, have a, uh, we have a couple that um, um, had a young son. They were not married. They were not living together. Uh, they had separate apartments. Um, they got married. They have another child. Um, they're over income at this point, um, and um, they want a bigger place, and uh, they'll be our, our first big success story for moving out. Um, we have a lot of other people that have done very well. And, um, and we're here really tonight because of Judge Michael Beale, who's sitting here. Uh, Judge Beale called me to say he knows about Andy's place. He wants Andy's place for his court. And we came and spoke with uh, Judge Beal. And um, it's been a wonderful relationship. Judge Beal is one of the most committed judges that we've, we've worked with, and we've worked with a number so far. And, um, and frankly, Mid I wasn't prepared for the Midland community. You have a, just a, a tremendous community here. The involvement of people is just, just tremendous. And I, I think the the opportunity to have this type of project here is going to be a huge benefit for the people of Midland in, in all directions. Um, you know, the stigma of, of people who have been addicted and have been in jail and think nothing of themselves to, to be uplifted in this way and to, to, to find purpose in life and to, to find new friends and that, that a community supports them, it's, it's just a wonderful thing. Um, I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Okay. I thought it was the next section. Well, you know what? Um, I think that you know you guys gave us quite a bit. So I think rather than postpone any questions we might have for you, we're going to ask our questions that we have for you right now. Okay. While you're while you're here. So are there? I mean, I have a list. Yep. I do too. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a few too. Yep. So I'll ask the first question. So you talked about having a local owner um, as part of this because you and your partner live in Illinois. So what happens, I mean, how do you go about finding this local owner and what happens if you don't have anybody to step up and want to be part of the part owner of the Midland? We're meeting. Uh, uh, we've 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 had serious conversations with two organizations in town, mm -hmm. and um, uh, 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 one organization felt that it wasn't in their it, it wasn't their mission. It didn't match up with their mission. Uh, the other organization felt that uh, they were they were dealing with more short term issues of of addiction, and uh, and that uh, we had different. 
a different strategy for working because of short term versus long term. There were different strategies, and they didn't. They they felt that they'll be involved with us uh, moving forward um, as a as a support organization, but uh, they didn't they didn't see themselves as as an owner. Um, the so we are we we have um, we had conversations today with a group. We have a conversation tomorrow morning with another group. Um, uh, Andy's Angels um, uh, is our. At this point, Andy's Angels is committed to the project, and um, you need to explain uh, Andy's Angels. Um, Mike, that's Mike Hurst's organization. So Mike Hurst's organization, uh, they do a lot of fundraising, and, uh, and they do a lot of advocacy for um, uh, this issue statewide. Uh, for uh, we have one project, Andy's uh, Andy's Place Apartments, which is 50 units. Uh, they provided funding for that, and, and their an ongoing support. All the stories Mike uh, Hurst talked about the Christmas parties, the Halloween, the holiday parties. Uh, there's a lot of other. Uh, all tenants are. One of the ways that we start a tenant off, we assume that, and we're always right. Unfortunately, the tenants really have nothing. They're coming to us. People who've, people who are in addiction, who are in recovery. Who are in the, the criminal justice system? They've really hit rock bottom. Uh, they have no friends. Family usually doesn't want anything to do with them. They have. They're wearing their old clothes because they don't have any money for new clothes. They don't. They don't. They have nothing. They're coming to us pretty much homeless, and they need everything. So we have fully furnished apartments, and then we provide them with all the things they need to make it, as in, in an apartment: bed sheets, towels. Um, pots and pans, plates, knives and forks, and we start them off with a, a package, and it's a way for that new tenant to feel welcome in the building. Uh, we take them shopping. Okay, who's we? Uh, it's uh, so the participating not-for-profit in Jackson is the Community Action Agency of Jackson. So. Um, they so a, they're the owner for Jackson. They're they're part. That's right. Okay. They're they're the not for profit okay. partner in Jackson. So would you start development before having an owner here? Um, we'll uh, no. Um, we'll either at this point, uh, Andy's Angels is uh, committed to being a backup not for profit that would work with us. Um, the goal is to identify and work with someone local and have them as an owner. Okay. So you're going to have to continue to work and find that. Absolutely. Local. Yeah, because I think that's very important. Yeah, yeah, and so do we. Okay. Steve, did you have a question? Well, go ahead, Steve. Well, I've got, I've got, uh, in the write-up that we received, it says that the tenants are going to be exclusively uh, referred to by our local drug court. Um, how do we ensure that that happens? And this may or may not be your, your question, but maybe give the example in Jackson. Do they, or do they take uh, folks from other courts outside of Jackson? The way the way that uh, we enforce and that we can provide you with. Um, so what, this is Mishta funded, and uh, we'll have. Um, I'm not sure if it goes into the regulatory. It goes into the tenant selection plan that they're approving, which is part of the regulatory agreement for the building. And this is, uh, you know, this is all 
part of the doc legal documents for the mortgage and closing and the tax credits for the building, and it specifies that all referrals are through the drug court. And in, um, in Jackson, uh, Jackson is much smaller than uh, Jackson and Jackson County. There's 30,000 people in the city of Jackson. We're in Blackman Township. There's 160,000 in the entire county of Jackson. And the, and the fear was that, the fear, we weren't sure whether we would, uh, we weren't, we were, we were concerned about uh, getting enough uh, people through the Jackson court. So a number of other courts signed on to working with us. The reality is that 80 to 90 percent of the tenants come from the Jackson court. In this case, we'll have a, a tenant selection plan that specifies that, it'll specify that all referrals for every tenant will come through the Midland Court, all referrals. And so no partnerships with other communities to bring others from drug courts in Saginaw or Bay City? Or, okay. No. Okay, so let me just say, Jackson County is 160. That's twice the size of Midland County. Really? Yes. I, th I, thought, I thought you have 80,000. Um, no, that is our total county. I think it's a bigger geographic area, perhaps, but um, Midland City is. I'm sorry. Like I'm that. sorry. I should have known that, but um, um, okay. I guess so. My question is: I have my question. Is this recovery housing? This is recovery housing. Okay. So, is this? So, what are the stats on that? Because this real. Um, so, recovery housing has certain rules that comes along with recovery housing. I mean, I call that sober housing. So, if you're not sober, then you can be evicted. I, I, our model has never been done. So, so there's there's sober housing. There's there's all these different there's all these different programs out there. The the difference here is that we have we have a lease. We have a long term lease with tenants. Tenants um, sign a lease. They can stay as long as they stay in recovery. They can stay in the building. Um, so can you define sobri recovery for us then? Excuse me. Can you define recovery? My definition would be someone that's um, has been addicted, um, has uh, dealt with the addiction, and is no longer um, using uh, drugs, and that uh, that relapse is expected, and that um, if uh, they have a decision that they're no longer in recovery, you're no longer in recovery if they have relapsed and are. Uh, refusing to take any steps to get back into recovery. Okay. Okay. okay, so this is really permanent supportive housing for low-income people, you know, who are in recovery. It's not really recovery housing or sober housing as we, some of our other local organizations would define that's sober right. housing. That's so right. if we have a halfway house, that's sober housing. If you're not, if you're not doing the things you need to do, you're leaving. Right. Who manages this house? We're going to, uh, so our the third party uh, property manager for Andy's Place is KMG Prestige. Uh, they're statewide. They have projects up in, uh, they have projects in this area of, the, of uh, Michigan. They're primarily in Michigan. Um, uh, they're very, they're a large, uh, large company. Uh, we've had, um, they've been totally committed to working with us and, um, um, 
this is a hard population to work with. So are they, are they a group that works with recovering people, or are they just a, man, a management they are, company? They are, a, they are a, a for-profit property management company, okay. and they work with permanent supportive housing. They have other permanent supportive housing projects, and they were willing to spend the time that they needed to spend to get up to speed and understand what our needs were and what our property management needs were. Uh, for, we have a full-time property manager, and you won't find a 50-unit building anywhere that has a full-time property manager because usually you don't need a full-time property manager. But our property manager needs, she gets involved with, you know, these tenants have complicated backgrounds and just taking an application for, for just getting people into the building is a problem. Um, there's a different level of, of engagement with the tenants uh, by property management, even though they're, you know, they're not that they they are a for-profit uh, entity. So we've been very happy with with uh, how that has worked, um, and um, um, and we'll have the goal is to we have uh, seven as I said we have seven or eight uh, offices that we provide for free uh, to bring other uh, neighborhood organizations into the building uh, so that. Uh, they can work with our tenants, and um, and we're looking forward to to identifying people that groups that want to be in the building that uh, want to work with our tenants. So, for the opportunities for those that want to help the tenants, is that for ongoing support, maybe counseling, maybe training to get them back in the workforce? What it, what are that's you, right. That's exactly what. Thank you. Thank you for. Um, I didn't explain that very well. Um, uh, for instance, in Jackson, um, uh, in this case, Michigan Works is, you know, a block away from our building. Uh, in Jackson, Michigan Works comes in uh, often. Uh, when they come in and they do uh, literacy training and resume writing and things of that sort. Uh, uh, we have uh, peer counseling uh, groups that come in. Uh, there are, um, uh, similar to uh, Narcotics Anonymous or AA meetings, uh, uh, recovery support meetings. There's uh, five to six recovery support meetings held in the building every day, every week at, at Andy's place. We expect that to happen here also. How well attended are those meetings? Very well attended. Um, uh, I guess the average is about 12 that they get, maybe 15 sometimes. Um, uh, we have, I didn't talk about the resident manager. Uh, we'll have we have this. This really is a 50-unit building for tenants, and we'll have one three-bedroom apartment. And we literally find a. Uh, hopefully, it's a couple, but it doesn't have to be a couple. Uh, so we we we're, we look for someone who uh, has been in recovery for a stable recovery uh, with a history of uh, being uh, engaged with the local recovery community. Um, uh, we've already met a number of people that we'd love to have in the building. Uh, in Andy's place, we have uh, well, we took our referrals in Andy's place for the couple that we have at Andy's place from the drug court. Um, we'll look to the drug court again here. We'll look to Judge Beal to help us identify the appropriate uh, people that we might have as uh, resident manager. The resident manager's primary goal is to be a mentor for people in the building, and also to be there for emergencies, nighttime emergencies, uh, to be there for uh, just for someone to talk to, someone who's, you know, 
been there and done that and now is successful. Uh, the couple that we have at, uh, at Andy's place, um, Ed Forbes was, he was addicted to, he was a methamphetamine addict for over 20 years. Uh, he'd been in and out of court um, a number of times and then it all took. And he was, uh, he's been a, a star in the recovery community in Jackson and uh, was highly recommended to us uh, by, uh, uh, by, the, by, the, by Judge Jordan, uh, the drug court judge in Jackson. Uh, the, the woman who he's gonna be married to in, in the spring, uh, um, um, uh, Katrina, uh, she, 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 she also came through, through drug court. Katrina has been working uh, with a peer counseling group. She's just got uh, credentialed. Um, um, and they've been wonderful. They, they're someone that the tenants feel very comfortable talking to. Uh, they're, they're sometimes, they're the first ones they go to when they're having trouble. So that's who, that's who we will have someone like that uh, in our building. Okay, so that, that person is not a person who's trained in substance abuse disorder. They're a person who is a substance or has been a substance abuser. Right, and the, um, uh, we will uh, provide, we will, now this is something that we're working on uh, we, we want, we, uh, Katrina is credentialed at this point for, for uh, working as a peer counsel, counselor for substance abuse. Uh, that's something that uh, we'll, up front we'll be doing that with whoever uh, uh, we bring on for, uh, uh, for the resident manager. So they get, they get the apartment for free. That's the trade-off. They get the apartment for free for being there. Yeah. Um, how long did it take Jackson, Jackson, uh, Apartments are 50 units as well? Yes. How long did it take to fill those up? It took us, well, it was pretty unusual. It was during the lockdown. So um, so uh, court cases were cut in half. Everything was done on Zoom. Um, um, it took us, it really took us nine months to fill up. And frankly, um, we probably wouldn't want to do it any faster. It's really nice to... Um, to plan, I mean, we have to plan on losing money. You know, it's, as a developer, you want to fill up a building as soon as possible because that's your cash flow. We, 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 we plan, we put the money aside so that we don't have to fill it up fast, so that we can bring people in slowly, get people settled, uh, have, get, spend all the time we need to spend, not rush, have it, not to have like 20 people come in at once. Uh, the most people we had come into Andy's place uh, was when we opened the doors. Uh, we had people waiting, so we had 13 uh, move-ins in the first month, and then we were moving in oh three or four a month after that, and uh, that seemed that really seemed to be a comfortable way to do it. Uh, the two bedrooms we really wanted to have two bedrooms. We wanted to have families. Uh, most of the most. Majority of the people coming through drug court, at least in Jackson, were singles. Uh, there was a question about the parking. It's very interesting. We have very nice one-bedroom apartments that are roomy, sufficient, really nice apartment for a couple. There isn't a single couple. Everyone's living alone, and uh, which is one of the reasons why we don't need as much parking. We only have, uh, last count, we had 26 to 28 cars that were owned by tenants in the parking lot. And that was one, that's the reason why we didn't want to devote a lot of the land to asphalt that w would never get used. 
Um, well, quick, let me just inter- ask you another question related to your cash flow. <clears throat> the, how are the tenants paying for this if, if they're, you know, down These on their are, luck? They haven't probably sure. not employed. Uh, sure. Are they required to be employed? How is how is how are you getting your rent? These are so Mishta. Mishta is a public housing authority, and Mishta has control of uh, project-based vouchers. So we have a uh, 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 project-based voucher, which you're probably familiar with. They're the rent subsidies. They're like public housing subsidies. They're tied to the building. They're not tied to the tenant. So a tenant comes in, they qualify for income, and again, unfortunately, everyone is everyone qualifies. Um, and uh, coming through drug court, they're all, they all qualify because they're, if they're working, it's fairly low income. Um, so uh, they're low income. They have, they have subsidies, and as they, as they earn, as they earn uh, income, they pay 30% of their income. Is it a requirement that they ultimately be employed in some fashion? No. Um, um, no. This is, I think the way you have to think about this is this is like any other apartment building. And that um, uh, we have rules, but um, what 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 we we can we can make we can have a requirement that people maintain sobriety, that people agree to uh, 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 drug testing. Um, uh, we encourage people the way we encourage people. We can't. It's difficult. We don't want to be in a position as a as a as a housing landlord of mandating mandating services so people have we give them a choice you can take services and if you relapse and you can and we'll hold your we'll hold your apartment open while you go to a, a de- off offsite detox if you need to um, but uh, at the end of the day if you're unwilling to then we'll evict you and that's 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 what you'll lose you'll lose everything that that you've gained from living here um, but if it's, so sub- if it's subsidized housing, they're only going to subsidize it if you don't have money. If you have, if you have a job and you're working, they're going to lose their subsidy. They're not going to continue to pay that subsidy. They pay thirty percent of their income. That's correct. Up to the up, to, they pay thirty percent of their. Okay, income. so if the individual is making, more, I mean, I own, a, I run an organization that does Mishta vouchers all the time. You are income qualified. You have to be making a, a little amount of money. But if you have a job and you're working, you're not going to be eligible for that voucher. That's right. You pay, you, then you start paying. Right. So, but, and it would be more than 30%. It would, go, it would go up to a point where if they had a certain amount of income, they would no longer qualify to be able to live there if that's the only qualification. Um, there, uh, under the uh, uh, low-income housing tax credit rules, um, that's not a, that's not, uh, it doesn't work that way. Um, what you have to do is, this is uh, because it's such a low income. One hundred percent of our units are low income. Many times, some of the units, some of the units are low income, and some of the units are market. So um, you're required to convert a mark the next the next vacancy. If it's a market rate, that becomes a low income unit. But where one hundred percent of the units are are subsidized, that person just that there's nothing to do. That person just stays there, and um, and uh, we would hope that. What happens in a lot of these cases is that there are a lot of rules. People want gas. People want to play loud music. People want to do a lot of things. And when they have enough income to leave, and I, in the projects, in the old projects that I worked on, and I would talk to people who were leaving, 
it's like, yeah, this is a great place, but I want to get out of here because, you know. So are you worried that they want to get out of there and then they won't have that support that's keeping them sober? You know, um, uh, on the one hand, someone that's, that's re that feels they're ready to leave, I would hope that they would be making the right decision and that also frees up a unit for the next person that needs it. Um, uh, the meetings and support going on in the building, everyone is, they'll always, they're always welcome to come back. They can always participate, they can participate in all the programs uh, coming back. And um, yeah, it's, it's a hard, it, you know, on the one hand, we want to put the message out, get yourselves together and make room for the next guy, you know, uh, you know, that's the way, that's the way it should be. All right, I guess I have some more, like, just operational questions. And I don't mean to be, you know, I'm just really trying to understand this. This is, real, this is new to us, and I think we're all really trying to get our arms around it um, because I think we all have dreams and hopes. Um, but I think you also need a lot of good management and strong programs, you know, to make those things happen, too. So, um, so can you tell me... Um, what are your protocols like for after hours? Do you, you said you have someone there 24 hours a day. Are those trained people? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, we have a we have a uh, security firm that uh, they're they're also trained in use of Narcan in case of emergencies. So you have that on site. You have a protocol absolutely. for that. Absolutely. Are they trained in CPR? Um, uh, I know there are some people. That's a good question. I'll find out what I can get you an answer for that. So have you ever had an overdose at Andy's place? We've had we had one overdose at Andy's place, and uh, a gentleman that um, uh, had just—I'm pretty sure he had just come. He just graduated. It was a—it's a shame. He had just graduated from drug court. He'd just come out of a program, and you know, here he was. He was free, and um, uh, and the system we had in place worked. Uh, he was with other people. He overdosed, and um, everyone knew what to do. They got the resident manager. The resident manager is trained in, in Narcan, and um, she administered the Narcan. Uh, he recovered. Uh, the the uh, uh, emergency response team from the fire department showed up You know, a couple minutes later. He was taken to the emergency room. Uh, he recovered. Uh, he came back to the building, got into a program. Um, I don't think, I think in the long term he left, that this, he just couldn't maintain, the, the court, the court moved, moved and had him, asked him to leave, had him, had him removed. Well, has anyone from Andy's place ever not survived an overdose? We had a, um, um, we had only one incident and, um, you know, of course these are all complicated stories. Um, uh, the, the short story is that uh, there was one overdose, a woman that, um, uh, what was told to me is that uh, they're pretty sure that, that the woman committed suicide, that um, uh, she, was, she was in a car accident, under, she, was, she was drunk and in a car accident, um, she was remanded to another court, she was facing time in jail, uh, she was incapacitated, she couldn't walk, she was extremely depressed. Um, we we did everything we could to. We were unfortunately she was caught between two courts, and this would never have happened. And I hate to say this would never have happened with with um, Judge Beal's court. Um, and uh, um, 
we wanted she needed to be frankly the only safe place for her was jail at the point that she was at um, and um, it happened too quickly and we couldn't well we just couldn't get the she was remanded to a different court and we couldn't get we couldn't get jurisdiction through you know to get her back into drug court and back into jail and and it happened very quickly and she died but we have not had other than that there's been nothing so is there a way to know if someone has um, returned to using drugs besides drug testing you can ask them I mean they know that we're I mean that's the first thing it's like some people just they know they know it's going to come back dirty so it's like oh no um and every and the word is look if you're having a problem um, we'll give you a lot more leeway in like working with you. So, and you, you want to stay here, don't you? Come to us with your problem. So that's that's and that's part of the resident manager's pitch to everyone. You know, this is this is you're going to want to. You know, the, the what I learned through this is that it's like Mike Hurst has you know tells me this all the time. He says it's like you say to people, ah, "What's it feel like to want to use drugs again?" And, and Mike says to me. If you're in the desert and you haven't had water for two days, you have one urge to drink water, and that's how these people feel. They feel they have to, this is what they, they have to survive. The only way to survive is to use again. And, um, and it's very powerful, and that's why so many people have died in the country. So, um, uh, you know, Mike talked about the brain changes that go on. Um, it's, it's, a, it's very difficult. So all the support, the support is what's the critical piece, and uh, you know it's great that people go to, and they have to go to treatment. But treatment is only, you know, it's a couple hours a day at most, and then they have the rest of the day to, to do what? So the big, you know, so the whole idea is substituting healthy addictions for unhealthy addictions, and the healthiest addiction is work, and that's like we all know that, right? And um, and then and then what else is there? Well, there's the community and activities and 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 seeing other people being successful and who are encouraging you. So that yeah, there's a reason to get up in the morning and do something because um, you know there's so many things we can do with with as a community. I mean, it happens all the time. Uh, bike clubs, swim, swim groups. We really got derailed with the, it's a shame we got totally derailed with the, uh, the pandemic. Um, uh, we had a deal with the YMCA for free, for free fitness passes. We would have had, um, we would have had a swim team put together. That, that was what I wanted to do with this group. Um, there's bike, bicycle groups that would, you know, make a stop at the building. We have a bike room and, um, you know, pick up, we, we would have gotten bikes for our people that wanted to, to participate. Um, uh, you know, all the things that we're just, you know, we're just coming out of the pandemic where people are feeling safe. We're, all, we're feeling safer. We don't have masks on. Um, you know, we, so these are the things that hopefully will be in a position to start right at the beginning. And um, you know, all the things that make us feel good, you know, these people have been closed out on and, and sit around and think that they're, they don't deserve it. They don't know how to get into it. Well, you know, we're going to make it easy. Okay, is this federally funded? The yeah, well, part of it is. So the the the, the rent subsidies are federally funded, and uh, the tax credits are indirectly federally funded. So um, uh, the short story is, if you're not familiar with tax credits, um, 
uh, we apply for tax credits from MISHTA, from the state agency, and then we sell them. And in this case, um, Huntington Bank buys the tax credits, and they get a return on the tax credits, and they give us equity, so there's, no, there's nothing to pay back. So um, uh, Huntington Bank gets about a 6% return. But Huntington Bank, the reason that the government set this up was the government wanted private, the private sector to be on the hook for affordable housing. Uh, this goes back to 1986. Before 1986, the government just, HUD would just give money to a group and say, here's a grant, build the building and have a nice life, see how it goes. It went okay, didn't go real great. Um, but the, the tax credit program is a different animal. Um, Huntington Bank is on the hook for 15 years, and if we default, if we don't do what we're supposed to, if we start, if we, the question was what happens if we start filling the, we can't get anyone from Midland, so we start filling the building up from Saginaw, and it's a, it's a, a mortgage default, right? This is all tied in with my regulatory agreement. Well, you know, someone complained to, to Huntington Bank, and Huntington Bank has two choices. They either kick us out, get us to change, kick us out, or maybe, or lose the credits. And they don't just lose the credits, they lose, like, credits going all the way back. It's called recapture. So, um, so nationally, nationally, the default rate on these types of projects is six-tenths of a percent. And uh, some are higher, some are lower. I think six is what, six-tenths of a percent is what Sinair which is the group that coordinates the tax credit purchases in, in, um, in Michigan. That's, that's their default rate. So Huntington Bank has done the underwriting. They're the ones who are saying, um, where's, all the money for, where's all the money for your, um, how are you going to pay for your, your security? Security is $150,000 to $175,000 a year. Well, we have, to, we have a separate pot of money that's, that's funded up front to pay for 15 years of security. And Huntington Bank says, okay, that's great. How are you going to, all the questions you've asked, they're sitting there with the numbers. They're going line by line on, well, you know, really, uh, this, is what, this is what it's going to cost for this, that, or the other. Does this all work? And then they make us a real loan before the tax credits kick in. That's when they're really on the, on the hook. So they make us a, the tax credits don't get paid up front. So, so they give us a loan for eight or $10 million. And then the, the tax credits come in, and and then they're really stuck for 15 years, and um, and they they willingly went into this project, and they're extremely happy with us. And as you all know, Chemical Bank is now part of Huntington Bank, and um, yeah, they're they're looking forward to being a partner in this project and 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 putting their money into it. They, the way the, the way tax credits work, Huntington Bank on paper owns 99.9% of the project, and Joe and I and whoever the not-for-profit is owns one-tenth of 1%. One We're the general partners. We have 100% say over the day-to-day -day operations. We just have to report to Huntington Bank. And if Huntington Bank feels that we're not doing what we're supposed to, if council decides they want to call Huntington Bank and and complain that we're, we're doing terrible things, we're not living up to what we said, and you can do that, then Huntington Bank has to decide what they want to do, and they can kick us out. And um, otherwise, I've never, I've never heard from any syndicator, you know, I've been doing this for, I've been doing this since 1989. I've never had, 
a conversation like that. I've never had a, uh, a default. Um, all our projects are still, I mean, our projects from, you know, that are 35, 40 years old, they're still, they're still operating. Other questions? Yeah. Yep. Um, well, let me go ahead. Um, you know, Mitch, at least in my mind, the, the biggest concern here is the tenants. Um, you know, everybody has a, a concern about substance abusers. And not so much that they abuse the substance, but what they do when they're abusing. You know, whether that be committing other crimes or spreading, uh, you know, uh, in, encouraging others to take take a, abuse a substance and, and, and in sort of a, a mini dealer type of situation. So, so the concern is that this will provide, this, this facility might be a magnet to draw those types of people, substance abuser people that we all are somewhat scared of and believe are bad influences in the community. So as I, as I listen to you speak, you know, you've designed a building that has, because what we want to do is we want to make sure that the people who are there are those who want to get clean. You know, that these are actually people who are sincere about it and not people who are gaming the system. And maybe some of this Judge Beale will speak to. But from your perspective, you've, you've designed a building with one entrance. You've got two uh, sort of enforcers. One of them is your, is your resident manager. The other is your security person. I'm wondering, is that enough supervision, if you will, to kind of monitor the lives of 50, people in 50 Units to make sure that these are all people who want to get clean, um, and then it goes to some of the questions that the mayor was asking about. You know, how many people go fall off the wagon, so to speak? Um, any other comfort that you can give us that these are in fact people who want to get clean, in terms of how, what precautions, or what screening, or what operational uh, procedures you you have in place to kind of protect against that. I mean, it's not going to be perfect, but I'm just curious if anything else you can add in that area. You know, I think, I, as you mentioned, I think this would, this would be something that perhaps Judge Beal uh, could speak directly to. Um, if I could uh, give Judge Beal the floor here. Well, okay. there's okay. other questions. We will, we'll okay. give him the floor, but I think okay. we just have a few more maybe developer questions. Does anybody... Well, and my question might be for Judge Beal, too, because I'd like to know, you said... Supporting them through this whole process, you do. But we don't require them to get a job. I mean, at what point, if they're doing well in this recovery and they want to be clean, I mean, why wouldn't we want them and support them to be getting jobs? To me... Judge Beal can require them to get a job. Okay. As a as a affordable housing owner, I guess the question would be what how would I what could I evict somebody for not getting a job? Well, but what I'm thinking about too at the same time is I want to make sure we're not opening a door for somebody to say, Hey, I can live here. I don't have to do anything. I'm gonna be fed and we're giving, 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 um, but where are they taking accountability for themselves at the same time? You know, I, again, I, I think I think that's the okay. Judge Beal question. Um, uh, My question is for you, and it is: uh, now that you've learned that Midland County is half as much, that does not change the calculus that these will only come from Midland County courts, right? 
only from Judge Beal, and Judge Beal can speak to this also. Judge Beal will be, his courts will be the sole, they're the gatekeepers for mm -hmm. everyone coming into the building. Okay. Any other questions? Yes. Do you know what your turnover rate over uh, Jackson Zayde is right now? You know, I have it. Um, or even what your vacancy rate is. I mean, is are you, know, you always full, um, or um, is there a big waiting list? Yeah. Or? Right now, right now, there's 16 people on the waiting list, and um, um, uh, it's it's take you know it it takes a, the first year is the hardest. Um, uh, one of the, yeah, the first year is the hardest because you don't have the community support. Uh, we had, um, yeah, I, I think the most any month, I think the average. Tim, what was the average? Between three and five. Yeah, it might be between three and three and five, and it depends on the month. Right now, Your average is three to five. Uh, uh, percent as of, of oh, vacancy. Okay. Vacancy. And then what, what would you say is the... When did uh, Andy's place open? It's about two years. Okay. And what's your average um, stay length? <sighs> if you're full right now and everything, I mean. I, that's a good question. Um, um, I, I can tell you there's 16 people from Okay, so we have so from from day of opening, we have there's still 16 people two years later. So 16 from the 50. Well, it, it's just that it it took nine months to fill it up. So well, at one point you hit 50. At so at the so of uh, September so October of 21, we had 50 units filled. 50 units filled, and the the and then the story that I began to tell was. Uh, Part of the, we knew that we would it would be harder to fill the two bedrooms, and um, you know it was just a matter of okay we're, we're just gonna we'll, we'll we'll just we'll we go into this knowing that we're gonna have higher vacancy and we're gonna lose money that way. But I got to tell you the uh, the gratification of meeting these reunified families. Uh, so a woman with kids goes into a, a detox program and is going to be in treatment for three months and she's got two kids well what happens to the kids well she loses custody of the kids and then she comes out and how does she get custody back she needs uh, an appropriately sized apartment to house those kids and and um, and that's what we have we have an appropriately sized apartment are they full they, now they are but it took it took a while to because most people were most people were singles uh, who were in who were coming through drug court Okay, so I need to be clear on what I understand what you said. Huntington is 99.9% funding this, so you do not need to do any fundraising No, here. no, no, no. They're the owner ownership. Ownership. They own it. They but own it. it as, they're called the limited partner, and they're in it. So tax credits go with ownership. So um, if you want the tax credit, you have to be the owner of the building. So it's a fiction. This is all this complicated fiction that... Made up for. So, this. do you have to do fundraising? I get to. We have guess. to do fundraising. That's right. So, you don't have enough money to build this. No, we don't. Okay. So, is this really a nonprofit? Are you? And is this going to come in? 
be built and then come off our tax rolls, or are you going to be coming and asking us for a pilot? No. So um, uh, this, if so, if not, just just to be real clear, this is a fiction that this is a for-profit enterprise for selling tax credits, and that with a different funding mechanism, we probably would we we would be incorporated as a not-for-profit because this is really a not-for-profit enterprise. So. So you would um, not be paying property taxes here in Midland. No, what we um, so the part of part of the part of the, the way the program works is that it's con in for instance in the state of Illinois and other states around the country, they recognize that this is a not for profit and and a tax credit project like ours uh, qualifies for in in Illinois and I, I can tell you there's a lot of other states it's a hundred percent. Exemption, no pilot, hundred percent exemption. Four hundred one c three. That's right. Like and, a church. But 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 they're not. But that but it's just like us. We are not a four hundred one five hundred one c three. It's just that right. it's recognized okay. that that's that's really what that's the in every respect that's the kind of work that we're doing here. But in any case, so but the real question is the pilot. And yes, uh, to get to be qualified, uh, we're, we'll be in competition for tax credits and. Uh, uh, the way the state of Michigan has set up the tax credit program, uh, there's a number of points for for having a pilot. So that's one issue. The other issue is that that these projects these projects are expensive. The full time property manager for 50 units is expensive. Uh, everything that we do, the security. I mean, we'll, uh, we're going to have we're going to need to as much as we can support from the 50 units for the 100. $75,000 security cost, we have the reserve, but then it's expected that we're going to be, you know, using that too. For more people in the building, which we want to do for, for programs, uh, you know, savings that we have, that's going to go into, that's, that's what it goes into. So, that, so your pilot, there are developers that come forward that want pilot because pilot means it protects their, protects their profit. And that's not happening here. What's happening here is that if we have, if we work with you and, and you're willing to grant us a pilot, that pilot money is going to go into the project and to the tenants. But it's still a pilot. You're still asking. Going to we, be asking you're going to ask for a tax exemption. We're coming back asking for a pilot. Okay. 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 Any other questions? Is this for alcohol and drug addiction, or just drug? Uh, we will um, at Andy's place. We do have people who are addicted uh, to uh, to alcohol. Uh, the the main focus is. Uh, um, the lawyers crafted this. The, the other judge, the other drug court judges, crafted this, and the um, uh, the focus is on persons who uh, use opiates as drug of choice, recognizing that people change drugs. People, alcoholics, also use drugs periodically, but that the we're really focused on um, saving lives from relapse and. As you all have read, uh, you know the fentanyl that's on the street today is deadlier than ever, and uh, relapse is deadlier than ever. And uh, to the extent that we can, that people in in Judge Beal's court who are opiate users, um, um, those those are the, that's the group that we would hope to to provide housing to and for a long term recovery. Um, and then other 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 people with other. Uh, addictions, which are also deadly, and alcohol can be deadly, 
um, we, we will provide them housing, uh, but they would have a lower, and in, in, in just in the ranking of, you know, and this frankly hasn't, that hasn't been the issue. The issue is, you know, who's, who wants to get in. And um, now we do have a wait, now we do have a 16 person waiting list, which is a real problem. I have right. one more question. Oh. Go ahead. Okay. Um, so let's talk about property maintenance. Is there a separate fund set aside to, for the upkeep of the property? What's happening there? So the, um, the, the rent structure is based on HUD fair market rents. So, um, so, we're, so we're getting a rent. I'm not sure what the exact rent's going to be, but we're getting, a mark, we're getting a comparable market rate rent, and we have no, no debt on the building. So, um, and that, that market rate rent fluctuates with what the rents are in the community. There's a rent reasonableness test every year, so rents have been going up, so our rents have been going up too. And all that money, so that money pays for all the services, all the insurance, the property management, the, uh, the upkeep, the maintenance. Mm -hmm. uh, we have extra costs for, because we furnish everything, we furniture replacements, um, um, and then all the nice things that we, that we want to do in the building. Um, and earlier, you want to go? No. Okay. Um, it was mentioned, you know, piloting a new recovery approach to recovery. How do you measure success? Long-term, long-term sobriety. Long-term sobriety is how we would measure success. So um, um, there's um, uh, Judge Hoffman who um, started this is – He's engaged um, a group that includes Harvard, Harvard University for a long-term study, and and the and the question is, let's get the numbers out there. Everyone, all the judges, they they know what's going on, and everyone wants everyone wants wants one. Um, um, but yeah, it's all about long-term success nationally. The success rate for for opiate recovery is. 10%, 10 to 11%. That's, that's the success rate, the long-term success rate. And as uh, when I first met, met Mike Hurst, he just said to me, we're Americans. When, when do we accept a 90% failure rate? How do we as Americans accept that? How do we, how do we fix this? And, and this, is, this might be the, one of the most powerful tools to, to fix that 90% failure rate. So what is our for Andy's house right now? What is our success rate? Do you think it's too? It's we don't. It's not long term yet. So that's that's a good question. It's not long term. But we, I can tell you that we have we we do have a lot, a lot of people are working. Um, the court and again, Judge Bill can speak to how he what he requires of of his uh, of of his participants. So people coming through the court. He'll explain what they have to do about employment, and um, um, we're hoping that yeah, uh, we have we, we I, they're just great stories. I mean, I, I I don't have the sheet with me. I can get a sheet. I, I, I just called up the property manager and I said, give me give me five stories, and um, you know this one has been working at you know a fast food restaurant now as the manager, and this one. Um, is, has been in recovery in uh, child and child welfare community services, you know, 
gave her back her children, and uh, she's reunited with her children. And um, there's one great story after another. Uh, we um, we we just documented um, uh, three. I can send you the video. Did we send you the video? Mm -hmm. I thought I did. Yeah, so you you saw yep. the stories. Yep. Yep. <laughs> okay. So I have one more question. No, you can go no, first I'm if done. you want I'm to. Done. Okay. Last question. Okay. So at the Jackson facility, have neighbors ever had to call the police? because of something happening at the facility, or do the police just randomly stop by to see how things are going? That's a great question. Um, unfortunately, I, I left uh, the, the letter in, in uh, my hotel room, but I'll, I can get it to everyone. I, I, asked our, um, I asked our security company, how many, how many police visits have we had to Andy's place? And he says, well, you've been open about two years. Uh, there have been 26 visits in two years. He says that's one a month. And the letter goes on to say he, he, has, he does security all over the state, high-end projects. Oh, there is the letter. I can, I'll, I'll pass the letter around. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Judge. Um, uh, so this is what he writes. After our discussion, I looked up all the times the police had on-site at Andes and found 26 times where police were present in almost two years. The average of one occurrence per month is well below what I typically see. This varies from warrants, the, the types, the reasons police come, varies from warrants, probation violations, suspected intoxication, and other relatively minor offenses. Moving forward, we'll keep a separate log, uh, as we currently only document this in our daily reports. I also want to add that we do security in five different cities, none of which are supportive housing and all have significant, significantly more issues. We currently service student housing, high-rise apartments, commercial buildings, stores, and regular apartment complexes. The comparison was actually an eye-opener as to how well Andy's Place has performed in mitigating issues in comparison to the average apartment complex or a similar facility. We love Andy's mission and will continue to serve it with passion. Um, um, I mean that's that's what's going on. We we've never ha I've never we've never gotten any complaints from neighbors. Uh, Andy's place. There's actually we're up, well, we should hear in a, a week or two. Um, we're building Andy's place too at the same location. We have six acres, uh, 26 more units, and uh, that one's going to work through. Uh, that's going to have people uh, not coming through drug court. It'll be from people uh, who are referred through uh, three particip uh, Henry Ford. Uh, um, uh, clinic and, and two other uh, uh, SUD providers. And um, uh, the uh, township supervisor for Blackman Township, when, I, when we called to discuss it because we needed a, a zoning variation to do this, he just said to me, I've been waiting to be able to refer people because people who aren't in drug court need Andy's place. So, um, yeah, people are very happy with us. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right, so this is a, is a public hearing. That was one. Is there any other comments from the public? Um, so certainly, please feel... Okay. State your name and address, please. Yes, uh, Grant Marshall, 2119 Bayless Street. Um, wanted to speak on half of the housing task force. You did receive our communication in support of the proposal. Um, we did focus on the fact that this is a multifamily housing development. We know we need additional housing within the Midland community. Um, we've continued to meet as a task force since the 2018 housing study. Um, 
produced the need and really the quantification of housing that was needed at that time. We know that that's just been exacerbated since. Um, also wanted to focus on the fact that this isn't a walkable and bikeable area, um, which would suit um, the needs of the folks that would be living here in the future. So just wanted to um, affirm our support of the conditional use permit. Okay, very good, thank you. Any other comments? Please. Ma'am, back. Hello, my name is Rachel Moore. I live at 2210 Luana Street, Midland, Michigan. I don't know why I said the state. Um, so my concern is, I actually, I really like the idea of the project. Um, I think that it seems like a very um, positive endeavor. Um, however, I want the people that are gonna be living there to be successful. And one of those concerns is transportation. So um, I heard the kind of side conversation between the developers and the council about um, parking spaces and explaining that you know people in this program may not have um, as many cars as like a normal apartment complex. Okay, ma'am, you need to address us. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Um, thank you. Um, and so um, I guess my concern with that is um, how I would like to understand more about how these folks are going to be getting to their potential jobs. Um, where are they going, going to go grocery shopping? Is Maybe there's some kind of service or program um, provided through the project to um, you know, get these people their essentials every day, but I, I don't think that's really been fully um, explained yet. Um, and I guess um, it is completely debatable that this area is walkable. Um, my brother, who has special needs, also lives on Bayless and uh, does not have access to transportation. And it is constantly a struggle for my family to get him from you know, his, his place on Bayless to his job, to Kroger, to get groceries, those sorts of things. And as far as I know, the only grocery store um, in, this in this area of the parcel is, is Kroger. And is that really walkable or bikeable in Michigan winter? Okay, so, right. Yeah. right, thank you very much. All right, any other public comment, ma'am? Hi, my name is Penny Prince. Okay, Penny. I live at 401 Arbery Place. Um, I'm bringing um, you a petition I started. Um, actually, I circled some more um, days and did receive uh, more signatures on the petition. Uh, right now, um, with my illness, I can't get any more signatures, so I'm sure there's many more out there. Um, this is for against Andy's Place. Um, we are all for Andy's Place as far as recovery. Mm -hmm. um, we just don't feel that it should be in our neighborhood. Um, with all the traffic that may come, you know, um, crimes, um, we're just concerned for our safety, you know, for the parents and for the children in the neighborhood. So I do have 46 signatures against Andy's place. Um, there was three people that was for Andy's place. Okay. So, Are you going to give us that? Yes. Okay. Very good. Thank, Thank, you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Any other public comment? Sir? Good evening. My name is Joe Sapesi. I'm a Midland resident and I live at 5300 Hawks Nest Lane here in Midland. I have a uh, 
I'm the parent of a drug addict. I am the parent of someone who has tried to work his way through drug court, and I am the parent of someone who's currently incarcerated, not here in, in this area. I understand the need for this type of facility. I understand the need for us as a community to help those who are greatly in need. I also understand for this type of facility to operate effectively, it needs to address the needs of the community, and especially the neighbors, such as those who have spoken before me. I support what is being proposed in concept. I'm not sure that this is the right facility or the right place, and I don't understand the financial model as to how it could possibly work. But I just wanted to go on record by saying we need something. And as a community, we need to help those who struggle with addiction because it takes a tremendous toll, as that gentleman spoke earlier, on families. So I plead with you as counsel to help us one day find the right answer. If this is the right one, I ask you to please explore all the avenues to make sure it will work effectively. Uh, and if it's not, please continue looking for the right one to serve our community. Okay. Thank you very much. Right. Thank you very, very much. Good evening, council members. I'm Michael Beal, 1307 Glendale Street. I rise here today as a member of the public and not as a representative of the Michigan Midland Judiciary, although I do rely upon my experience as a sitting judge in Midland County in making my comments this evening. I first, I have some comments I wanted to make, but having listened to some of the questions from the Council and some of the comments for the public. I'd like to address those first to make sure I get those addressed uh, so I don't forget to do those after I made my uh, comments. I guess I'll kind of start backwards. There was a question recently about transportation. Transportation is definitely an issue for the members of uh, people that are in the recovery court. And I also have to correct some of the comments that have been made. Yes, the recovery court, which I preside over, will be. Uh, participating and, and hopefully sending people to that facility. Judge Karras, who runs another program called My Hope, which is an intensive probationary program, will also be utilizing that program. So the combination of those two programs, I don't see a problem with us being able to fill 50-some units uh, over a relatively short period of time. Okay, can I ask you a question? Yes. How many people are in drug court right now? Uh, ooh, I don't know right now. I think it's between 15 and 20 right now. Judge How Karras says, in my hope, drug, recovery court. Recovery court and drug court are the same thing. We've okay. changed our name to recovery court from drug court. Okay. So we have about 15 right now, I believe, that are actually participants in recovery court. Okay. How many of those 15 people need housing? Uh, most of them actually uh, need housing of some sort. We have them bouncing around usually from place to place. Are they living there? Are any of them living in their home? Uh, some of them, yes. Some of them have gone back to houses for which their parents are users. Uh, they have no other places. The only other place we usually can send them is either the sober house living where there is some issues there uh, regarding some of the rules that they have there or the uh, uh, homeless shelter, which is the house of mercy or the open door. Those are basically our two, two choices for somewhere other than the environment from which they came from. And are they a combination of like residents from the city of Midland as well as the county or? Yes. Okay, both. It's countywide. It's the end county. Okay. The, the participants in both programs have to be residents of Midland County in order to be a participant in the program. Okay. That's, that's how that works. As a matter of fact, I will sometimes get cases from other counties. You need to talk to us. Um, Sorry. 
No, 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 you're fine. You're right there, but oh. but you need to look at us, oh, I'm not sorry. the audience. I sometimes, oh, I'm, uh, I was looking at Mr. Branson, the yeah. city attorney. <laughs> Congratulations <laughs> on a good tenure, sir. Um, I sometimes get cases from other counties that transfer to us for our recovery court because they're residents of Millen County, and they cannot participate in that county's recovery court or specialty court because they don't live in that county. Okay. So if there's anybody that is in the recovery court or my whole program, they must be residents of this county. They, we do not have participants that are not actual residents. So transportation issue is an absolute issue for participants in these programs. Most of them don't have driver's license, and they have had to walk. So no matter where they are in the community, they're going to have to walk somewhere almost all the time. We do, though, have assistance with dial ride. We have county connection. We provide tickets for them as they, uh, as they get the right to do so. If they earn the rights to have that, to, we think that they have a legitimate need to have that. Having a facility like this where the services for their treatment is actually on site is huge. If they live out by Meyer and they have to go to 1016 at the Circle, I think that's a much farther walk than going from here to Kroger for them. That's what we're trying to say here, is to give them this opportunity. And the treatment that they're going to get is the same treatment they're getting in the Recovery Court program and in the My Hope program. It's the same care providers. And they're going to go to the facility and deal with them there. They may still have to go on occasions to the care providers, the treatment providers, but they'll at least have the avenue. Some of these things can be done on site. So... I'm not okay, seeing wait, wait, wait. I didn't hear that there was treatment on site. I heard that there's these coaches or these folks. Well, I heard Mr. Milner say that they have care providers that they set rooms aside for, and they come there, and they provide the treatment. Oh. And the treatment providers that we have on our recovery court team will continue to provide that same service. And my understanding is it's not been locked down at this point in time, but my understanding is that can be done on site. Okay. Who pays for that treatment? The, the uh, participants, and there is also a component of that's covered. I, unfortunately, uh, Mayor, I have a coordinator that handles all the administrative stuff, sure. such as yeah. the paperwork for funding. <laughs> uh -huh. I just approve it and say, okay, that looks good. But I believe there's an organization that pays for that if they are, meet certain criteria, and most of our recovery court people meet that criteria. So it's usually paid for by an agency of of some sort. Okay, but some of them pay for it themselves. Some have, yeah. Well, there's a copay that they always have to pay. There's a component of it that they uh, they do pay as well. Okay, well, in my understanding. If I'm wrong, uh, I apologize. But in my understanding is there is a component of it that is paid for by the participants themselves. So the participants have money. Yes, but not a lot. Okay, well, I'm just trying to, you know, understand. I mean, yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know that you're going to find many individuals, even the ones that are on the street that are uh, uh, sleeping under cargo boxes, have absolutely zero money. Okay. I think we can fairly agree on that. But most of them probably couldn't pay $100 a month to live somewhere either okay. and still feed themselves okay. and still get around to doing all the things that we have them to do. And I can tell you this, being in a recovery court or specialty court is not easy. We demand a lot from them. 
It's not a matter of, oh, I'm going to get this free housing, so I'm going to go into drug court or recovery court so I can get that. They don't want to do that for that reason. I can tell you that because it's a lot harder than if they just go on regular tr traditional probation. Okay, how long has, has Midland had drug court? Started in 2010, so we're on our 13th year. Okay. Um, how many, do you, you don't know how many people you've graduated, do you I know? do. Oh, okay. Well. I was going to get to that on my comments, but since you asked, I'll jump right ahead to that. That's a lot of pages. That's what I was thinking. You <laughs> <laughs> probably know right where it is, though, on that sheet. Uh, I think, I, if, oh, shoot. I apologize. Well, I'll come to it in my, I'll follow up when I come to my comments. I'll let okay. you know that. Okay. So, um, so there any other questions on those issues? Well, I, if yep. you're, I really don't get drug court. If I, if I come into drug court, how long am I going to be involved with that program? Until you graduate. Well, how, when, how, what does it take? How long does that a take? A minimum of, of uh, 16 months. A minimum. And the minimum is set because you, there's four phases. Once again, you kind of get into my notes, but I'll, I, this one I do know by heart. Okay. <laughs> there's four phases you have to go through. Mm-hmm. Each one is a minimum of tw uh, four months. How many people graduate in 16 months? Not very many, because it's unlikely that somebody's just straight through and has no issues that uh, allows them to graduate on time. Like so, are you in are you in jail when you're going through drug court? No, no. So Actually, you're, you're the idea of recovery court is the opposite. We want them in the community because we want to get them ready to deal with the community and live, be an independent, productive member of our society. When they get done with our program, if they sit them in the county jail, they got no way of having those experiences and us to gauge them and how well they're doing in the community. So are these people on probation? Oh, yeah. They're all on probation. How Everybody's long? on probation. So Does how it, long is probation? As long as I want up to five years. Up to five years. And does part of that program include getting trained Potentially, Good question. employment. Any of my comments that I'm going to make for you. <laughs> okay. All right. Are we done, Mayor? Or can I move on to the next question? I'm hoping you're going to explain each of the phases. Yeah. Okay. Let me take care of uh, Commissioner Wilhelm, uh, Brown Wilhelm's uh, question first. One of the criteria to graduate from drug court is you either have to have a full-time job hmm. or engage in full-time education program of some sort. Okay. Either one of those are not present. You don't graduate. Okay. And, or five years expenses, and you have decided you don't you really want to buck the system and not do either one of those and I don't think anybody wants to wait around five years just because they don't want to get a full-time job or be involved, mm -hmm. enrolled in education okay and then do they go through a treatment program before they start the recovery program because if they're coming to you y yes and no okay uh, they get admitted into the program they get put on probation usually the first thing we have them do is to go to an inpatient uh, facility of some sort of a at least 30 to 90 days. It depends. Okay. And the one thing that um, you have to understand is in recovery, there is no blanket rules that says, this is what you do all the time. You get assessed. They figure out what your situation is. Mm -hmm. They develop a treatment plan. Some people, they think, may only need 30 days, and so that's what they do. Mm -hmm. Some people, they think they need 90 days for their situation, so that's what they do. Then when they're done, they come back into our community because usually they go outside the community for the inpatient, although some of them do go to 1016s inpatient out on M20. So they come back. Now they get started with the intensive part of recovery court, now that they're out of inpatient. So before they leave inpatient, we need to have where they live in. If they don't have a place to live, they go to the open door. 
or if they can get into the, the 1016 sober living facility all right eastman road if it's men and then there's if there's women there's one out m20 for uh, 1016. so that's what we do then uh phase one our intention is because most of these people have not really had structured lives first thing i have i, I i'm really glad i started this when we got into the program and uh, shout out to McKay Press because they're the ones that give us these. Uh, is they all get a planner, a daily planner. They have to carry with them every time they come to any recovery court process or proceeding, and they have to show me they have it. And they have to write down everything they have to do every day. So there's no excuse why they should not appear for anything that they're supposed to do. And they have something every day, including weekends. They get tested a lot on the weekends for obvious reasons. Now, they may not know about it, but they have to call in, I believe, usually before 9 a.m. And if the caller is called, they got to go down and get tested within a certain amount of time. So our intention, phase one, and most of the phase two as well, is just to get them stabilized because their lives have not been stable. After we get them stabilized in the first couple of phases and get into the system and get into the routine and realizing that they really can do everything we're telling them they got to do. Now we're starting to develop life skills in the end of phase two and beginning of phase three. That's where we get them in. Let's get into serious looking for work if you don't have a job. Serious looking at what your housing is going to be long term. Seriously, what's your situation with your family? How's that going to play out? These are all huge stressors for everybody. Even more when somebody has a substance abuse issue. Because if it overwhelms them and they don't have the skills and the resources that they developed to handle it, what's going to happen is they're going to relapse. And once they relapse, they throw their hands up and say, well, what am I going to do now? I relapsed. I might as well just go back to using because I was enjoying being high and when I was high, I didn't feel anything. When I was done, the lows are seriously terrible. So I just have to keep getting high all the time. So that's what we're trying to show them. You can make it. You can develop skills. You can develop a community where you have support. And one of the questions I, 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 uh, I never realized until I got into these programs and went to the seminars. You know who can tell you when somebody's using? An addict. Oh. A person that has used and abused knows when somebody else is doing the same thing. They see the signs. They know the behaviors. And what better way to catch that than 50 units of similar situated people? I can't think of one. We're spread 50 people out in this community, because they will be in this community, either in a centralized facility or all over Midland County, mostly the city of, because they got to get to all these different services. Now, what would be a better way to keep them in line than having people similarly situated with similar backgrounds who see them all the time at their various services because recovery court becomes like a family. They go to a lot of the same things together and they know. And family members begin to learn the signs when they have somebody that's a substance abuser. Not as good as somebody that actually abused themselves, I would submit. But they begin to see the signs, the evasions, the lies, the trying to avoid people. They see those things. 
And this gives them a very good opportunity to have that nipped in the bud before they take the next step. Before they say, you know, I'm going to keep using. And you asked a good question. What's the definition of, I think it was a life of recovery or something like that. Yep. To me, I find that to be a commitment to maintaining sobriety. Not that you are sober in the moment, but you're committing to it. And it may be five years and you relapsed. That doesn't mean you're following a life of sobriety. That means you relapsed. If you go the next day and say, I'm committed to start my next five years, I think you're living a life of sobriety. Just like I'm a diabetic. If I, I love lemon cake. Am I relapsing because I have a lemon cake? I say, oh, I got to go back and I, I slipped. I shouldn't have had that piece of lemon cake. No, nobody would say that. They say, you've made a poor choice. Get back on the wagon and start maintaining your right diet again. And that kind of goes to this issue of the stigma that we have about two populations that we're dealing with. One is criminal defendants. The other is people that abuse substances. The second one has been amazingly thought to be a weakness of character. And that ain't the case. It's not. It's people that made a bad decision and continue to make bad decisions and the physiological changes that occurred makes it very difficult for them to change. Like eating sugar. Like a person that has a heart attack that wants to continue to smoke cigarettes or continues to want to eat uh, red meat. You wouldn't say that that's a character deficiency. You would say, yeah, that person's got some concerns and apparently that's not important enough for him. Can you move on but to the next point? I can. What next point do you want me to say? <laughs> well, I don't know where you're going with that, but we're, well, we're at 9 o'clock here now. <laughs> Uh, let me go through my questions again. Then. Um, the re- oh, uh, I think, Mary, you asked this question. The resident manager actually can be a recovery coach. So that could be somebody that has a very extensive amount of experiences that is very possible. You may have somebody that is a recovery coach okay. that is doing the, uh, is, or the resident What training manager. does a recovery coach get, or is there, is there experience? Their There's experience. a lot of training, actually. They have to go through a lot of training. They have to be, have at least two years of sobriety before they're even eligible. They have to go through an extensive, well, not extensive, they have to go through courses in order to be able to be eligible. We actually have recovery coaches that we use in our recovery court because they're very beneficial. Once again, they bring somebody with a similar history in contact with somebody that's discarded into this program to help give them guidance. So we have the ability to have somebody, and quite honestly, if it is going to be my consultation, I would be really recommending a recovery coach be the resident manager. Um, are you covered the obligation to be employed? Um, I'll address that issue later. Alcohol is not permitted uh, by recovery court people. I believe Judge Karras is my hope as well. We test for that. If you test for positive for the presence of alcohol in your system, uh, which is in your system longer than drugs actually, uh, you do get sanctioned for that. So even though that may or may not be what the policy is of the facility, it is the policy for all participants in the programs. All right. Any other questions before I move on? 
Just to touch base on that alcohol thing. So in order to go to this facility, is it for alcohol addiction and drug addiction, or is it just drug addiction? Depends on which program you're talking about, uh, Commissioner or Councilman. Um, the recovery court is not alcohol-based. It may be a co-occurring issue. There may be another substance for which they have a, uh, an issue regarding that. Uh, but we are primarily uh, opi or, uh, uh, opiates, methamphetamine, cocaine as the dr primary drug of choice. Judge Karras does not have that delineation, so it very well may be somebody in his program may only have an alcohol problem. His is not, his is not substance abuse-based. It's on a different criteria. Substance abuse tends to be a significant factor, though, in those individuals as well. Okay, but that, what about this? Is this going to be alcohol? Are alcohol issues going to be allowed there, or is it going to be strictly opiates? I can't speak to that because, once again, I don't run the, the facility, okay. so I can't tell them what they are going to do okay. for the facility. But And they can respond if they want to later, but I can tell you this. If they're allowing alcohol there, I don't care because I don't allow it. We don't allow it as part of our recovery core program. That is not a permissible thing for them to do, possess or use, okay. uh, ever. So it, I, I, can, I, I can clarify this. Just, I, all I need is a yes or no kind of. No, alcohol is not allowed okay. and off-site or on-site. People, can, we test for alcohol. Okay. okay. Councilman, I answer your question. I think so, yeah. All right. I understand the concerns about a multi-unit apartment building moving into an area with single-family housing around it. I would also not be excited to have that type of facility moving in next to my house. However, I think it is unreasonable and unrealistic to expect a fairly large, what I would consider vacant piece of property to remain vacant in perpetuity and to have no development that an owner may want to have on it. I live in an area right behind a school which normally would also be safe for consideration of other development. However, the recent destruction of schools in the city has made this a possibility for my neighborhood as well. We don't have the right to demand no development of property by the owners just for our desires. And I'll attempt to show that there are not proper reasons to approve the approval of this, doc of this project. And I believe, actually I saw from the notes up here that I was not aware because I don't normally do this type of uh, presentation. Uh, I will try to focus on the public health, safety, and welfare of the community. The issue presented today is whether this sober living facility is necessary for the community and whether it presents any unreasonable risk to the surrounding neighborhood. I believe there is a need for this type of housing for our local specialty courts, which Judge Stephen Karras also supports. And there are precautions in place to address the perceptions of this type of housing and its residents. The proposed facility provides housing for individuals and their family at a location with others living in a life of sobriety. I am aware of the issues associated with people in recovery and the potential or even likelihood of relapse occurring in that population. However, there are safeguards in place for the benefit of the participants and the surrounding community members. I'm also aware there are many places in this community, in public and non-public locations, where individuals have overdosed and or used narcotics. The question is not whether certain types of substance abuse behaviors may occur, rather to what extent the surrounding neighborhood will be affected. I don't see any evidence 
other than supposition, to suggest there is an abnormal or even high likelihood of a safety or negative impact from this facility. There will be security on site for the facility to monitor the activities and the ingress egress from the building. This will be done by an outside security company. There will be cameras also providing surveillance for the public area of the building. The doors will be locked and monitored and restrict to restrict the flow of the outside traffic. Treatment service can, can be obtained on site for those in recovery and needing such services. <clears throat> the need for services is an, is an individualized matter, so each participant or resident will require their treatment plan tailored to their needs. And a uniform rule regarding such services is contraindicated or bad practice. These services will include substance abuse treatment, support meetings, and potentially other services uh, as the facilities and resources are established. Additionally, the location near the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services office is quite beneficial as participants and their families often have cases for services with that state agency, and it also provides an opportunity for employment resources to be used there as well, certainly within walking distance. There will be on-site staff who will live at the facility full-time and essentially act as supervision for the activities there and have the authority to attack, to take action as necessary or to contact the appropriate specialty court person or law enforcement. There will be additional provisions to any lease agreement as to maintaining sobriety and other issues that are not normally found in a lease agreement to ensure that there's proper environment is sure that any proper environment is maintained there. Entrances will require access to be provided for any visitors and their access, accesses are monitored and they'll be required to check in when entering. Recovery Court of My Hope, which is the intensive probation program, will provide oversight to each participant in those programs, including their residents at a sober living facility. These programs are not identical in the manner in which they operate, but have significant overlap or common elements. Each participant is, uh, has intensive oversight by a probation officer and a specialty court coordinator. They have requirements to comply with their treatment plans, not to use or possess unprescribed substances. They have a curfew for a significant portion of their time during the program. However, this curfew does move to elimination as they advance through the phases or they provide proof to us of their compliance. We are attempting to have the participants become adjusted to living outside of the court supervision, so we want to see how they actually perform with reduced but not eliminated supervision over time. And if it is necessary, we can reinstate a curfew. Participants are subject to random searches of their living quarters at any time. Wait, Have, uh, any time? Any time. I can send a probation officer 24-7, and they will be searched. And I can tell you that it will be a lot easier for me to do that when I have all of my participants or a lot of them living in one facility instead of having to have a probation officer go to about 13 or 15 different residents. Okay, what if they're off probation? Can't do it then. People can live there that aren't on probation. Don't agree with you, but they've also graduated the program, and I'm hoping at that point in time it is not necessary for us to send a probation officer there anymore. Uh, okay, but I, I just want to be clear on this. Because you are clear. That people, so that people can live there if they have graduated drug court. That is correct. <clears throat> and if they've graduated, they can also be, live there if they are no longer on probation. Um, I would say that's not correct. If they get terminated for not being successful, then no. Oh, okay. But today they're successful. Tomorrow they eat lemon cake. 
Yeah. Okay. And then we have a criminal system that addresses like any other person that violates the law. Okay. So I, I, I guess I don't see the I, distinction of why we should say, while they're on probation, we have these right to search. <clears throat> but. But that's what you're telling let, us, Let though. me finish my comment, if you don't mind, please. Sure. But if they successfully go through this program, and we, as a team, think that they have done enough to warrant us not to supervise them anymore, mm -hmm. the fact that they don't have that supervision anymore, why that would be a concern as it relates to what's happening there, because all the normal protocols for regular behavior are there, plus the facility will continue to require that they not use. Okay. I mean, I understand that. Okay. I mean, I understand that. So really, but you, when they're on probation, you can, you can randomly search. When they're not on probation, there can be no random searches. 100% agree. Okay. Um, additionally, probation officers have the ability or authority to have someone detained by law enforcement on a probation hold if they feel that something needs to be done immediately. There is regular random testing of all participants for drugs and alcohol. We will address each situation as to the situation, which is we will have them do each situation and determine a sanction that is appropriate for a positive drug screen or a use which may include not allowing the participant to continue residing at the location. I have extensive authority to control over a person's life when they are on probation. And the recovery court has the ability to respond as they deem appropriate given the behavior which occurred. The facility has the ability to take whatever action it thinks is appropriate for violations of the terms of the lease. There has been a state uh, desire for automatic act. There has been a stated desire for possibility of automatic action or removal uh, from a facility. As I indicated, I do not control the housing facility and how it relates to the process for its evictions of its tenants, uh, or what constitutes a basis for an eviction. However, I can tell you that in my 15 years as a judge, I have found that a blanket rule that covers a situation is not the appropriate way to handle it. It's usually not a good idea. Additionally, if someone is kicked out right away, and they will then have to find someplace else in this community to reside, which very well may be in the same neighborhood that they were in in this facility, and then it will be without any of the protections that have been provided by the supervised housing complex or with the services that they were provided, that were, they were provided there as well. If the facility does require an eviction right away, then we will have to deal with that. However, I would question the imposition of such a rule by an outside force not accustomed to deciding such matters and would leave it to the people actually operating their facility to decide what they think is best for how that facility should be run. Sanctions are imposed on participants for not complying with any of the, if they do comply with all the rules of Recovery court. This may include jail, GPS tether, community service, as well as termination from the program. The incentive to successfully complete the program is usually significant, as incarceration is likely to be for an extended amount of time if they do not successfully complete it. That is not even to mention what may happen as it relates to their family if they have children uh, that are uh, in the system. The service providers are expected to be the same as current I address that. We would work with this sober living facility to have clear lines of communication so issues can be addressed in a timely fashion, including potential for confinement to jail. Once again, the housing facility is not an extension of the court, nor even any type of joint operation. 
However, the court will endeavor to utilize the resource for the housing facility in the circumstances described, namely for recovery court and the MIHO participants. The ultimate order of the, uh, that was already addressed. Um, briefly describe a recovery court. Uh, is a team made up of the following individuals. We have, a or we have a representative to the Midland County Prosecutor Attorney's Office. We have a uh, probation officer. We have a sheriff deputy. We have a city police officer. We have a criminal defense attorney. We have represented to some two local substance abuse facilities. We have a representative from the Midland County Department of Community Health. We have two recovery court coordinators. We have a representative from the, uh, the Community Corrections Advisory Board and a counter commissioner, all who meet every other week, and all of them show up because they're committed to the program. We also act as a team on many, on, on, uh, we, we act as a team in bringing many different disciplines and ideas so that we could share them and address issues and concerns that arise about the participants. Almost all our decisions are unanimous by the team, despite the differences in their backgrounds and their employments, which I'm quite proud of and how this team is operated. We work through the issues as they arise and try to respond in a timely fashion. Mayor, Mayor I, for purpose of time, I will not go through the stages. It was in here, but if purpose Perfect. of time, okay. Here's the information. We've had 166, 166 participants in our recovery court program since 2010. 80 of those have graduated so far. Not all the graduates have continued on without a problem or committing new crimes, which we call recidivism. However, many more have been successful than not long term. I can tell you that the recidivism rate for our graduate is half of the recidivism rate for those who did not successfully complete the program. And I have no doubt that this program has benefited Millie County as a result. We also get statistics from the state comparing our program to a hypothetical population a similarly situated probation is across the state, and we are about 30% of what that recidivism rate is. So we are 30% of our participants that have recidivated from what the state average is for similarly situated people. I might have... Keep going. Okay. I consider the issues presented for this housing project to be similar to those that have been presented by individuals when a low-income housing project is presented. Safety of the neighborhood, impact upon property values, disruption of the neighborhood environment, undesirable behaviors by those who are seeking to use the accommodations. Really, when we boil it all down, the objections, I think, amount to we don't want those type of people in our neighborhood. We all know there is no idyllic neighborhood, so the question is whether there is sufficient concern about the impact of a new housing facility coming into this neighborhood, which was selected, and whether there's actual proof or merely scare tactics being offered. I hope this is not some subtle message about the image of persons in a specialty court that does not cloud the actual issues that are presented for your consideration. I think if a low-income housing project was coming to Midland neighborhood, was being set up and intimately owned by a nonprofit, was to have supervision, security with surveillance cameras, had resist, resisted access, restricted access, access with third parties, provided substance abuse services on site, including support meetings, had court supervision on all, if not most, of the res residents, 
had the ability for someone to be removed for noncompliance with facility or probation conditions, had significant exposure to incarceration and not just eviction for noncompliance, had potential for home inspections by a probation officer, and could be done in a building which is aesthetically pleasing to the area, I would think the city council would jump at the opportunity to have that type of low-income housing. I'm not aware of any uh, issues for the operation of our current sober living facilities in Midland, nor they're causing any excessive or problematic issues for the neighborhood or law enforcement. I would also note that these facilities are not intended to be long-term residential facilities like this one. I have spoken to the judge in Jackson County, and she was of the same impression as to the benefits and was not aware of any significant concerns about interaction with community law enforcement officers. Sorry, not any concerns of an interaction with community law enforcement. She did not indicate any actual events of which there would be allegations flying around, nor did she indicate disfavor or unwillingness to continue working with Andy's Place facility in Jackson, Michigan. If you're requiring some type of uh, utopian type of facility then nothing, that nothing bad can happen there, then I will not be able to give you those assurances. However, I'm not aware of more trivial behaviors or violations more than any other usual housing type facility and the security at Andy's place in Jackson indicates the interactions with first responders is actually less than their normal facilities. Also, my prior experience of having lived around the block from one of the often used inpatient substance abuse facilities in Petoskey called Harbor Hall also confirms my belief the facility will not create any issues as to the concern as to the safety or criminality or other matters that have been raised as concerns. My wife and I and our child would never have known that there was such a facility around the corner from our house, except on occasion we would see groups of individuals that would be walking around uh, together, and just to find out what happened, I made an inquiry of where those, where those individuals were coming from. It's then that I found out that they were in Harbor Hall. We, uh, we did not have any issues, we had no problems, and there was not any overdoses in our local neighborhoods, there were no overdoses in any type of parks uh, as a result of that. And that had none of the, the security issues that we have raised for Andy's place. So, in my opinion, the question is, would you like for these County of Midland citizens to have the opportunity to reside in a sober living facility to significantly increase their chances for long-term success in becoming productive members of society and most, likely to, uh, and most likely to stay in this community? Or do you wish to perpetuate the stigma of substance abuse criminals as so dangerous and undeserving that we should not endeavor to give this chance? Either way, these people will likely continue as members of this community, and their success or failures in these programs will likely impact whether they do become productive members of this community, as well as with their families. You have the ability to determine which way to go in providing what I think would be a significant component to increasing their likelihood of success. Thank you. Okay, Judge, before you sit down, yeah. we might have a couple questions. Okay. So one, is this a local facility or is this a regional facility? Local. What it, tell me, what that means that only Midland people will be living in that facility? Only Midland residents will be living in that facility. So does that mean the judge court from from Saginaw or Flint or wherever can say, okay, 
Uh, if there if there are person who was arrested in in Flint, maybe we would get them back here because they were a Midland resident. I heard that that said earlier. However, does that mean someone's going to become a resident of Midland so they can get in that facility? I mean, we see that with the with the jail. You know, it's, we have a lot of people living in the jail who are not from Midland County, and that is a huge issue. So is, are you guaranteeing to everybody here that that is only Midland people that will be that in that facility, even if it is not full? Well, the way I can answer that is the way residence is defined by law, Mayor, mm -hmm. is located with an intent to stay. Mm -hmm. I, I'm not aware okay, of any okay. definition of residence says I have a consumer's energy bill, I have a house, I have a lease, I have my driver's license that says this is my address. The definition of residency is here with an intention to stay. I can guarantee you that everybody that comes to the program is here as a resident. Okay. Thank you. Are there any other questions? I have one more. <laughs> um, my question is, there's always, or I shouldn't say always, there tends to be a stigma that those that are addicted to opioids are some of the poorest people that just, for whatever reason, made bad choices. With all the cases that you've seen, is it, does income have anything to do with who makes bad choices no. and becomes addicted to opioids? Well, I, I can tell you this. Is, one, to answer your question, no. In my experience, Substance abuse transverses all uh, demographics. Mm -hmm. Income level, uh, education, home life, it, there is nothing that will dictate somebody can. Mr. Hirsch was here, and I, I, I don't know him all that well, but I don't anticipate as I've seen him and how he reacts that his home fright was anything that would lead you to believe he was going to have a heroin-addicted son. Mm -hmm. I know a judge in Macomb County that started up an organization called FAN, Families Against Narcotics. Her daughter was a cheerleader going to Yale University. In her senior year, she was found to be a heroin addict. I don't think anybody would anticipate that there's any classification or, or uh, demographic that's going to tell you or explain to you what may happen. Now, that being said, I think if you have somebody that has undergone that, and start the family, now I think you may have an increased likelihood of second, third, fourth generation of issues of substance abuse. Okay. Right. Mr. And so yes. you never really Wait. know who might be in that house. I could be a substance abuse user and you wouldn't necessarily even know. Mm -hmm. They hide it a lot of times. What we call functional alcoholics or functional addicts. Mm -hmm. I don't I don't agree with that terminology, but that is a phraseology that's been accepted in our society. Mm -hmm. uh, either you are or you're not substance abuse. Mm -hmm. You're okay. not functioning okay. as substance abuse. Uh, a question about um, sort of expedited uh, eviction, both during the recovery court term and afterwards. I, I got a little bit different stories, or at least I'm not, I'm not clear based on what you said and, and what uh, uh, Mitch said. It sounds like during the now you, you you kind of indicated also that one time slip doesn't necessarily mean you get evicted at least not in your mind. Not from and, and I don't I think I know where your question is going. If I'll answer what I think is to be if it's more than that you, you could follow. 
there are two different things that can be done in regards to that issue. One is an eviction process that the facility will do if they want to. That's their choice. The other one is the, pro, the recovery court team could say, we're going to take action regardless of what they're going to do. So they may say, you can stay here, but you've got to go to uh, services. We may say, we don't like what he's doing there and who he's uh, meeting with right now. We're, we're, we're taking him out of that facility. I have the authority to say he, will not, he or she will not live there anymore for at least a time. During the recovery court period? While they're on probation. Once that ends, as Mayor Donker indicates, uh, then that is only the facility that will have the ability to take action in regards to that. Yeah, so, and I, and I, so the question is then how quickly post-recovery court period can you get somebody out of there if they potentially, in my mind at least, would pose a risk to the rest of the... Well, I believe that ahead. that is only through the eviction process. And one, you've got to give notice first. I, and then there's 30 I days. If I, had, if I was uh, in Judge Carpenter's position handling evictions, I would be able to answer that question. But I'm not. I don't handle them in circuit court, so I'll leave it to the people that actually do it. A couple of things that we can do. Uh, someone who's uh, outside of probation, we test. We, someone walks in the building, uh, everyone in their lease, they've agreed to uh, uh, random drug testing, probable cause. You look like you're high. You have to take this, this drug test so we can identify. Um, if someone, if there, if someone I, I identifies as, as uh, using, um, uh, we have, we, their lease also provides for us to do uh, apartment search based on probable cause while they're using, so what's going on. And, uh, and if we find drugs on them, if, we, if someone's out in, for instance, someone's out in the parking lot, say, and they're, they're in their car and they're using and, and the... You just uh, know how long it could have taken. Yeah, how yeah. quickly? In any case, uh, we can get them out in 24 hours. If there's a police report, if the police come and it's documented, we can get them out in 24 hours for health and safety. But that's part that, of the lease yeah. agreement. The, the part of the lease agreement is that we can take all these actions. And, um, Even with a federally funded program? Yes, yes. It's, this, is, this is allowed in, in tenant. If there's probable cause, I can't, I just can't say, oh, we're going to random, we can't randomly test people coming in and out for no reason. That's, there's no probable cause. But if we have probable cause, we can do that. Okay. And they've agreed to that in their lease. But you cannot force them by way of a lease in a funded, but wait, 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 in a federally funded program to participate in any programming. No, that's not true. Um, okay. Uh, uh, the the law says that um, we cannot force you to do uh, that. You cannot. It's mandatory services. The the law says that uh, you cannot mandatory. You cannot mandate services and require people to pay for them. If they're not required to pay for them, you can man. You can have mandatory services. And this has been this is a big issue for Mishta because Mishta uh, has uh, uh, they've embraced what's called housing first, which means Anyone, for, anyone can be housed regardless of what their status is, whether they're using or if they're not using. So this is, this is uh, it's been a long conversation, and we're, it took us a couple of years to work with Mishta to get them to, to, uh, to agree to this program to begin with. So the issue of mandatory services is still an issue that, that, that we're working through with Mishta. They have no, they're just starting this year, uh, 23, will be the first year that, they're, that they're uh, rewriting, it's called the Qualified Allocation Plan, which, which will recognize recovery housing as a separate group. Uh, there's opiate settlement funding, which is going to be going to Mishta, we hope, and um, we're going to be able to 
and this is what we're going to be applying for also. So we're hoping that, that we can, uh, that the whole issue of mandatory services is settled at that point. But federal law allows us to do this. Steve, I called Judge Carpenter today to ask him that exact question. Yeah. He said, one, when you go to eviction, first of all, you have to be, form them that you're going to terminate. So as the landlord, I would have to say, I'm, you're terminating. They have 30 days. 30 days. Okay. At the end of the 30 days, then if they're not out, then you go through the eviction process. And that, then it goes to court. Then you file with court if they're not out by then. And then it takes at least another 30 days. So minimum. He said minimally about 60 days to get someone evicted through the regular eviction process. Mayor Donker, did you tell is, uh, Judge Carpenter all the facts that Mitch just said about a part of the agreement and part of the deal? Uh, I just asked Judge Carpenter to give me the straight up what's the eviction process. Regular eviction process. But so the eviction process. The answer to my question is no, you did not give that information. To I did Carpenter. not give him any of that. Uh -huh. I just said the regular eviction process if they were not participating in a program. Well, he knew what I was talking about. So he said, here's how the process works. Okay. You've answered the question. Thank you. Okay, any other questions? No? Okay, though, this is still a public hearing. Is there any more comments? Congratulations, Mr. Branson. Okay. Well done, sir. Okay. Good career. Any other comments? Okay, then we'll close the public hearing. Lacey, will you please read resolution? This resolution will approve a request from Mitch Milner, Milner and Karangela Inc. to approve a conditional use permit for a 50-unit multiple family development located at 1510 Bayless Street. Okay, we have a motion to accept the resolution. So move. Second. Second. Okay. <laughs> well, you know, I looked up about supportive housing and tried to find some data because we are a data community about the impact of supported housing models on, on people, you know. And it says there's data out there on the amount of um, impact that housing has on days of homelessness. But there is no data out there that I could find um, as it relates to how does it really have any impact on mental illness or substance abuse. I couldn't find it. And maybe it's because this is something new. But there's no data that shows that it's effective. Does anybody have any data? Okay. Again, you're right. It's a new program. So, yeah. You know, you know, this is difficult to talk about and everything like that because you, you want to do the good and everything like that, but you want to make sure that you're setting up the community and city in a good way. My big concern on this was how long could somebody stay here? Um, I mean, it's, this could be a lifetime thing. <laughs> but from what I've been hearing from the, the, um, the courts and everything, it sounds like, you know, for the court portion, it's a 60-month avenue. And that's kind of where I'm hanging right now. <laughs> well, okay. I mean, this is really hard. It is. One, 
you know, I heard that this started two years ago. You know, it was COVID, all of that. It didn't fill up. There's So really, I don't think there's a lot of data out there telling us a lot of things. You know, one, there isn't. I know that they don't have a, a partner at this point in time. I think a partner is a really important part of the process. We don't even know who that partner might be. You know, drug court, 160 people, 66 people in drug court, 80 graduated since 2010. So 80,000 people have graduated. You know, I'm not going to, you know, I don't think we can be shamed into, like, doing this because people need help. Because I agree that people need help. I do. I just don't think, for me, that this is the right location or time for us. May I just make one comment? Mm -hmm. So just to refocus before we continue your discussion here. You've heard a lot of information about the operations of this particular use, but I want to reframe back to what you actually are right. being requested to consider tonight, and that is a land use permit. Um, in this case, a conditional land use permit, which the burden of proof lies on the applicant. Um, it does, it's not the other way around. It's not up to the neighbors to disprove that this is good. It's up to the applicant to, to prove to you that this is the right use in the right location on this parcel. Right. What you just mentioned about there's a need in the community, that may be a factor in what you look at, but again, you are to look at whether this is the right site for the use, and that's what your focus needs to be this evening. So, um, And you saw Jacob, when he went through his presentation, talked about the the, um, the, non-discre- sorry, the, yeah, the non-discretionary standards, which were satisfied on, and then that leaves the discretionary standards, which are the eight or so of them that apply that you need to consider as you go through. So all that said, a lot of what was said can inform you on what the use is, a lot of what was said, frankly, isn't really relevant to the, the issue that's germane to you tonight. So just to bring you back to what you're actually talking about. I do not think this is the location for that. Where would be a location for it? I don't know. So are you saying that particular spot or not in Midland? You know, we have already approved two pilots for that area of town, which have low income housing options associated with both of them. So there are the options for housing. If we're speaking strictly about housing, strictly about, I mean, there's, there's, you know, options in the future. I, you know, some of the things that I've heard in other things is, oh, is it going to bring my property values down? What about this? What about that? You know, that's such an arbitrary thing, and you can, it's, Interesting what you can find on that. The only thing that I found that actually brings property values down are if you have homeless shelters. Home, well, wait, homeless shelters, hospitals, fire departments in your areas. Those are the only things that statistically show that the changes can change property value. I just don't think that this is it. That's my, this is the moment. <laughs> no. I, I know I usually talk a lot on these, any kind of issue that comes up. I don't really, this is not my area of really comfort or familiarity. I mean, I, I look at it and say, okay, these folks are in the community. So, so they're not, they're not, they're here. The question is, is this a better place for them to be than where they are? Is it better for the community to have them in a place like this than where they are? Um, does the, and I've been listening carefully to a lot of what's here, what's been said, and does it pose a greater risk to the local uh, neighborhood? 
and there doesn't seem to be a lot. I mean, it's un, it's unknown because I think every 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 site, every city is going to be different. Um, but you know, you've got a lot of close supervision by the courts, at least during the first during the the recovery court period. Um, after that, I'm a little concerned because you really want to preserve sort of the the sanctity of this in, in, of this of the situation, and you really want to give people a chance to come clean. And is this and is this better than anything else we've got? Um, I mean, that's I don't I don't really know because this is not my area. Of, like I said, a familiarity, but it seems to be. Um, so that's that's my only thoughts on it. This is in my ward, and this is uh, something that I've been given a lot of thought and talking to a lot of people about uh, going back and forth. But all of my safety concerns were addressed by Beal. And uh, I have kids that are going to be walking within two blocks of this place. On a, almost a, a Monday through Friday, they would be. And they're teenagers. And they go to Midland High. A lot of Midland High walks to gas stations that back up to those Michigan, you know, on the street, all that. Uh, but what you're asking for is to give people a second chance and they're inside of this controlled structure. And you can kick them out within 24 hours, according to the judge. You can do all this stuff. I just, if something like this is going to be in Midland, I would like it to be like that model. But I'm very aware that there's other models in town that have been working for decades. It's a tough one. I didn't realize city council would be so tough. <laughs> <laughs> and my thought, they're already here in our community. And giving them a safe place to continue to their recovery, to be... Part of the community, law-abiding, all the security, the whole program. Everybody deserves a second chance. I mean, think about it. All our lives, everybody has choices. And with every choice, there's a good consequence and a bad consequence, depending on what the choice is. Sometimes people make bad choices, and it takes going through something traumatic that'll turn them around. And when I hear about, you know, what does success, what is success, commitment to sobriety, yep, sometimes folks will make another mistake, but we give a second chance. How many of us have never had a second chance? It's something. So... The location, I expressed concerns about it earlier, but the overall concept, I support. Um, walkable, yep, they're going to need help with transportation, but I don't 
think I'm above and beyond giving somebody help and a second chance. I will say that the fact that they come from Millen County is a big, mm -hmm. that's huge. And we're not allowing others from other communities to come. Because the problem's uh, already here. I want to make sure that we're clear on that. I mean, we have it on tape. We can go back and refer to that. When Judge Bill is no longer in office, that this is really strictly for Midland County people alone. So mm -hmm. if it is not full, it is not full. Right. Can that be in the contract? <laughs> I mean, really, well, I, as, as, we, as Brad said, we're, this is a conditional use permit. That's it. We're just giving it to the conditional use permit. You so know, is, can we add those conditions in there now? I know the planning... You know, from a council perspective, okay, Jim's giving me a look. Well, I'll, I'll add this. You, you have the right on a conditional land use permit, just as we've imposed contingencies in here, you can impose conditions on the approval as long as they relate to the standards that you have in your zoning ordinance. So if you think it is a general health, safety, and welfare issue, if you think it's an issue of the detrimental impacts of the neighborhood, for instance, then you can speak to those and apply conditions to those. You can't just arbitrarily come up with, with uh, things that have nothing to do with a city standard or ordinance. So, so what would tie says, that's to having to no. be Midland County? <laughs> you know, well, doesn't this relate to the Mishta thing? Well, I think one, I guess, at this point, you know, they also need to raise money. They need to raise well, money. I think there's some other conditions they've got. I mean, you got to find a local partner. There's some other right. Hoops, right. But I think that's, that's the not other contingency. And, too, his, and he stated that they aren't going to start building until they get that commitment. So, I mean, that's what kind of set me okay. If we have that, I'd feel a lot more comfortable with it. The other thing we got to talk about is probably the parking thing. Is yeah. if we can. <clears throat> Just 12 months from the time that it's full. Yeah. Okay, 12 months from the time it's full. Is yeah. that a condition? That's something we can't put in? Yes. Okay, 12 months from the time it's full. All right, are we ready to vote? Yep. Okay, so what are all our contingencies? That's it. That's the only that's one we can uh, actually put as it relates to actual what, what this is about, planning. Did you not have some contingencies as well? So there were some originally recommended by uh, planning staff and the planning commission, so well, all of those would apply. And they're pretty standard ones, things like the stormwater, soil erosion control yeah. um, permits, et cetera. Um, and it also did speak to the contingency about the parking. Um, and, and, again, the terms of that agreement have yet to be entered into and resolved if, if it's your direction to... Um, to wish it to be 12 months after full, yeah. then you should add that uh, and clarify yeah. that in your contingency. But I believe the resolution is on the table. It's moved okay. to second. So if there's going to be an amendment, we've got to go through that loops of the amendment. To if add the, the parking issues and the time. Yes. I mean, mm -hmm. if okay. we're going to do okay. it. No. Okay, we need a motion to amend. I will do that. Add um, to change the. Oh, gosh. Can you read the contingency for the parking? Is that in the resolution? Yes. Mm -hmm. to which it's I number think it three. Was. No. Oh, that's right. It's not in the resolution.
Are you looking for something, or are you waiting for? I'm not sure what we're waiting. We're looking for the language that speaks to the contingencies specific to the parking at the moment. No, there isn't. I mean, not that I've seen in the whereas. Number three, a parking deferment agreement is. That's a that's a contingency, but it's not in the resolution. The resolution just it's obliquely referenced in the resolution paragraph that talks in accordance with documents provided. Um, and submitted the meeting, which includes the planning commission documentation road. and the recommendation thereof. Oh, it's on. But, yeah. I mean, do we need to put that in there? Can it be an understanding, or does that actually have no, to go in? No, you should put that in, okay. in the language to make it clear. Because it's still going to be under negotiation so and everything like that. So my question would be, would we need to put it in there? It can't I mean, because it's going to come back to us anyways, right? Well, no, it'll no. Well, no, that's right, so because the science is done. Why don't you do this, this in accordance with the documents provided, submitted at the January 9, 2023 meeting, and also those items discussed during the meeting itself? Well, you need to be more clear. Well, but that's all we're saying is what the documents provided and submitted at the meeting. So that includes a whole bunch of stuff. If we just add, based on the video record. Because otherwise, yeah, otherwise there's a lot of other stuff in here. Well, well yeah, there, there definitely is. But the, we're only asking, we need to tell them what we're asking for. From this side. From this side, yeah, what we want. So you just need to say add to it, I don't care. Yeah. Okay, so I'll make an amendment that the parking deferment agreement that the planning department and city attorney are going to negotiate includes this statement that they'll make a decision on that deferment after 12 months after full full occupancy. Does that make sense? In, in it makes sense. We can clean that up. Okay. I mean, Thank if you. council's looking for it, it's on page 45 of your agenda packet. Right. In the planning commission report, there's five existing contingencies. Right. So and those saying, would be what we So contingency number three is the one I'm looking at. Yeah. And okay. correct. We'll, we'll amend condition three to state that. So was that a motion, Marty? Second. Second? Okay. Who's, who's second? I'm sorry. Diane. Diane seconded. Okay, so we have a first and second all right, then all in favor of that amendment, say aye. 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 Opposed? Okay, so that amendment passes. Now, that amendment no. is on the table. Now we're going to vote on the amended motion. The full okay, so, so full do we have... Yep, it's, we, it's on the table and everything. Mm-hmm. As that. We approve the amendment, so now we just need to vote on that. So are we ready to vote on the final? All right, then all in favor, please say aye. 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 Opposed? Aye. All right, that passes 4-1. Okay, that takes us now down to item. Do you want a break? I know that there's a lot of people here that are waiting for this, and they've been gone and come back. I see children are gone. Can we take? Can you take a break and be done in five minutes? Five minutes. That's it. We're starting with or without you.
this next one was.
Okay, thank you. We're back in session, and that takes us now to item number five, and it has to do with the planned unit development on Eastland Drive. Mr. Kane. Thank you, Mayor Donker. The proposal in front of you this evening is for concept plan approval. Uh, applicant is River Caddis Development. The property location is 115 Eastland Drive. The property is located in the RB Multiple Family Residential. Zoning district and the request is for concept plan approval for a 204 unit multifamily development. Subject property is located on the northeast corner of East Lawn Drive and Jefferson Avenue. This is to the northeast of the Greater Midland Community Center. Uh, it is a former site of the East Lawn School. Zooming in a little bit further, you'll see there is an aerial image with the school, uh, former school building removed. Property is rather long and narrow uh, with a frontage on Jefferson Avenue and a secondary side street frontage on East Lawn Drive. Subway property is located in a public parks and recreation feature of land use category, which is consistent with its prior use as a public school. Properties to the north, south, and to the east beyond the school's property are located in a high density residential future land use category. Properties to the immediate west are medium density residential. Properties to the southwest are public parks and recreation consistent with their use uh, as the city's central park and the greater Midland Community Center. In terms of zoning, the subject property and the properties north, south, and east of it are all located in the RB Multiple Family Residential District. Properties immediately to the west are located in the RA4 1 and 2 Family Zoning District. Properties to the southwest are located in the Community Zoning District. Planning developments are regulated in accordance with Article 24 of the Zoning Ordinance. They're intended to provide for zoning, a zoning process that's uh, flexible, essentially, and encouraging, uh, encouraging planning and design that will result in plans that fulfill the goals and objectives of the master plan, while achieving development that cannot be achieved under other types of zoning regulation. So we've got some regulatory flexibility, land use capacity, and redevelopment are key principles of this planning unit development ordinance. Um, and this is basically there's eligibility criteria in order to utilize a plan unit development and this proposal is consistent with those eligibility criteria. Planning unit development must include both a concept plan and a detailed plan. The concept plan provides preliminary illustrations while a detailed plan is scale drawings similar in nature to a site plan. For this project, the applicant submitted conceptual plans for review at this time. If approved in accordance with Article 24, the applicant will submit a detailed plan for final review and consideration at a future date. Uh, the ordinance provides up to two years to do that upon approval of a concept plan. As I noted earlier, the property in question was the location of Eastland School, which was a K through five Midland Public Schools facility, which opened in 1947 and was closed in 2017. The school building was demolished in 2020. The site is 6.4 acres in size. And I would note the site previously included the Little League field, uh, which is located at the far east end of the site. That was split off in 2020 by the school district, or 2022, rather, by the school district, and that will be retained in ownership by Midland Public Schools. The concept plan includes six three-story apartment buildings and one one-story clubhouse building with a total of 204 dwelling units. I'll just note here that multiple family dwellings are a principal use in the RB zoning district, which means that generally speaking, projects that include multiple family dwellings do not require any sort of discretionary approval process, they would generally be approved through a site plan review process. The site also features extensive internal green space, stormwater, and approximately 292 vehicle parking spaces. So you may be asking, we have a permitted use in the district, why a PUD uh, would be proposed in this case? And, and the answer is, in working with the applicant, 
on their desired development plan for the project, looking at the context of the site. Um, working with staff, we came to the conclusion that in order to provide the best possible project here, reflecting the context, a balanced approach that uses really the best of the city's RB and RB2, RB2 zoning district standards would get us what we really were looking for contextually here. So first, using a PUD allows for an increase in the setback to the neighboring homes to the north by 45% above the RB required setback for a building of its height. So we're increasing setbacks, number one. So we're increasing setbacks uh, to the north. To the north. So to the single-family properties, they're RB zoned to the north. We would provide, be able to provide a 45% greater setback by providing a smaller setback along the street frontages and the other interior side setback, which is the Little League field. Two, using this blended approach allows for a reduction in pervious surface due to parking coverage by approximately 30,000 square feet. So by using the part, we'll go into more details about parking later, but the RB district and the RB2 district have two different parking standards for multiple family dwellings. The applicant's proposal basically blends those and arrives at an average of those two standards. And with that reduction in parking that's proposed below the RB, the typical RB standard, it equates on a per space, uh, you know, typical parking space with the portion of the drive aisle associated with it is 270 square feet. So timesing that by the number of parking spaces that would be reduced, we have almost um, two-thirds of an acre of open space created that would otherwise be covered in pavement. And then finally... Two-thirds of an acre? Two-thirds of an acre, okay. yeah. Open space, no, not asphalt. Not asphalt. Okay. And then finally, a different unit mix. So integrating junior one and two bedrooms. When you have smaller unit sizes, obviously in a similar size building or footprint, you can fit more units. And so this provides the opportunity to provide a diversity of households with uh, high quality housing in the neighborhood and also creates flexibility for the developer and manager in the marketplace, both now and in the future. What's a junior? Is that like a studio? It'd be like a studio or efficiency unit. And the applicant's going to go into more detail right. tonight about the amenities included in each unit type. On the screen, you'll see an overview of the applicant's site plan, as you'll note, uh, with regard to the items we discussed in terms of utilizing the PUD here. We've got that greater setback provided to the north, which provides... Um, it's primarily used for green space or parking. Uh, it's probably approximately 50%. The buildings are located throughout the site. Uh, the applicant has elected to spread the parking out, both to diminish the visual impact of a large parking lot, but also to provide more convenient, uh, accessible parking for the residents of the development to their apartments. So by having that parking <coughs> situated closer to the buildings, it gives a little bit more convenience for the residents, as well as making the parking lot a lot less uh, visually prominent in the site design. We do have um, three buildings that have frontage along, Jeff, um, sorry, along East Lawn, uh, which are uh, contain multiple family dwellings. We have the clubhouse building proposed, which will be at the corner of Jefferson and East Lawn. And then we have another apartment building located to its north, which would front on Jefferson. The additional two uh, apartment buildings would be located interior to the site um, here and here. On the screen, you'll see a uh, rendering of the proposed project. Um, the approximate perspective here would be from the city's water tower or just to its east, um, looking towards the north and east. And so this is primarily what you're seeing in the screen is East Lawn Drive. Um, as I noted before, the three apartment buildings that would front on East Lawn Drive, the clubhouse building, which is at the bottom left at the corner of East Lawn and Jefferson, uh, an apartment building that would front on Jefferson, which would be to its north or rear 
in this image, and then two additional part, uh, two additional buildings uh, with multiple family dwellings contained within the site. In terms of basis for action for a planning development, we're essentially running through um, the standards that are associated with a site plan review uh, when it comes to the basis for action, adequacy of information, purpose, setbacks, maximum height, parking and loading, landscaping, open space, circulation system, stormwater detention or retention, and other considerations. So we'll try to go through these briefly. So I mentioned that the proposal is for multiple family housing and six detached apartment buildings, which is a format similar to other housing developments in Midland, including those that are located elsewhere along East Lawn Drive. The applicant has put in a lot of effort into providing a development layout that creates the maximum setback possible from the adjacent single family dwellings and which provides for contiguous, useful, usable open space. And so there's been a lot of conversation recently at the planning commission level about open space and how we often see sites that have open space that's in the form of strips of grass along parking lots or next to buildings that's not really usable in any appreciable way. And so the applicant went to great lengths to try to consolidate those open spaces into useful areas where they could provide an amenity to residents while also providing um, buffering to adjacent uh, residents as well. The property would also maintain pedestrian connectivity through the site north to south as, has, as exists today um, and as existed when the site was used as a school. The introduction of multiple family housing here is consistent with needs identified in the 2018 housing report. The site itself, as you know, is very centrally located within, within the city in walkable proximity to Center City, the community center, Central Park, Central Park Elementary, Midtown, Midland High School, and many other community amenities. So moving to setbacks, uh, the proposed development was designed really with two primary intentions when it came to building placement. The first was to create a vibrant pedestrian environment along East Lawn Drive and Jefferson Avenue, which is consistent with the site's central location. And as such, the buildings are primarily oriented in terms of front and side street setbacks around the city's existing residential B2 requirements. The plan unit development article of the zoning ordinance specifically allows for smaller setbacks in the interest of establishing a continuing, uh, consistent relationship of the buildings to the street and sidewalk so as to form a visually continuous pedestrian oriented street front as is what is proposed with this project. The additional benefit of that and another primary reason why that was pursued is that it has the benefit of creating that significantly larger side setback to the adjacent single family dwellings on Princeton Court. No proposed building is closer than 60 feet from that interior north property line which is three times the minimum required by Article 24. So the Planning and Development Ordinance has its own setback standards, and it's 23 feet larger than the minimum required in the current RV zoning district. So this just illustrates in a little bit closer view that, that setback. So the, three, the first three buildings as you move from west to east are 60 feet from that property line as shown on the concept plan. The fourth building, which is closest to the Little League Field, is actually a bit further south, so a larger setback than 60 feet. In terms of height, so height got a lot of conversation at the planning commission level. The, M the RB multiple family residential zoning district has a variable maximum height when a larger building setback is provided. So essentially up to 28 feet of building height, the side setback required, so this would be the interior north property line for residential B would be 25 feet. No additional setback required. <clears throat> for a building of three stories in height, Side setback, base requirements 25 feet. An additional setback of 12 feet is required for a total side setback of 37 feet. 
And again, in this case, three of the four buildings provide a 60-foot side setback. The fourth building provides a larger than 60-foot setback. I would note I included the additional standards here just to make it clear that in the RBD zoning district by right, you can construct over a five-story building provided that you enhance those setbacks. And that's a by right allowance under the city's site plan review process. Requires no discretion, simply requires that the applicant provide that additional setback. In this case, the applicants provided a setback that almost meets the criteria to provide more than five stories of building height under the base RB zoning district. <coughs> the planning development section also provides standards for light and shadow, privacy, and scale of development related to building height. Those standards only apply when the proposed building is taller than permitted by underlying zoning or when greater than 40 feet in height. I, as I noted, the RB zoning district doesn't have a maximum height limit. The proposed three-story buildings are in fact under that 40 feet in height, and so this doesn't trigger any of those enhanced height reviews that would normally be required above 40 feet or where you have an uh, underlying uh, zoning height requirement that the buildings exceed. Parking and loading. So the concept plan indicates approximately 292 vehicle parking spaces. I already talked a little bit about the layout. There are an additional 25 parallel public parking spaces that are along the north side of East Lawn Drive uh, that were installed likely uh, as a result of the presence of the school. Um, those would remain under the concept plan. <clears throat> the concept plan also indicates that there would be approximately 56 bicycle parking spaces provided. The quantity of vehicle parking in the concept plan is likely to decrease slightly as additional site requirements, including ADA parking or dumpster enclosures, as well as other potential amenities like carports are added when we move into the detailed plan um, stage of the process. Article 5, which is the city's parking and loading standards, requires 1.5 spaces for each efficiency or one-bedroom dwelling unit and two per each unit with two or more bedrooms, plus supplemental guest parking at a rate of one additional space for three dwelling units in our residential B district. That would amount to 405 parking spaces for this project. By comparison, as I noted earlier, we looked at the RB2 district standards and that requires one space per bedroom, which in this case amounts to 265 parking spaces. Subject property due to its location near Center City and Midtown is very walkable. It's got a 77 out of 100 rating by walkscore.com. For comparison purposes, the corner of Ashman and Main Streets in downtown Midland has a walk score of 61, and the average walk score for the city as a whole is 30. I don't think I have to tell council that Midland is not necessarily the most walkable city in terms of proximity of amenities. Very walkable in terms of infrastructure. We've got great sidewalks, great trails. But in terms of amenity access for our residents, we don't generally have great access in a lot of locations. This is very much the opposite. This is a very amenity-rich neighborhood. The applicant has provided a technical statement, which is required under Article 24, in order to request that reduction in parking. I would note that staff supports the approach uh, provided by the applicant for parking, given the context, given that it's consistent with the city's approach to multiple family parking in the RB2 zoning district, and it enables the expanded green space and reduced impervious cover that I noted earlier. Landscaping. The concept plan shows two principal green spaces within the development. The first is located near the center of the development, is intended to include amenities such as a pond, a pavilion or gazebo, play equipment, and a dog park. The other principal green space is a linear park buffer located along the northern portion of the site. 
Um, this area previously contained the East Lawn School parking lot, so it was fully covered with impervious surface. And it's intended to provide an enhanced buffer to the adjacent residents of the north. A landscaping plan that contains specifications that are normally seen in a site plan review is provided as part of a detailed plan submittal. But this is just an example uh, drawn from the uh, applicant submittal of those landscaping concepts for the property. Open space requirements for PUD developments with residential components. Uh, the concept plan provides for approximately 36% of the sites to remain as landscaped green spaces. So this is the spaces that don't include building coverage or parking coverage, sidewalks or other hard surfacing. Open spaces are thoughtfully designed to provide easy access to residents as well as to maintain that historic pedestrian access through the site to neighborhoods and businesses to the north. In terms of circulation system, the concept plan includes a well-designed and complete system for both vehicular and pedestrian circulation. There are three proposed driveways to access the site, one which would enter from Jefferson Avenue on the northwest corner of the site, and two from East Lawn Drive. There are also 11 pedestrian connections shown on the site connecting the property to the adjacent streets, side sidewalks, as well as to that existing pedestrian pathway to the north. I will note that in the review of the concept plan, the fire department identified that the driveways will need to be a minimum width of 26 feet in order to provide ladder truck access. Stormwater detention or retention. Uh, the applicant has indicated that the site stormwater management will be integrated into the open space in the center of the site in order to provide an amenity and beautify the site. Uh, this is consistent with the, the vision of the PUD article, Article 24. Um, there will also be other stormwater elements on the site, including a uh, rain gardens and bioswales. Those are primarily envisioned for that linear park feature along the north edge. And as with any development like this, a stormwater permit will be required prior to construction. So in analyzing the concept plan, the concept plan is consistent with the requirements of Article 24. It respects the existing context and supports the future needs of the community. It aligns with the city's current master plan and is consistent with feedback obtained thus far in the current Midland City Modern Master Plan process. It would also provide needed multiple family housing in a walkable neighborhood setting, and it complements significant community investments in the immediate vicinity, which include Central Park Elementary, the Greater Midland Community Center, and the Saginaw Road Streetscape. Staff recommends concept plan approval. No contingencies are included with that recommendation. You likely would see contingencies at the time of detail plan review when we start getting into the engineering specifics of the project. But at this time, given the conceptual nature of the project and its consistency with the requirements of Article 24, no contingencies are recommended at this time. We have received 14 public comments on the project, three in support and 11 in opposition. Those were primarily during the Planning Commission's public hearing in December. And the Planning Commission did recommend the project forward for consideration uh, by a vote of five, of five to one um, for approval. So we are at the last step in the process with Council's public hearing tonight and your consideration of the concept plan. All right. Any questions for Mr. Kane? Could you repeat the number of parking spaces, again, that are in the current design? 292. Does that include the street parking? It does not. Okay. Question. Midland Public Schools owns the property now. Who's going to own it once, if it's approved and development is complete? The applicant. Oh, okay. And then second question, I'm assuming notifications went out to everybody within 300 feet. In accordance with state law. Okay. Yep. And do you know by chance how many houses 
residents there. Okay. No, from all the picks, it looked as if that on East Lawn, you know how there's a cut out there for cars. Mm -hmm. From the, what I could see, that's going to be gone, correct? No. Or would that that will stay? Yeah. That, oh, fantastic. Not proposing to do anything with that. That's actually, I mean, that's in the public right of way for one. So that would need to be a mutual agreement with the city of Midland to, to make any modifications. Right. The applicant's not proposing any modifications to that. Well, the streets look straight. They didn't have the streets didn't have the cutout for them. Is what I'm saying. It's just the yeah. Kind of, yeah, I thought it did, but it's just a conceptual plan, and the applicant has no intentions of right. removing that. No, it's just a drop-off zone, right. I think. <clears throat> Any other questions for Mr. Kane? Okay. Thank you. All right. This is public hearing. We'll open the public hearing. I believe the applicant is here. Does uh, yeah. our you, presentation show up? Um, What's that? Lacey will get it loaded for you. <coughs> Is this a arrow or click of the mouse? Uh, you can left click or arrow, how they want to work for Just let me know when you're. Good evening. Uh, thank you, Mayor, Council Members, for having me tonight. My name is John McGraw, President of River Caddis Development. My um, address is 1038 Trowbridge Road, East Lansing, Michigan. Um, so I figure uh, we'd talk a little bit about our company, just give you a little bit of background, how we got here, what our process is, talk about a little bit of our experience, what we've done in the past. And then we get into more of the site-specific details and then into the architecture and design. So today we have both myself and Jake McGraw from River Caddis. And then we also have uh, Justin Brooks from Wade Trim and Mike Corby from Integrated Architecture. So who we are? <clears throat> um, we are a family company. We have uh, nine employees. We're based out of East Lansing, Michigan. Uh, since it's a family company, there's a, a intertwining of both personal and business, just how we how we do things. But <clears throat> okay, I just know that there's someone that has hearing difficulties. Could you speak louder, please? Sure. Thank you. Um, so we have a family company. Um, we're based out of East Lansing. Um, we have. Uh, I was born in Lansing with with my family. My children are, are from there, but my father's roots are from Saginaw. So uh, we've been coming here for a while. Uh, Midland has a close place in our hearts, um, and you'll see in one of our developments, I spent quite a, quite a bit of time here um, in, in uh, the beginning of, of my career. Um, so we uh, develop across the country. We, we focus on um, opportunities, really. We're a solutions-based company. We're listeners. We're collaborators. We, uh, since we're so small, we need to be nimble and look for opportunities across the United States even. Uh, for specific projects that really lend their hand to us providing value both to the community, uh, the neighbors, the, the schools, the municipality, whatever that may be. And so we've learned a lot across our, our travels. We've, we've developed in seven different states. We've developed across uh, industry sectors. Uh, by that meaning we've done multifamily, uh, market rate. Uh, we've done student housing. We've done mixed use uh, student housing. Um, office, retail, and entertainment. We've done industrial. So we've done 
We've done, uh, we're currently doing municipal and, and other projects with uh, higher education and dormitories, and it, it provides us with a very diverse background of understanding how issues arise, and then us backing into solutions with partners, and those partners can be a municipality, they can be our own internal partners, they can be partners of the project, they can be architects and engineers, or they can be neighbors, they can be stakeholders, business owners. So we hear a lot of different things across the country, and it you know, without listening, our projects will fail. Um, we're, since we develop in these different uh, different uh, states, we're, we're not developing in our backyard. So we have to listen to mold our developments specifically to the development, uh, the, the area that we're developing in. And so that is how we've become what we've become, is through listening. Um, and it's, it's challenging, but it's also super rewarding. We get to focus and work on a lot of really neat projects um, and be really thoughtful and really intentional with not just design but how we get there and understanding that there are concerns throughout the way and that we can be responsive and we can listen and we can do things about them. Uh, so jumping into these projects, <clears throat> um, they're, they're very diverse in, in, in terms of use. Um, but I'd like you to, if you could, focus on the architecture, the design, how they're very different, the fact that we don't have a prototype. I'm not bringing a box to Idaho, Minnesota, Texas, and Michigan, right? I'm not bringing that exact thing all over the place and I'm changing the color of the outside. We do very different things all over the place and you'll be able to tell that from these photos. Um, and we'll start with the first one, which is East End in Midland. This is one of uh, our first projects as a company. I think it was our second, actually. Um, and we're I mean, we're stoked about this project still. It's fun to drive past it. We still own it. Uh, we still have weekly and monthly calls on it. Um, I still talk to the, the super who runs the building uh, often. Um, we're, we're just really proud of it. We spend a lot of time. Uh, we, we take a lot of pride in what it looks like as we design it, but every year since. We've owned this for 12 years now. Uh, 10 years. Thanks. Well, sounded better, but maybe I'll have to come back in a couple years. Here's a couple extra photos um, of what the building looks like, the design features, and it's a Class A, 220,000 square foot uh, office building. It's been 100% leased up until recently, and we're working on filling that last vacancy of 5,000 square feet. It's across from the, um, the baseball stadium, and again, we're just elated with the project. I mean, it, it's one of the reasons... Um, we're so fond of this area. Just we spent a lot of time and had such a good experience. So uh, here's a, a, another uh, market rate uh, development that we did. Uh, we're finishing up currently in downtown Grand Haven. Um, this is right downtown, it's, uh, 120 units. Uh, it's a mix of three-story and four-story. It has a clubhouse, it has a pool. Um, very happy with how this turned out. Um, we did this in, in uh, one round and we were leased up really quick. I think we have two units left and it's not fully finished um, in, in construction. And, and the, the residents are stoked and happy about it and they're right downtown. Um, Kalamazoo, this is a project that is underway. It's been approved. We've been approved through Eagle and Mishta for a mix of um, income housing. So we have, this is one where we've integrated 
um, through listening uh, of uh, the city of Kalamazoo, a combination of market rate, affordable, and workforce housing. Um, this has been a really challenging project with all of the variables involved, but we're persistent, sometimes stubborn. So it's been a fun project to work through. Uh, here's a project downtown Boise. It's four stories uh, parking. It has commercial. Uh, it has four stories above that of apartments. Fifth story amenity deck. This is 174 units with 404 parking stalls. This is a public-private partnership with Ada County, which is the county that um, Boise is in, or downtown Boise is in. Um, and uh, this is just a lot of fun. Learned a ton. A lot of subtle... Uh, architectural features throughout here that will make this building really last. Uh, it'll be really timeless in design and colors. Um, it'll, you know, the, the type of materials that we use are, are easy to maintain, but they're, they're also homey. Um, people can come, walk by, sit at the benches, have, have a coffee with friends, but they can also bring friends to it and be proud of it, and then bring friends to the amenity deck to lounge and look at the Rocky Mountains. So here are some other projects without further getting into it. You know, we have uh, the Cleveland, Ohio one was a um, nine-story 1911 building that was, uh, uh, it was built in 1911, but it was uh, renovated from dormitories into student housing. You, you have um, a mixed-use building in uh, Ames, Iowa, in East Lansing, Michigan, in College Station, Texas. And so, again, we, we've worked in a lot of neat places. Uh, we've heard a lot of great stories. With, we've heard a lot of concerns everywhere we go. The development process is challenging, and what we do is hard. Um, and, and our neighbors around, I mean, we are impacting people, both good and, and, um, and what could seem as, as bad impacts to people as, as it is a change in, in um, how people do things. So this is this section probably or the beginning is kind of the um, most important part of our presentation, in my opinion. It's just going to set the stage because we had the fortunate ability of doing this once where I was able to hear some of the concerns that I wasn't aware of. So we've taken those concerns and we have um, built a presentation, the rest of the presentation, around those concerns because they are important to address. Uh, we are empathetic of those concerns. They are real concerns, and we are building homes for people. So it's important for us, and we're neighbors. So we understand that there are concerns, and I'm not saying I'm solving them. I'm not saying that they're not important or we're even dismissing them. I'm saying that we have heard them, and we are willing to work with the, the city to uh, do the best that we can to, to, solve, to solve them. So the main uh, concerns that, that we've – I'm going to address uh, the project type, and then I'm going to let uh, some uh, of the other – smart folks that I brought and address the other portions, and then I'll end the presentation with management. Uh, but the community concerns that we heard were project type, height, traffic, amenities, accessibility, safety and security, and management. I mean, these are all, these are all really important things. And so it's important to make sure that within those things we address them. Um, <coughs> so the first <coughs> is the community concerns. What type of project are we proposing? We are proposing a market rate um, multifamily development. The age ranges that we're focusing on, uh, there's, there's obviously fair housing laws and that, that, uh, that we adhere to completely, but the focus of, these is, of this uh, project is 25 to 45. 
but because of how we're building it and where it's built, that really bleeds into 19 to 65. We're going to have families. We're going to have empty nesters. We're going to we're, uh, single mothers. We're going to have uh, college kids. We're going to have a bunch of different folks living throughout this community. And with that, we can provide those amenities that really make this feel like a home for them, uh, not just a residence, to make it feel like a community, to be a good neighbor to the people around us. Um, but also build some pride, not just in what we do, but in their own home. I want people to be proud of the, the place that they live. So our development focus within this is safety and security. And we, we do that through cleanliness. Uh, we do that through being well lit. We do that through um, nice design. And we do that through management. And so management is the ongoing key to what this thing does over time. And we take it super, super serious. Uh, after that, it's timeless design. And then finally, um, that focus leading into being an integrated community partner. But as I said, um, River Caddis is the developer or civil engineer who's going to talk about the site plan. Is Justin Brooks, who's going to talk next. And then we have integrated architecture that's going to talk about the architecture, design, and, and amenities. So I will sit down and I will see you in a few minutes. Hello, Justin Brooks with Way Trim 1403 South Valley Center Drive, Bay City. Um, so, yeah, like John mentioned, I'm the civil engineer in a project, but our team, we actually call ourselves community planners um, because we look at it more than just the engineering. We look at um, how the people move about the community. Um, how we can impact the environment and the neighborhood in a positive way. So we take those things into consideration whenever we're trying to design these developments. And our expertise also, similar to what John was saying with this company, is we do a lot of work here in Michigan, but we also have broad expertise across the nation where we do units and developments like this all over the country. And we really liked working with John because of the fact it's not a cookie-cutter development we're working with. We really look to make this development fit within the community. Okay, so site and surrounding area, I think we're all familiar where it's, uh, with where it's at um, on the corner of Jefferson and East Lawn. But like I said, one of the things we look at is how people move. So I wanted, we put together this aerial kind of just showing some of the amenities that are located within walking distance, within biking distance of this development. That's really, really what helped us drive the design of how we make our sidewalk connections to the sidewalks to East Lawn or Jefferson, how we put the driveways out to see where people are going to be commuting to. And you can see here that, you know, the schools and parks, we have so many of those that are within a mile of the site. And then we have the city of Midland, um, you have the Dow Diamond and some of those other, other entertainment features that are within two miles of the site. So also, as Jacob mentioned earlier, there's a walk, the walk score on this property was extremely surprising to us. We don't see this very often on these type of developments um, of a walk score of 77. So we really took that into consideration. But also the bike score of 61. Um, it's fairly, it's higher than average. Um, it's fairly good. And what bike score looks at is not only the infrastructure, but how the community, how the community looks at biking. Um, so one of the things we looked at on this development is how can we promote biking within our development? 
Uh, so one of the things we showed on our concept plan is things like covered parking for biking as well as bike repair stations to kind of support that biking community to help drive up a bike score in this type of location. So the site plan, um, Jacob already kind of had it up on his presentation, um, but I just want to kind of highlight the process we went through to get here. It wasn't, like I said, it's not a cookie-cutter development. This isn't a development we've done ever, anywhere else. We actually went through multiple iterations until we got to this one, and there was things we were looking at each time we put together an iteration to say how could we make it better. And the main things we were looking at is how can we get the connectivity better? How can we get our residents to have easy access to those um, existing sidewalks along Jefferson and East Lawn? And then how can we have the, give them easy access to their parking? Instead of having a large parking lot that you have to walk across, how can we put everyone's parking near their apartments? So that was a concern. The other big concern we looked at as we went through these iterations is how can we give the most green space that is there are actually amenity spaces. And I'll talk a little bit about the amenities here in the future too, but how can we make green spaces that are within the development that our residents can actually utilize? And it's not just there as like a buffer. And then uh, lastly, the, the last thing of our concern is we thought about this through every iteration was the neighbors to the north. And how can we move our buildings reorganize our development to give the biggest buffer that we can um, and still support the development. And I'll talk a little bit about the buffer here later as well. Uh, so this is the landscape plan. And again, just some of the concepts because uh, the landscape plan doesn't come across till the detail, but just to show that in these, what these green spaces allow us to do, especially in that backyard and the buffer space, um, we can do uh, evergreen buffers, which I'll show a little bit later with the profile, how that can help in these type of situations and that's why in zoning we have the setback pull back more as heights go up um, also some of the green infrastructure uh, you heard about with the stormwater things like rain gardens and bioswales those actually become amenities that people can enjoy um, it's it beautifies the green spaces that are there it's not that people can stay away from them you can see the picture there the one rain garden that uh, was done on a development before it's it's it makes it like gardens but they're, they're also acting as stormwater control. So some of the site amenities we looked at, you know, we're thinking sustainability. So there would be energy efficient lighting, LED lighting, um, EV charging capabilities um, in the parking lots, rain garden, some of that green infrastructure I talked about, that's really related to intentional design landscaping. It's not just there for looks, it also serves a purpose in what it's doing. Um, and then some of the resident community features in those green space areas are things like, you know, gathering areas, outdoor grills, a dog park, pavilions, and connectivity to the rest of the neighborhood features. So I want to talk a little bit about the community concerns first one, starting with the building height. And um, when we did start to look at this design under RB1, as Jacob mentioned, where we could actually build a building up to five stories or higher than that, and we looked at considerations like that. But then we looked at, well, how can we give the biggest diversity of housing for this area but make it more of a mid-rise? So that's where we came up with kind of our three-story and giving this 60-foot setback. And I do want to mention that the 60-foot setback is to the property line. 
So we also did look that the average residence on Princeton Court is an additional 50 feet off the property line to the back of their structure. So the distance between our structure and, their, and the residence over there would be approximately 110 feet minimum, um, some, most times even more than that. So I just wanted to show with that kind of profile, you can kind of see on the bottom that having distance setback between buildings and having buffers really do help. There was some talk before about as well, well, it's going to take 50 years for these trees to mature enough to be a buffer. Well, whatever we set our evergreen buffers 60 feet away from a structure and you're in that sight line, that tree doesn't need to maintain the height of the building to interrupt that sight line. So a lot of the evergreens that we place in these types of buffers, things like a cypress or an um, um, arborbite, or sorry, I'm saying it wrong. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> they, you can see growth rates of three to five feet a year. So within a couple of years, you can have the buffer required for these areas. Okay, so the other thing we heard was you're bringing in all this parking and all of these units, how is it going to affect our traffic? And this is the one thing I really want to highlight on, um, and I'll bring out my engineering nerd here, is that when we look at traffic impacts, it's not really related to parking. It's more related to how many units are there, and we look at trip generation. So it's not when, it's not how many cars are in the lot. It's when those cars are on the road because a traffic impact happens during our morning rush hour and our evening rush hour. So it's actually a misconception that apartment buildings with their large parking lots create the biggest traffic impact. They actually create less traffic impact than single family home, commercial, schools. Um, I have up there, if you look at a 204 apartment like we're proposing, that is the equivalent trips of 125 single family homes. So 125 single family development. So the way we do that is through trip generation uh, calculators. And we look at data based on developments like this in the region and all across the country. And we pull those data points and I, we did the data analysis for this development. And in the AM, we would have 86 trips would be our peak traffic impact. So that is how many cars you would see in one hour between the peak rush hour of 7 a.m. to 9 a.m. And then on the p.m. trip side, that's 108 trips. And you can see that's also broken out to 68 coming in, 40 going out. So it's not one direction. And that also splits onto both East Lawn and Jefferson. So those, those impacts are even less to each street. And um, so that's pretty... I don't want to say it's insignificant, but we also looked at what a school, like I said, the equivalency compared to a school. A school the size of East Lawn Elementary that was there puts out significantly higher trips than what this development would during the peak rush hours. They were putting out well over 100 in the a.m. and the p.m. Um, so it's just a misconception that I kind of wanted to get across that it's not really related to how many parking spaces are there. It's how the people are making trips. And especially because of the walkability score of this development being 77, I, I don't even anticipate them would be, they would be that high um, because of the walkability. Oh, and then I also just want to mention, um, looking at the GIS data that's uh, on Midland, Midland's GIS <coughs> database, 
If you look at the daily traffic counts for East Lawn and Jefferson over the past decade, have had significant reductions in traffic count. What you see on East Lawn today, I think in 2022, was 2,116, and in 2007, it was 3,900. So these roads were designed in a way that they can handle more significant traffic. Um, and then I also want to highlight, because we don't have it shown on the plan, but this is a consideration we are making as we develop the site plan further, um, is ADA-compliant development. Um, one thing that makes this site nice is how flat it is. So we can make ADA-accessible routes to all of these amenities that we talked about. And when we look at that, that includes ADA barrier-free parking spaces, like you see up there giving space for wheelchair access um, for both cars and for both vans. Those will be proposed for each building location. And then also all the sidewalks and the crosswalks within the development would be um, meeting the requirements to be an ADA-accessible route. And now I will pass it over to Mike to talk a little bit about architecture. Good evening, Mayor and Council Members. Uh, Mike Corby, Integrated Architecture, 840 Ottawa, Grand Rapids, Michigan. Um, Thanks for your sustainability here. Um, I just, we got introduced to River Cadis, I think, because I think when you're in the, the business that we are, you, you kind of cross paths have, uh, with companies that have similar kind of aspirations. And we really focus on housing. Uh, we do housing around the country, similar to Wade Trim uh, and Justin's company, but our main focus is, is in Michigan. So we're doing work in the Detroit area, the Flint area, Traverse City, uh, Grand Rapids, the coast. Um, so our paths have crossed in many instances, but uh, we really focus on, I'm a, an architect and a land planner, so I don't just look at the unit I'm doing, I look at how the unit is in the context of the development that we're working on. So focus a lot on community and neighborhood and livability and just the health of the residents. So our firm also happens to be a strong leader in sustainability. So. Again, all of these things go hand in hand to kind of create really nice uh, residential projects. So I'm going to talk a little bit about four things. Um, I want to focus on accessibility to tag on a little bit of what Justin was talking about. Some of the features that we're going to be imbuing in the project on the sustainability front. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about some of the features and then um, the exterior design. Um, as uh, Justin said, our site is flat so that all of our buildings will be accessible and one-third of our units will be uh, accessible at grade. Uh, all of our units will be type B units, which um, will have features in them that um, are more conducive to, um, you know, accessibility and things of that nature and also provide the ability for features to be added if we if a resident is there that needs um, some features. So just uh, making sure that uh, bathrooms have the ability to add grab bars and things like that. Those are all the type B units. We'll also have type A units, which are actually ADA units. Those will have a lot of features um, related to just space to maneuver, uh, the types of ergonomics that you would want, uh, countertop heights, the ability for uh, an individual, for instance, in a wheelchair to be able to get to certain things, 
turning radius uh, in all rooms, not just uh, you know certain areas. And we we also look at features that kind of go a little bit beyond ADA in terms of our kitchen design, so we don't create dead end type situations in kitchens. So you've got more maneuverability uh, as it relates to just um, those kinds of things. But um, a difference in an AD unit from a regular unit, for instance, uh, the washers and dryers would be side by side, for instance, instead of stacked for height uh, requirements. So really focus a lot on just making sure um, ADA issues are addressed as well as other kind of universal design type issues. So an individual who uses a wheelchair on a daily basis could live in one of those units? The, the type A units, yes. Yeah, Absolutely. I don't mean, yeah, I don't mean every belt. single one. I just mean, in, you know, there right. was one. Um, yes, the, our experience is the, the great thing that we have in the state of Michigan is the barrier-free uh, advocates have elevated the required number of units for type A Sorry. much higher than they typically the demand is, and it's, it's awesome. I mean, we, we, we always have an available ADA unit uh, in developments typically. So I think it's um, the state has kind of risen the level of our um, accommodation for that population, so I think it's great. Thanks. Um, on the sustainability front, again, our firm, uh, we were one of the top firms uh, when, when LEED was kind of a big thing. Our firm was one of the biggest actually in the nation. Was, we were the number one in the state of Michigan, but we've kind of taken that. We continue that on all our projects, and again, just as the accessibility bar has been risen, you know, lead and other kind of green building rating systems have kind of raised the standards. But we, we kind of go above and beyond, and this project isn't going to be any different. Um, you can see Justin's firm, just in terms of walkability, the rain gardens, uh, the exterior will also have light LED light fixtures. I think that actually came up as a, as a comment from the neighbors. Um, they'll have light cutoffs so that you won't get light pollution shining into uh, other sites. Uh, you saw, you know, shade trees, which help reduce heat islands uh, and, again, uh, maintain better uh, microclimates in the development. Our units themselves will be energy efficient. Um, again, these relate to just kind of maintenance type, type of issues, low VOCs, which um, may not mean a lot to everybody, but it means just the off-gassing that will be in the units, so the, the care that we're looking at with materials and finishes so that the interior and, uh, environments are healthier. LED light fixtures, again, lower use of energy, low flow plumbing fixtures, lower use of water, and also the units will all incorporate natural ventilation. Getting into the units themselves, uh, that was brought up earlier tonight, we will not have any studios. And what John's company has gravitated towards and what we found is nobody really wants a studio they choose a studio because it's the lowest cost of entry typically most people would prefer to have one bedroom so what they've done and what we've determined to be a better approach is they have what we call the junior which might have been uh, confusing as to what that is but it's basically a small one bedroom and so what they have are they have six will have six unit types only one and two bedroom units, but uh, in order to kind of address diversity and uh, price points, we have three different sizes of one bedrooms and three sizes of two bedrooms. So, you know, if you want a little bit more space, you can pay a little bit more rent and you can have the space that you need. But it's not 
you, have, you can have this or that, and you don't have anything in between. So they've got a graduated type of uh, accommodation for different unit sizes. So there are no studios. All the kitchens are full kitchens with full-size appliances, energy star rated. Um, we have ample storage in the units. As it relates to uh, the unit types that we do, we do a lot of uh, workforce housing, affordable housing, and we've focused a little bit more on smaller unit sizes. Again, I would characterize the, the units that we're doing with, with John uh, as a little bit more accommodating. They're a little bit larger, a little bit more storage in them than we're not kind of trying to get the smallest unit, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Okay, but I, I want, you just said affordable housing. This is not affordable housing. This though. is not affordable housing. Okay. The way we address affordability, let's call it, is just by having some different size units. So okay. if, you, if you don't want to pay X amount, uh, but you still want to be in the community, there's a smaller unit potentially available for you. The, uh, all units will have in-suite uh, in laundry, so every unit will have a washer-dryer. As I said, the ADA will have side-by-side. -side, uh, the typical unit will have stacked. Uh, durable finishes on the inside, that's for maintainability, but also just, you know, it's a good kind of long-term approach um, for cleanliness and things of that nature. Uh, John's firm will, will have a, a security um, system on site. Again, just to kind of, again, the, the concerns that the residents are going to have are, are, you know, security, cleanliness, and uh, things of that nature. So uh, there will be a community lounge in that one-story building that's on the corner. Uh, that'll be kind of the social hub for uh, our development proper, but as, as Justin mentioned, the, the community is really the amenity. So the, the, the center across the street or Kitty Corner, as well as all the other amenities in the area are are going to be uh, great features for this development. And then there will be exterior parking, bike parking, as well as there will be some covered parking within uh, the stair areas of each building. The last thing I'll talk about is the architectural design. Uh, River Cadis does like to kind of thematically look at what uh, is more appropriate. Um, uh, Everyone's familiar with Alden B. Dow. Kind of, he was a uh, Frank Lloyd Wright uh, aficionado, and he kind of followed that. So we we picked us we picked a style that was more um, prairie style in terms of the lower roof form, a little bit deeper uh, overhangs. Again, just to be something that was unique to what um, they do and unique to the Midland area. Uh, durable, low maintenance exteriors. So we're looking at familiar residential materials, siding. Uh, we'll probably have some masonry at the entranceways for maintenance, but again, uh, very residential in nature and, you know, insulated residential windows operating uh, for ventilation, as I said, and in the design that I'll show you here. Um, our concern is making sure it's, it's nice to look at. Um, so the residential, any equipment for the mechanical units will be kind of tucked on the roof. You can see those little um, pockets on the roof there so that you won't see them. Uh, you won't, the things that I don't like are when you're kind of around the developments, you're seeing all these uh, things that you don't want to see, like uh, compressors and things like that. So that gets the noise out of the way. It gets them visually out of the way, and I think it's a, it's a great strategy. But this is a kind of a bird's-eye view showing um, some of the, uh, the roof forms, and then I've, I've also added some images in the, in the uh, development itself. I think... Justin's strategy to kind of have not big parking lots and having the buildings feel more like they're 
uh, you've got a nicer relationship between the car or the, the vehicle and then the, the walkway and then the building. So you feel it doesn't feel like a suburban development. That's a view of the proposed um, community center. Again, a strong fo focus on so uh, walkability, sociability, and uh, really think this is going to be a beautiful option, housing option in the in the city. So, thank you very much. Thank you. Last slide, mm -hmm. I promise. I think. Um, just quickly to cover some of. Uh, what both Mike and Justin said, um, we are also owners. We build these projects like we're going to own them for a very long time. So it's very important, the intentionality of the design of the interior, the structure, the appliances, that we're not building this and flipping it to someone. We're operating it. We're managers as well. right? So we um, have... Uh, our internal team has spent a lot of time managing, but we also bring in um, either local or national management teams that we interview the person, not the firm, that's going to be operating this community. Right? We're going to have on-site management. They're going to be there during business hours. Now, that could also lead into uh, someone that lives on-site. Um, now, it's, it's not always the case. Sometimes those the most qualified and best person to do the job has family and wants to live in a house in 20 minutes away. And that's great. We have the most qualified person. Um, but we also have the 24-hour maintenance availability. So if something goes wrong, if there's a problem, uh, if there's a problem with your apartment, if you get locked out, uh, if you get locked out of your car, if you something happens, right? And it, things happen when, when we live places, right? So we have 24 typically have 24-hour maintenance availability. And then by having on-staff, on-site management, those folks, and, and on-site uh, maintenance, those folks walk the facility every day. This place has to be clean. It, it monitors parking. It monitors how people are keeping their unit from the outside. We also monitor uh, many times a year, or multiple times a year, what the insides of these units look like to keep the design integrity to make sure that the building's not being destroyed, that if it's on the top floor and somebody's not handling their unit great, um, I don't want the people below to be affected by it. So we take a very thoughtful approach all the way through from the very first time we see a piece of soil all the way to how we operate this facility. It's very thoughtful. We're not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but we've learned a lot and we can utilize that going forward. And finally, we have a, a strong application and approval process that, that checks backgrounds, that checks credit. Uh, and then that person that we hire that also has the leasing staff, we interview them and we make sure that they are qualified, that they have a good gut when they meet people for the first time and they understand. So there's a lot of stuff in here and I, I just knew that there, there is a potential for a lot of questions, so we put a lot in this. Um, I'm available for questions on the whole thing. We also have Justin and Mike. Justin for site questions and uh, Mike for des any design questions. But thanks for having us this late. And
Very good. Well, thank you so much. You know, what we'll do is we'll open it up to public comment, and then you guys will be here. Any questions we have for you, we will do that when you have an opportunity to respond after we hear any of the public comments, if that's okay. Great. Thank okay, you. Perfect. All right. So, again, this is a public hearing. If anyone has public comment, please come up to the podium, stand on the blue mat, um, state your name and address, and then talk to us. Jones, I'm at 114 Princeton Court here in Midland. Um, the court butts up north to the north side of that. I've measured out the property. I actually am a project manager for a residential builder uh, here in the area. 60 feet for three stories high is, is you know, from the property line is really invasive. I know that they can go shorter, but in this neighborhood, the property is already, that they're building on is already five foot higher than most of our backyards. I'm one of the few that I have no trees blocking any. My, my site is wide open, wide open. Um, there's no amount of landscaping that you could build to fix that. Um, my other concern is the path that leads to Princeton Court. Our street is 24 feet wide. If you park two cars on each side of the road, an ambulance or a truck, or a regular truck barely can fit in, but an ambulance or a fire truck, there's not enough room. A fire truck's 10 foot wide, ambulance is almost as wide, but they can't fit through. I'm here tonight to, I mean, th this is 204 units. With that little of parking or that much of parking, they would be parking down our court. Um, we have the baseball field there. That's additional parking for three, four months of the year. We have the community center who's currently using that for the next year or two. We have the new pickleball courts. Um, the traffic study, um, I'd like to see where the data's coming from, what traffic study they're, they're using for that. Um, if you notice, it's Pathfinder Commons over here. I worked on those. Those aren't even as tall as these buildings would be. And they look really evasive on, on the streets. You know, if that was put in a, we are in a residential neighborhood. East Lawn might look like a busy road there, but right in our backyard, it, it's, it's too much. It's, it's a lot. It's a lot. Um, like I said, you would not be able to get down our street if they use their street. We actually have a business on our street also that they only use, uh, they can only park in the street for that. So there's multiple cars parked, and it's—I mean—it's already a, you know, pretty hard to get down that street. There's a business on your street. Yes. And so it, it's already hard getting down there when there's cars parked, and they can only use the street. They can't park in the driveway there. So um, that's multiple days a week. Um, I'm just—I'm trying to figure out. I've been, like I said, I've been here for 14, 15 years. I can't. There, 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 there would just be no privacy. All kinds of light pollution, everything else. I could see if they scaled it back, being smaller. I'm all for change, but this is, I mean, this is really invasive to this, you know, this side of town. We have a 50, I think you guys just approved a 50-unit one that, you know, eventually we have one um, coming up down the street by the post office. I'm not sure how many units that is. Somebody else has a lot more of the data. Um, there's a lot. 
a lot of apartments, a lot of everything in that neighborhood. So I'm just trying to figure out, you brought up earlier that you can't see any way that property values go down. I just like a little bit of privacy, and I mean, this would be very invasive, no matter how big a trees you set. Um, I've been trying to put up a privacy fence. If you drive by the site, and I said I'm, only, I'm one of the only ones with zero trees, but I was told by Mr. Branson that um, Midland Public Schools sort of gets a pass on they didn't have to turn in a drainage plan. So when they tore down the school, all of the water from the school was coming in my backyard, flooded my backyard numerous times. So what they do, they built a berm that's on their side. If I put a six-foot privacy fence up with that berm there, because I've asked them to remove it multiple times, you'd be able to stand on that berm and just hop over. A child could do it because the berm is so high. The property is already five foot higher than mine, and then you have the berm also. So I'm trying to make this right. I don't know how to tell my son that we might have to leave this town because of this. All his friends and teammates, because we can't afford another place in Midland at these prices. I mean, we came to Midland never thinking we'd be able to buy a house here. We found a house in our price range, and I don't think we'd ever be able to find another one. And I mean, that it's really invasive, not just the, the light, but three stories high. I said taller than Pathfinder across the street. So, but that's about all I have. Okay, thank, thank you. you very much. Lacey will pull it up. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to show you some safety concerns that we have regarding the wait, river cabin. Oh, wait, wait, wait. You need to okay. give your I, name and address okay. right, and stand on the blue man, too. Sorry, okay. it's okay. late. I apologize. Okay. Uh, my name's Jennifer, and I live at 313 Princeton Court. Last okay, I need your last name. F as in Frank, E-R-R-E-N. 313 Princeton? 313. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Okay. Um, this is what River Caddis is developing. Um, I just kind of want to have you look at the picture. If you drive down Eastlawn, this is not at all what Eastlawn looks like. Um, this is my first slide. You just left click. Oh, left click. Okay, perfect. So they mentioned a traffic study, but a realistic traffic study in the area. Has there been a traffic study to done to see if this area can withstand an increase of over 406 plus cars with there's only one in intersection it's at Eastlawn and Jefferson and they were mentioning that they were going to put in um, a driveway on on Jefferson while Princeton Court and Eastlawn it's it's so short condensed if they put that driveway out onto Eastlawn if people turn left they're going to be sitting under the intersection practically there's really nowhere for them to really go if they pull out of the development. Um, it's just a really condensed area with one traffic light. Um, additional traffic pressures from neighboring developments in Greater Midland will surely have an impact with congestion during drive peak times. Um, they will be feeding onto Jefferson and Eastlawn as well. Um, River Caddis development is projecting 406 parking spaces for the Eastlawn property. With no assigned parking within their complex, where is the overflow parking going to go? Um, is there sufficient on-street parking 
available within the neighborhood to allow overflow without taking away from the current residents. That's, I mean, that's a huge concern. Because when East Lawn School used to be in session, everybody would park on East Lawn. Now people still park on East Lawn from the homes that are across from East Lawn right now. And this is an image from my car coming home after picking my daughter up from school. You can see there's a, a truck parked and you can see me coming down the road and then you can see a few cars parked a little bit down the road. If two cars are parked side by side on our Princeton court, you can see I can barely, I, I would barely be able to get down my own road. Um, so parking is currently allowed on both sides of the court. The court is 24 inches wide, 24 feet wide, I apologize. If two vehicles are parked on each side of the road, there's only roughly 16 inches to 16 feet left at the least. Um, we currently have people that currently park on our street for events at the Greater Midland Community Center, as well as Fraternal Little League and our homeowners. A fire truck is roughly 102 inches wide, feet wide. It will not be able to get down our court if cars are parked on both sides of the court. An ambulance is about 96 feet wide. It will not be able to get down the court. Uh, we do have a small business on the court and the customers do currently park on the court. Fraternal Northwest Little League is the oldest in the state. Their season typically is April through June. They have a game every weeknight. The field is used every day and on weekends for practices. Typically on average, Monday through, you know, there's about 45 to maybe 80 cars at each game, they currently park on East Lawn, or what you can see in the picture there, they park in the parking lot. They will park in the apartment complex because they're going to need parking too. Um, I did reach out to Scott McGregor, Little League. Um, he's the president, um, and he is aware that Little League is losing a field. Um, so Mr. Shero said that Little League wouldn't lose a field, but because of River Caddis development, they are losing a field. Um, and this you know, that's, that's a concern for the community. Um, the Little League, because they're losing the field, are they going to also lose the parking lot that's sitting there? Or will that just be left to the Little League to use for the season? So that's a big, you know, big issue for that area. Where, where's everybody going to park at when baseball season's going on? Um, so they mentioned that there's going to be 204 units. Um, there's a, they're guessing... Around 144 one bedrooms is what I calculated based on this stuff. Um, and there are 62 bedrooms. Um, what percentage of the units are slated for low income? Is it gonna be market value? Does this mean the state will subsidize the difference the renter cannot afford to pay? Um, income based, subsidized, or is it actually market value? So I went out and I mapped all the communities from the East Lawn property. So Cleveland Manor is right across the street. There's 189 units there. Um, for like low income elderly residents, they're allowed to have cars. That's 0 0.1 mile from the East Lawn property. Midland Manor is directly across the street down on East Lawn. There's 64 units around about 100 cars. It's 0 0.3 miles from the East Lawn property. 
Green Hill Apartments has 214 units. Um, I called them. They said every resident is allowed to have a car. Um, that's 0 0.5 miles away. Um, Cherry View Condos, they're right next to They're right next to Cleveland Manor. Um, there's a, maybe around 33 units. Um, that's about 0 0.3 miles from Eastlawn. Um, Wingate Village Apartments, about 24 units. They're about 0 0.2 miles of the future developed property. Uh, we just heard about Andy's place, um, the development that's maybe going to go in. Um, if that goes in, that's another 50-unit development, possibly maybe 59 parking spots. Um, Leanne Apartments is next to Green Hill, roughly about 24 apartments. That's 0 0.6 miles from Eastlawn. Um, so there typically will be over 745 units within 7, 0 0.7 miles of each other. I mean, I, I know traffic will immensely be congested at times. Um, the next slide um, is a future development property that has been possibly going to be developed. Um, it hasn't been developed yet, but I don't know what the plans are for the future for this property, but it's supposed to possibly go behind Domino's. Um, this is projected 50-unit low-income property that the, possibly the city is planning to build. Will this traffic also feed out onto Jefferson? Um, it could be another four, another 100 cars within less than a block of adding 406 cars at the East Lawn development. Um, that would also make traffic congested. Safety concerns. What background screening will be done to ensure that sex offenders and criminals are not allowed into the complex? Crossing guards added to the area during school open and closure to ensure added safety for the added volume of kids that will be walking to school and the current kids that currently walk to CPE in Midland High. Environmental concerns. The electric grid. Um, I live on Princeton Court. Most I, I lose power a lot, so that you know that is kind of concerning. Um, there's currently most of the people on the north side of Princeton already have many drain problems as Fred mentioned. So that's very concerning. Um, they've mentioned that they're gonna develop the property for them, for the residents of future use, but what about the current residents that already have problems? I don't think those problems have been addressed. Um, the proximity of surrounding apartments currently, um, has that ever been taken into consideration of how that will affect everybody else in the area? Also light pollution from the complex. Most of the homes on Princeton Court have at least two bedrooms that face the north side of the property. So what is the plan for all of, all of the residents that face that side? If, if the units are going to be three stories high and they're going to tower over, you know, that side of the, the residential homes, that's very concerning. Sorry. <laughs> Okay, lightning and fencing on Princeton Court. What is the plan for the parking lot lightning in the complex? Will this cause light pollution to existing homes? Like I mentioned, most of the homes on the north side have at least two bedrooms that will face the complex. What privacy screening 
and safety barriers will be put in place along the Princeton Court properties. Will work be done to repair the grade problems to prevent flooding into the residential homes? Um, I would like to request River Caddis to build a high fence wall for privacy and safety. A brick fence wall that is eight feet tall that backs up the entire back row of the property owner's homes on Princeton Court at the expense of River Caddis. Um, request that buildings to be only two stories high facing the north side of homeowner's property on Princeton Court. Commercial brick privacy fencing that is eight feet tall for safety. If trees are put in also, only tall mature trees for privacy and safety. And the last thing I'd like to mention, I live at the end of the court. There's a walkway that, that used to be utilized by students that went to East Lawn. It went from East Lawn, it goes through our court, and it goes to Dartmouth. Now, they're mentioning walkability, walkability, but we live on a court. So, honestly, I am a mom with an 11-year-old daughter. The last that I want is a bunch of people I don't know walking through my court at any time of the day. I would love to see that walkway closed, and that was mentioned in the summer of 2021 when we had the city meeting at the East Lawn property with Shero and many of the other people that were at that meeting. That was a residential concern, is to close that walkway. I mean, I don't know about you, but you know, I mean, it, it would cause many more problems. Could be future, you know, crimes, you know, you don't know, but I would love for that walkway to be closed. <coughs> and that's the end of my presentation. Thank, Thank you. you very much. <laughs> okay, is there any other public comment? Hi, I'll make this very quick. Um, I'm Linda Barr. My address is 2431 Damon Drive. And this wonderful woman just stole two-thirds of what I brought to you tonight. So I was going to go real quick, okay? So uh, first of all, I'm here tonight because I live in the area, but also because due to my real estate background, my former clients and others who live in the neighborhood wanted to at least make a case for not approving the Eastland Project. The planning department passed this through without asking a single relevant question of the developer that seems to be pertinent to the project this size. Even though many of the longtime neighbors in the area believed the school property would remain vacant, obviously that's not the case. The proposed 204 unit complex will change the dynamic of the neighborhood, so should be critically scrutinized by the council as opposed to just giving it a blanket approval. I'm not naive enough to believe that this property will not be developed. I know better. I am, however, concerned that the current plan does not fit the parameters of even the city's own rules. In addition, why a three-story structure? There can only be one reason based on need, and it's monetary. Here are some of the reasons and concerns that I have. Um, she mentioned a few of them. First of all, it appears the developer is requesting a change to the setback requirements, which will make the units along Jefferson and uh, East Lawn quite close to the sidewalk. Um, the three-story buildings along East Lawn and Jefferson appear to be more than, not more than maybe five feet from the sidewalk, more like an office building concept rather than a housing complex. Reducing the number of parking spots from 406 to 265, which is the number I had from the last meeting at planning, um, would reduce, that the, would base, the developer basically would 
eliminating 141 spots, in essence, okay? Now, I just learned tonight after reading the thing from the planning department that the things that were called efficiency in that last report are actually one-bedroom apartments. Even using that as an example, it's assuming that the people in the one-bedroom units would be only having one car. Well, if someone's married, there's two people there, if they each have a car, that's going to dramatically increase the number of vehicles that can fit in then on the space that they have allotted. As far as using the parking along East Lawn, uh, they're saying there's about 25 spots there. They are only daytime spots. You can't park there at night. And quite often, people on the other side of the street will use that as, as excess parking as well. So I don't think they can rely on those 25 spots to take off any of the uh, the, 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 the need there. Uh, another concern is what kind of research was completed that indicated a need for uh, another large market-rate apartment complex in this area. Just because something can be done doesn't mean it has to be done. There are currently, and I, I, my, my scope goes a little bit further than hers, I went all the way down to Waldo as the corridor down East Lawn. There's currently 1,421 apartment units along East Lawn from Waldo to Jefferson, not even considering the 118 condos or any of the duplexes or single-family um, residences that are, that are rentals. Eight of the 11 non-condo complexes would also be at market rate which would be anywhere from 900 to $1,400 a month um, based on the current market and, and the amenities that they have provide. Probably the one that most compares to what they're trying to do is Brooks, which is on the corner of where Parkdale School used to be in that area. Um, vacancy rate is how investors often decide whether to invest in multi-unit properties. The lower the rate, the better the investment, as a lower rate indicates fewer vacancies. Investors typically look for rates that are 3% or below. That means that there's an, an enough traveling back and forth that they aren't going to worry about their property sitting there un, un, uh, unrented. A recent online search of Midland County shows the vacancy rate between 4 and 5.6%, less desirable to most investors. What will happen to the existing market if another 204 units are added? Will folks just jump ship for the shiny new object and leave other units vacant, causing the, the increase again in the vacancy rate? I believe some time ago there was an apartment complex um, approved, and it sounds like from what she said that that is, is a planned development over by the post office. So that will be an additional um, burden of, of new properties on the market for people to buy. I did just bring up, this is... I mean, it looks like we were both doing a lot of research here, but I did make calls. I don't know if you can – am I supposed to do that that way? Sorry. Now, I'm not sure you'll even be able to see it, but I went through and did a, kind of a study on a lot of the apartments that are in the area, and I did put on the – it's not going to come up, right? Okay. Oh, yeah, you probably won't be able to see it. I'm sorry. Anyway, the uh, on the right-hand, far right-hand side, there's a double asterisk, and those are the properties that are in that um, – corridor along East Lawn Drive. And you'll notice that the rates are all over the place, but, um, and there are some units in there that are subsidized units. Um, Green Hill, of course, has some subsidy, and, and they have income requirements there. But the majority of those ones, especially the ones near the top, are market rate. And it's all over the board. But if you look, the ones that are the high-end properties, the ones that are newer or whatever, are actually at a much high, you know, the 900 to 1300 rate is pretty common up there. That, is, that by the way, is not um, affordable housing. 
If you call, if you call the affordable housing people, they say, no, our people, we're lucky if they can five, you know, afford five or $600. So they're looking for something that's more affordable. So um, I just wanted to point those things out. And, you know, my final comment, I guess, is it's important that the residents in the neighborhood need to feel that the council cares about them and that they are concerned about what this kind of a complex to do to their lifestyle. Um, things like this always seem to end up in areas where there are, you know, properties that are, um, let's say, less than the highest value in Midland County. So just we would hope that you would look at look it over and decide that whether or not this makes good sense for this area. Or could another thing be put there that would be just as sensible. It doesn't sound like this, the uh, school board, I talked to Mr. Sharrow today, it doesn't sound like the school board made the effort to go out and find this this uh, development, but it actually was initiated by the, the groups in, this, in the city and the investors. So anyway, that's my comment. Okay? All right. Thank you very much. Good. Way past my bedtime. I don't know about yours. <laughs> my alarm went off at 9.20. It said, go to bed, go to bed. Well, I'm Brandy Brown. I uh, live at 118 Princeton Court. Uh, my husband and I are probably the newest people to come on uh, the Princeton Court Drive. Uh, we purchased our home in July of 2021. So kind of at a fun time where we're overpaying by thousands of dollars for our house. And when I say thousands, my house is probably only worth about... 95 we paid almost 120 for our house so we're in a predicament now where we overpaid for our house we're getting ready to get this huge beast of an apartment complex put up right behind us i'm one of those people that are right to the north of the property so this is affecting pretty much my day-to-day -day. um you guys all heard the beautiful little girl here um i appreciate your patience with that uh we're newer to midland we actually relocated here from grand rapids um, I have a seven-year-old, almost eight-year-old stepson um, who is actually somebody who uses those baseball fields, right, that are behind us. Uh, my husband is a volunteer uh, baseball coach. Um, he spent the summer on both of those fields, um, and we're kind of heartbroken that we're getting ready to lose one with this new property getting built. Um, we are somebody who is bleed sports. He actually uh, coached uh, football as well on the field that is getting ready to be torn down. Um, right behind us to be put up these big beautiful apartment complexes um, like the last lady said I'm not naive I understand this is getting built whether we want it or not um, but I am a realist to know that I'm a taxpayer I uh, pay my taxes diligently I pay my water I pay my whatever I got to pay everything gets paid um, so I know that my feelings should be heard. My husband's feelings should be heard. Our neighborhood should be heard. Um, Councilwoman uh, Wilhelm, you asked how many people actually received that letter. Um, during the summer, not many people received that letter. Uh, Fred, who spoke earlier, and I cased the area. We handed out papers. Hey, guess what's getting built in? We had over 100 people show up to that meeting over the summer. The, uh, the letters that went out a couple weeks ago for the meeting in early December same kind of a thing nobody received those letters and unfortunately we picked a hell of a time to do this right around Christmas COVID is picking back up uh, so we weren't able to go out and case the city as much as we'd like to have people here this affects way more people than just that 300 feet radius 300 feet is not huge by any means when they say 60 feet that's probably from the end of that room to the end of this room it's not huge by any means 
Um, like I said, we have a little girl who, when, when we purchased the house, we wanted out of the apartment complex building. Believe me, I love having my floor shoveled every single day for me. I like having my lawn mowed for me. I like not having to do the extra stuff that becomes <laughs> a house owner. But I had a girl. I had a little daughter. I have a son who wants to go outside and play in his backyard. We have a trampoline. We have a swing set. We have a little pool. I have a garden. I want to be outside in my bathing suit, not wondering about who's three story up looking at my bottom or who's looking at my daughter while she's getting out of her pool and her diaper or my son be outside comfortably, not wondering who might trespass it into my backyard. And we don't have a privacy fence right now. Um, as friend mentioned, flooding is a huge issue um, and not in the ratio that you guys think of when we say Midland flooding. It's not my house isn't covered. But it becomes a swamp-like area in the back. So it's hard for us to invest in um, fencing. And it's just hard for us to invest in our home right now. We need new windows. But are we going to stay at this property long enough to really invest in new windows when we already paid for what we what we did? Do we need to really put in a privacy fence? Are we going to stay there long enough? So the ups and downs of this property is it's, it's horrible for us. We, uh, one of the things that Grant, who was, um, I apologize, I'm going to probably mess up his job title, but the things that he said during the summer was, this is an open discussion. We want to hear what you guys want here. And I did a lot of research um, on Ask Midland. I don't know if you guys are Facebook junkies like me, but when I'm putting my baby to sleep, that's what I'm scrolling. And you see so many people looking for houses. Hey, anybody getting ready to put up a two-bedroom two house for sale? Anybody getting ready to do two-bedroom anything this? I don't ever hear anything about one-bedroom properties. I hear two bedrooms, two bedrooms, two bedrooms, two bedrooms. Of the volumes that they're putting in, only 60 of those units are two bedrooms. How many people do you know right now that is looking for a one-bedroom apartment? Even a single mom wants her privacy. Maybe she can't afford it, <laughs> but she wants her privacy. Uh, you know, even a married couple wants their privacy. What if their mom wants to come and visit? People are looking for two-bedroom units, and that's not what we're going to get here. Um, so there's just a lot of concerns. I'm really... Privacy is huge for us. You know, the resale of our house is going to be huge for us. Um, I know you guys said that property value isn't going to dip, but <laughs> would you want to buy a house with that in your backyard? I wouldn't. If I would have known this was going in, we would have been in our apartment complex longer because we're essentially an extension to that apartment complex. So we appreciate you guys hearing us, hearing our concerns. I invite you to tabletop this. Come to my backyard. Put yourself in there. I'll serve you a cocktail or some tea or coffee, whatever you do. Um, I, I invite you to come see it. As Fred mentioned, it is five feet higher than what we are currently sitting at. So those 20 or however tall it is. I'm sorry. It's my brain is scrambled eggs right now. Um, but those are an extra five feet. So their graphs are beautiful. These apartments are beautiful, but why can't we scale it back to two bedroom or two stories? It's just, it does not fit that environment. These people are single family ranch style houses. It does not fit that area. So if you haven't been there, I encourage you, our councilman, I encourage you to come visit it and fight for your people because we voted you it. So thank you for listening. Thank you. My name is Cecilia Dooley. I live at um, 501 East Nelson. Um, there's been a lot of concern about the people on Princeton Court and their privacy. But what about the people who live on Jefferson and East Lawn and they look out their front window and they see this three-story building? There's no three-story building on that in that area. They're all one story, maybe a story and a half. None of them are prairie-style houses. They're Cape Cods. What's being built doesn't even match 
what's in the area. So two story, but three stories is just, just too big. That's all. Okay, thank you very much. Good evening, uh, Council and Madam Mayor. Uh, again, Grant Marshall, 2119 Baylor Street, speaking on behalf of the Housing Task Force. Um, I didn't speak at the last one really who the Housing Task Force is, but we are a collection of um, real estate, um, banking um, professionals, um, nonprofit professionals, as well as folks within development and philanthropy. Um, we've continued to meet since the 2018 housing analysis, pointed out the housing needs within Midland. Uh, we knew we had a shortage of housing units at that time. We knew we also had economic development issues and neighborhood concerns where there was lack of investment in neighborhoods like the one being talked about this evening. Um, the housing task force, though, we are supportive of this project being market rate. A lot of times we get kind of characterized as being just affordable advocates, but we think market rate is also a very good thing in order to balance out the housing ecosystem in Midland, especially when you're thinking about housing choice. We don't have a lot of different types of housing choice when it comes to places that are walkable or apartment complexes that are being designed with the intentionality, intentionality that we've heard from the development or the developer. Um, if you also look at the context of this neighborhood, we highlighted in our statement of support really the other investments that have taken place. And we think this is an asset that could um, build on top of those investments. So the brand new community center, the renovations at Cleveland Manor, um, other apartment complexes have, have been talked about. This is really all balancing in order to create an ecosystem that creates housing opportunities for all life um, stages, all income uh, levels within Midland. When we look at a lot of the um, data that's been done since 2018, we also have to take into consideration things like the We Hear You Task Force that looked at housing and identified the need for additional housing within the community as something that's important and needs to be addressed um, in a greater way within the community. Um, when we hear from folks like the Midland Business Alliance that also support, uh, submitted a letter of support talking about the need for economic development and the critical um, importance of having, having additional housing within Midland in order to meet economic development needs in the community. That is still an ongoing reality that we have too. So um, the Housing Task Force does speak um, in support and would encourage your support of the PUD this evening. Thank you. Elizabeth Thomas, 111 Princeton Court. Um, <clears throat> So I was at the last meeting um, because I was under the impression that if it got pulled from consent agenda, it would be discussed. But that last meeting, there was a two-hour discussion about whether one-way streets should be turned into. And the reason why um, I had wanted there to be discussion prior to the public hearing was simply because this proposal has gotten a poor spot on the agenda, unfortunately, because at the planning commission meeting where it was sent for city council for, on the consent agenda, um, that meeting had a special meeting prior to it and then had multiple items that were, you know, long discussion points and were tired and, you know, it's been a long night already. Um, so <clears throat> I don't think that planning commission really put uh, an effort into looking at all the details of the of this PUD. And so I do have the planned unit development, and I'll just mention that 
uh, concept plan el eligibility criteria, land use patterns established by the PUD development shall be compatible with existing and planned uses on and adjacent to the site. I'm sorry, but a 204-unit three-story building is not compatible to the surrounding area. There is no other, okay. <coughs> other three-story building um, anywhere remotely close to where this proposal is. And that is a criteria that you can reject this based on that one thing alone. Another, the, one of the PowerPoint slides said that the driveways are not 26 feet in width, meaning that they will not accommodate a fire truck. That is a criteria that you could say, this does not meet code. We should reject this plan because it doesn't, it does not check the box. It doesn't meet the criteria. And then um, it shouldn't go unnoticed that in order for there to not be a trigger of setbacks, it falls just below that 40-foot um, trigger level. So it's 38 feet or 36 feet, but they were, they're proposing to put the mechanicals on top of the buildings. So how many feet are the mechanicals going to be? But where it's going just under the radar by um, being under that 40 foot by only having it be, I forget whether it was 36 or, and there's not going to be enough parking to accommodate all of the people that live there. Um, that intersection of Eastlawn and Jefferson has been blinking for a week. And um, when it had first started blinking, the crossing guard called to report it and they came and fixed it. And then it, it blinked for another week. That is a serious um, issue for students that need to cross at the end of the day uh, or early in the morning to Central Park Elementary School. We live in the walk zone. I have um, an elementary, I have a second grader at Central Park Elementary. And um, the community center with the construction that's going on at the community center, um, we had, there was a sign at one entrance that said no through traffic. I can tell you that people did not observe the sign. And so, you know, people would use that as a throughway. So now what do they do? They use the, from East, or Nelson, and use the community center, and then travel by the ball fields, and then use that parking lot to get to Collins. And they use that as a throughway. And sometimes traffic travels through there appropriately, but sometimes they, they, it's like a road and it's a free-for-all and there's no stop sign at the end because it's a parking lot and they launch themselves out into Nelson and it's right close to that traffic light and that, that's a safety concern. And you want to put 204 units on 6.4 acres of land and uh, people, the, People that came and spoke about Hawk's Nest 2 development, they're upset about 25 houses on more acreage than this unit that you want to put. That, that's a lot of people. And I can't, I can't think of any other reason for doing that other than to increase um, population density, which is uh, another item in the PUD that says the PUD development shall not be allowed solely as a means of increasing the density or intensity of development. The PUD development shall result in a development that could not be achieved under conventional zoning. 
I mean, what else are you trying to do by packing 204 units on a very small parcel of land? I just put two buildings there, put two stories there. Or um, when we had the meeting in the field and uh, talked to Grant, what, what can be done? We know that this land is going to be sold. Midland Public Schools doesn't want it anymore. What, what are they thinking about developing there? Can we have input on what are they going to build? Oh, well, we need housing. Fine, I, I love the idea. We should put housing there. I wish Hawks Nest 2 was being developed on this. I wish it was 25 houses. I wish it was uh, another court similar to Princeton court size. But a three-story, six apartment buildings is a lot of people and a small amount of space, and you only have... 265 parking spots to accommodate them, and you're going to have to take that space from someplace. And again, in order to set back the properties from Princeton Court to, to make it so that, that it's not offensive to have a three-story building right in your backyard, we're going to have only five foot of setback from the street. And so I don't know what the ordinances are. Can I build a three-story fence between my property and my neighbor's property, you're, not going to, you're going to be visually obstructed when you come to the end of the driveway and try to come out onto the court. You're, there's not, <clears throat> you can't see through a building, and, and certainly not a three-story building, and it's only going to be five feet set back from the sidewalk on East Lawn. And the only way that you can accommodate that building, at, you know, on the north side is to have it that close to the sidewalk. Okay. Thank you very much. Good evening. Matthew Thomas, 111 Princeton Court. She's much more articulate than I am, so um, I wrote all my stuff down right here. Um, a lot of what has been said already um, I, I very much agree with, and it's all on here. I did want to point out a couple of things um, in the zoning requirements, in the requirements for the PUD, and um, my wife mentioned it, that um, the architect and, our, and the designers said that we're, we're going to design this with these uh, nice shallow roof lines and, and deep um, uh, overhangs and it's going to look really nice and I think they're doing that for architectural purposes but I I think they're doing it to stay under that 40 foot mark because if they were to build this with a taller roof line a more standard roof line that snow falls off of and things like that um, you'd be well over 40 feet and then they would have to abide by these other um, topics that come into play like the light and shadow um, the baseball field was mentioned the sun sets um, it'd be away from that baseball field and that baseball field I don't think is lit so during those times of the year when they have baseball games they're going to lose an hour, hour and a half of light because that sun's going to set behind those three-story buildings so I mean take that into consideration as well um, privacy has been brought up so I won't take your time with that um, in uh, article 24.05 um, the scale of the development uh, it says buildings or structures greater than 40 feet, and I know this is not 40 feet, but it, they're skirting that 40 feet. And in this neighborhood, they're, it's at 36 and a half feet is what it said. Three and a half feet is 42 inches. 42 inches is not going to make a lick of difference in this neighborhood. So whether it's 36 and a half feet or 40 feet, 
it's very tall for this residential neighborhood. And I know our planning director, um, he, he pointed out that all of these homes are on a multifamily zoning, but they're not multifamily. These are single family homes that for the most part surround this lot. Um, so, oh, and when <clears throat> most of us or all of us, when we bought our homes, East Lawn School was there. And while yes, it is a two story building and yes, it does cause traffic problems to have a school there, um, it's only part of the year. It's not a year round problem when there's a school there. As a matter of fact, it's awfully quiet when there was a school there because the traffic is only there from 8.10 to 8.25 and then from 3.05 to 3.15. Like that, that's your traffic for when a school is there. When there's a uh, 204 unit apartment complex there, that traffic is there all day. So, I mean, I guess there are high uh, commuting times in the morning and the afternoon, but that traffic's there all day. Um, so scale of the development, I wanted to bring that up because that was part of it. Um, traffic has already been brought up. The cars and the parking spaces has already been brought up. Um, and I know it's late, so I'm trying to skip over some of what I wrote here. Um, I just wanted to um, conclude. It was mentioned a couple of times that we did have a meeting in the field prior to um, the request for proposals going out. And there were some poster boards put up about potential developments that could be in this area. And not a single person that was at that meeting looked at the board with large apartment complexes and said, yep, that's the one I want. Like, nobody wants this here. So while I, again, agree with everybody, this should be developed into housing. I think I want to stress that Midland does need housing in a variety of price points. But we have... Um, a number of new units that are going to be built. There's the center city lofts that are going to be built at some point. There is the Lincoln Park residence on the corner of East La or, uh, Patrick and Bayless that's going to be built. Um, there is Hawks Nest 2 that's going to be built. That's 25 new homes. There, is, uh, there was talk of the Midland Daily News building downtown being developed into townhomes. That's new housing. So... Well, Midland does need housing, and I am no fool. This should be developed into housing. 204 seems excessive. Um, oh, and while we're at that meeting in the field, it was generally proposed to us that they were trying to put 60 to 70 units on this uh, piece of property. And, you know, throughout the time that the request for proposal was out and they were waiting for the proposals to come back, it was... It was never anybody's plan, or it was stressed to us, to me at least, that large apartment complexes were not even being considered. Um, since then, we've had a change in planning directors, and that's, that's fine. But I still think that this is excessive for this particular piece of property. And I don't think, uh, and I, again, I, it didn't go unnoticed that these are skirting just short of that 40-foot mark to not have to deal with these extra setbacks and such. So, thank you. Thank you. Well, John Nelson, 6106 Sturgeon Creek Parkway. I've been here a couple times before. I just want to tell you, these people have done a great job of presenting their case. I think they've, 
done their homework. They've looked into the things. I, I think they did a marvelous job. I wanted to just to say that. And I think, you know, I don't even live in that area, but I think it's important for Midlanders to get together to look at these, all these projects that are happening around Midland, our lack of planning for infrastructure, our, our, we're spending $50 million on, on just basically because we never planned properly to begin with, the sewer systems, the, the sanitary systems. So now um, we have to spend $50 million, which is everybody's taxes are paying for this, okay? So I want to say this problem, I see, I know what's going on in their area too. I can, I can imagine, because I know that a friend of mine built a house on the other side of East Lawn, and I know that when it rained hard one day, that it flooded that whole back part, and he called me up on the phone, had to go back out there, and we had to find the drain line that went into the sewer line and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, I'm not a builder. He's a builder. I'm just, I just go for it for him. So I, I just want to, I just think, how do we know that this infrastructure is supportive of what we have right now? Is it supportive of what you're going to do? Is, is, are, the drain, are the sewer lines big enough? Are the storm sewer lines big enough? Because they're not big enough right now in the back of these people's houses on uh, East Lawn Avenue. So I can't imagine you're going to add all this extra, extra volumes that you're going to have to deal with. And what do we have? We have ordinances that are probably archaic as heck that need to be upgraded to the modern thing. And they were built, and when they were made, they were built on or made on one-story houses like the ones they're talking about on Princeton Court, not 250 uh, apartments. And I'm sure these guys are really good. I'm sure they're using the latest techniques. I'm sure they're using closed-cell foam for the insulation. I'm sure they're using pink wood, which is fire-resistant wood, and blue wood, which is mold-resistant wood, and Schluter system for all their bathrooms. I'm sure they're using all the highest-quality, up-to-date stuff for these apartments. Maybe, but, but I, that's not the point. The point here, we do, we, do we really know if our infrastructure can handle what you're going to do? Not just, the, not just the, uh, the beauty of it or the area. I mean, it's also the infrastructure. And that's my biggest concern because this is something we don't do already and we neglected for 30 years plus. Okay. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Any other comments from the public? It's still a sin to wear a Packer shirt in Michigan. Okay. That's well, right. Oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay. Could I please ask? Do I call it? Does Denny ask the developer to come up? Yeah. Okay. No, no, actually, no. You're right. Okay. Again, Fred Jones, I do have to state that there was another proposal because I know that they offered it to a local builder first, and the price of it was just, you know, we could have had, let's put it this way, we could have had a hawk's nest back there, we could have had another thing back there, but this seemed to be Michael Sharrow's deal that he wanted a lot of apartments there to maybe fill the school, but like I said, I do know that one local builder showed up, and they were sort of turned off by the price, so... You know, it, it could have went a different way. We could have had a neighborhood and not, you know, 204 units. So. All right. Thank you very much. All right. I know there. Is there any other comments from the public? 
Okay, then before I close the public hearing, let me just ask that the developer, do you have any responses to anything that was stated as far as comments go? <clears throat> Well, I, I believe we touched on a lot um, in our presentation, um, but I, there's, you know, there's been a lot of good things that we heard tonight. If there are specific items um, that council has questions about that I could address directly, um, I mean, I, I have got a lot of notes of, of things tonight, of concerns and issues to look at, and we always have homework to do, um, but. Excited to hear any questions that council does have about our project and dive right in. Okay. And that may also be questions that the public okay. also have. Yep. Let me ask a couple quick scenarios. Um, one, the price of privacy fence was brought up, maybe a brick one or something, everything. What's your opinion of that being a possibility? Um, what exactly is the question, if you don't mind me asking? Because when we say privacy fence, I mean, well, we kind of included that. You've seen that one where they had like the brick or something like that. That would be on the north side of the property. Yeah. Is that something that you might be willing to? Brick fence? Yes. Um, well, I'm happy to entertain options with um, city departments, uh, but we, we do need to look at really. I mean, I, I understand the issue of privacy. I, I, I get it. Um, there's currently nothing there. We want to create that separation, but we also want to connect it and integrated property and asset and development into this area. Um, we believe at this moment, by screening that landscaping, that does that. That's our opinion. Now, if there's further thoughts, I'd love to pursue that with city departments and look at what that looks like. What does what impacts does that create to all future developments in Midland to requiring or asking for that eight-foot-tall fence? Or do, are we solving the issue? What is the issue? And look at all that through and through. I'm obviously happy to entertain that. But we, we, act, we do believe that we solve it. You know, the height of the building at its highest from a six-foot-tall person on the third floor is 26 feet. At ten and a half foot, into, you know, intervals. So, it's not they're not standing on the roof. They're not standing on a thirty-six foot roof and looking down. And so, if we can walk through that, I, what, what, oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. What's your thoughts on the two north buildings maybe being two-story versus three-story? So when we what's the pros and cons of that? The pros yeah. and cons of a two-story versus, I mean, the, the three-story, the, the reason why we designed this instead of, it's harder to complete the development that we did with more buildings. But the more buildings actually created a better land use. It created more green space. Um, if we did one large building, let's say, that has a specific look. And we looked at, obviously, what we could do with height there. Um, now, when we look at a three-story, 36, or a modification of a 36 unit, like in, in 12s, we'll say, 12, 24, 36. I can create three pods of 12 and create the most efficient building that I can. That three-story walk-up is the most efficient with cost. Right under four, and it's more than two. 
that third story is what creates the efficiency within that building. And that's why we went that route. It's also why we didn't go five story and do one big building. It looks better. It fits more with the, with the neighborhood, uh, short and long term. Um, two story, <clears throat> I mean, when we originally came to, the, to, to Midland, the need and demand for housing is substantial. Industry is increasing and they're actually stunted into future growth because of housing. And market rate housing specifically has not really been done since early 2000s, late 90s. Brand new market rate housing with all the amenities and such for an engineer the like. <clears throat> so in, but we're still, we're still kept to a certain rent level in Midland, which means that you can only build such, such a building. So you have to consider how we deliver the most effective and efficient building and that three-story is where we're at. So how do you differentiate or what is the difference between market rate housing and workforce housing? I've heard it's not affordable housing but it is workforce or it's market rate. The best thing I can say is that it doesn't have a cap to how much we can charge for it. The market dictates what the rent is. And that's the same with workforce housing? Workforce housing or attainable housing um, or missing middle, middle housing, it has mm -hmm. multiple different uh, names, um, is classified by the state. That is an actual um, classification done by the state, and it is between 80 and 120% average median income. So this is not workforce housing. That's it correct. is strictly market rate. Correct. Okay. So we, we talked about less units before there. Is there a possibility for less units there or phasing of units or? Absolutely. Absolutely. I do think, I think phasing in general would be smart, just from an economic standpoint, from a development standpoint, from a business standpoint, and just from the standpoint of 200 units all at once, leasing all, all up at once. Um, so. Yes, there definitely is a, I think there's <clears throat> definitely conversation that we're open to about phasing a, a project. If you phased it in, how many would you build during the first phase? Uh, well, we would do it by building. And then where on the property would that be so these people could know? You know, where, would it be would the you north be looking side at the south side or south north side, side first or what? I guess that would be the question. Well, we would focus, the initial phase would include the clubhouse, so the amenities were there. It would include the pavilions and the walkways and the parking and the infrastructure. We would include the infrastructure for the whole project so that it wasn't causing too much, you know, you, I don't, you don't want to build a parking lot and then rip it back up so you can do infrastructure, essentially. Uh, and we would focus on the front, so which would be the south, and it would be along the road. East one. So Correct, the, East Lawn and okay. Jefferson. So the second phase would be which, the it last two buildings on the north did, side? But I would say if we, if, if we cut it up by, and I'm just doing this by math, but if we did a first phase of 132 units, that could leave the two northernmost buildings that are 36 each or 72 units to the north for second phase. I believe that's correct. 
So when do you take into account the privacy between the further north units and those that are abutting pretty much um, from Princeton? Um, can you repeat your question? So when do you address the privacy between the north side of where you want to do the development okay, and the side of Princeton that backs up to your property? Well, I think we address that as soon as possible. I think, okay. that, I think we address it for the whole development mm-hmm. um, right away. So you make sure that just in case, let's say demand increases and Hemlock does another phase mm-hmm. of somewhere where they add in another building and they have workers coming in from Pittsburgh or Ames, Iowa, mm-hmm. right? There's increased demand that comes into the market and there needs a place to live. That's when we we have everything set up. I mean, you want to make sure that everybody's happy from the very beginning and that it makes sense or as happy as you can be. So why did you propose 200-some units in the first place? If we're willing to phase it? No, just you came here presenting a 200-unit apartment. Why? A couple of different reasons. Um, First was... It goes to how River Caddis looks at projects across the United States. Because if we're going to invest equity, our own money, our family's money and everything, into a project, that money is good in Nashville, it's good in Fort Myers, it's good in Iowa and in Texas, it's good anywhere. Uh, but we saw opportunity, and we have a significant investment already in Midland. We spent a lot of time here. And from those conversations with Midland Business Alliance and the Housing Task Force, there's an incredible need for housing and market rate housing, which we're good at. From all of those things, with an RFP that comes out from Midland Public School System that says we need housing, we're looking for the right person to do this. In my mind, that shouted opportunity. Opportunity to work with folks to solve a need a need for industry, whether it's for, <clears throat> for Dow DuPont, whether it's for the school system or the hospital. How I got to 200 units is a couple different reasons. Midland only has certain level of rents, and costs are the same in Midland as they are in Nashville if you build the same thing. Okay, let me interrupt you for a second, though, because earlier on when you first presented, you, you talked about taking, the, taking into account the community and the comments of the community. And, you know, it seems to be a lot of the problems that we're hearing from the local neighbors is really driven by the fact that you have a third story on every single building. And that's added to both the height issue and the density issue. And if you didn't have a third story across the, which is kind of what we're hearing here, and I'm sure it sounds like you were hearing it before, but chose to ignore it for some reason, it would have solved this if we would have been probably done a while ago. But <clears throat> so why? Why don't I mean, how, are you listening or aren't you listening? I don't want to hear about Memphis or anywhere else. I'm, we're here in Midland. We're talking about a, a community, Princeton Court. I mean, these, these, are, these are basically one-story homes in the entire neighborhood. Nothing's three-story. I lived in this area <clears throat> earlier on in, in my history here. Yeah, it's a great location. It's walkable. But you know what? Even if it's walkable, you still need a car. And so you're creating pressure. That extra story is causing pressure on parking as well. <clears throat> There's a lot of things being, being driven by 
trying to force so many units on this piece of property. You've got, we talked earlier tonight about a, basically a similar parcel with 50 units, and we were comfortable with that. That seemed to be the right size. And yeah, maybe they can grow to 100 units, but you've got 200. And it's just, you know, and, it, and maybe it's because you're trying to squeeze enough money out of it. And if that's it, well, okay, great. But from a city council perspective, I don't have to go along with that if it doesn't fit, if it's not right for our community. So maybe, a, maybe more of a speech than a question, unless you want to address going back to the 200 units. Okay. So the question is why we're doing 200 units. Yeah. Why? It, why 200 units here? Economics. Okay. All right. Doesn't buy work. that. Doesn't work without it. Okay. Okay. Any other questions? Thank you very much. Madam Mayor, it would be worthwhile. We did have a comment uh, that was questioning the path to Princeton Court and why that was in there and whether or not it would be maintained or not. And it might be best if John was asked that as terms of his response to that particular issue. Okay. So about the walkway that hooks that that Mm -hmm. hooks them up. Uh, Well, I mean that was intentional. We we put that there, um, but we didn't. No, the one that's existing. The one that's existing. She she brought it up. And connect well. Our future development will connect to it. and uh, yeah, we've we've heard that we intentionally wanted to make sure that that was known that we created that connectivity. We didn't just do that for our residents. Actually, we did it for the neighbors to the north uh, to connect and be a part of the development. Easier walkway uh, to um, to the new community center instead of walking around and over. If the neighborhood and city do not want that connection, then we won't make it. Okay, does that? Well, yeah, I just yeah. wanted on the Thank record because John was really the only one that can respond to that okay. issue that did come up in the public comments. So okay, great. Thank for you. For you, let him know. Okay, wonderful. Thank you so much. All right, much. thank you very much, and we'll, we'll close the public hearing. Lacey, will you please read the resolution? This resolution will approve a request initiated by River Caddis Development for concept plan approval for a multiple family residential development located at 115 East Lawn Drive. Can we have a motion to accept the resolution? I'll move it so we can have discussion. Okay, I'll second it. Second it. Okay. I'd like to award one residence to know that I've been paying attention. That I've, I've only come on the council since November. So what's done before that is that. But... I've sat here and listened to every single one of these concerns, and they're all valid concerns. I'm a parent. I have four apartment complexes, three that were existing that I moved into, and then they build a fourth one, and that fourth one's four stories tall. It's not three. It's four stories tall. And I thought that that was probably five years ago. From that time until this time, my property value has only increased. I drive, and, and, and out of those, that four-story tall, three buildings, I thought the traffic's going to be horrible. They only got two parking lots, or two out that come out to Swede and come out to uh, pa- Patrick, or East Lawn. Um, this has six. That would make it less. It's not going to make it more. 
you know, and, and I, I, these, if there's anything positive to say about it, I think it would be the builders themselves. I mean, they, they, they already proved themselves to Midland 10 years ago. But not only that, on a monthly basis, ever since 10 years ago, because they, they still own that. I don't know if, and it's an incredible building down there, but I don't want to discount what you guys have said here tonight, and these are very valid concerns. And uh, I'm, I'm the, like I said earlier, that, and it's not to joke this time, but I didn't know city council would be this stuff. These are these effects in people's lives, and and I mowed a lot of lawns on. I mow lawns for a living, and I mowed a lot of lawns on uh, Princeton Court, and I had to drive back there with a truck and a trailer. And there were times where there were two cars parked. You just got to go slower, and you can make it. You know, but. I, there was a lot of uh, things said about the uh, actually that's all I have to say okay. for right now other comments no I, I, I think I kind of tipped my hand about where I stand on it I think that uh, it's just out of context. I think we're, we're shoving too many, too many units in too small an area. The, and in my mind, if you want to create a sense of community, you don't build large apartment complexes. Communities with, with smaller, smaller residences, uh, whether they even be duplexes or even smaller apartment complexes, you build the larger you build. And frankly, you, I mean, I've lived in apartments. I, don't get, I didn't get connected to the community. Um, you know, it's a pass-through. Uh, this is a community. I mean, a school is a, is a gathering place for a community. We've we've removed that, and everybody's admitted that okay, we're going to put something else in there. And I and I acknowledge that as well. The question is, do you put this in because there's some perceived demand for housing? I think you could build additional housing and still make it compatible with the surrounding area. And I think that's this does not do it, and so I don't support it. I don't think it's a perceived that we do need housing here. Without a doubt, there's a shortage. Now, I will say I am very concerned about um, like some type of separation, fencing or whatever, between your property and the residents on Princeton. And I hope there will be, if it were to um, be supported, it would be something other than shrubs there. Because that's a huge concern. And especially, you're going to have 204 units. Folks don't know who's going to be in there, but they have little children. That's important. And there's a lot of madness going on in this world. So I think that's a huge concern. So I hope everybody, you know, I think some more discussions are needed, but we definitely need more housing here. There's no way of sands or buts about that. So, you know, I it is it is hard being on council. It is really very, very hard. So let's in my mind I'm sitting here going, wow, you know, how do you make these decisions? Because there is not a checklist that you can just check off and make this decision. So I think to myself, okay, 
what if, what if Andy's place wanted this piece of property? What if Andy's place wanted this piece of property? What would the decision have been then? Or what if the 46 people who signed that petition for not having Andy's place showed up here and were the voices and not just a piece of paper, would we have voted differently then for Andy's place being there? I mean, this is really not black and white. We do need housing. Is this more density than we're used to having? Yes. Is it more density than there is in other places? Yeah. You know, I called the neighbors of the, of, over at Brooks because I thought, I'm going to check with those Brooks people because, um, because that is four stories. I mean, I drove, I looked to see what are the heights of all the bu of buildings, and I thought, okay, I am sure they went ballistic. And they said, you know what? We love it. We love it. They're great neighbors. People aren't always out there on those patios. You know, she said, it, it's great. And she said, we were nervous to begin with, but she said, they're wonderful neighbors. And it really depends on how the, the buildings are being managed. She said, and they had great, you know, managers, and they've reached out to, you know, to the neighbors once it came, got up, and it was great. I think we need housing. And I believe that this is a, I believe this is right. The issue of compatibility. I guess it's probably the big thing that's pushing me right now. Um, as you guys all know, I'm a big buffering fan. Mm -hmm. And uh, so when we look at zoning, uh, that's one of the things I specifically look at is, okay, is it going from residential to office? And this is a major shift. I mean, it's high, high residential um, next to single-family homes. Um, again, the Brooks establishment over, and that's in my ward, um, there was a lot of concerns about that. Again, a lot of kind of what you hear here, privacy, traffic, et cetera, like that, that um, brought up the concern. Where I kind of framed it in my head, though, is there was a lot of apartments on one side. The other two didn't have any commercial or anything like that. So basically it was just to the north um, that had the residents. And I have talked to some of the residents and everything like that. And they, they are pretty much comfortable with, you know, the establishment. Uh, traffic concerns haven't come up and everything. But my big concern is just the level of occupancy that will be at this site. Um, yes, I totally agree that we need housing. Um, but at this level, I'm not so sure. Um, I mean, in an ideal world and everything like that, if we could go two stories throughout it, or even those two to the north being two stories and the rest being three, I probably could even live with that because that would kind of buffer it a little more. So... That's where I'm standing right now. So 
Madam Mayor, if I may just make a comment. So, uh, again, to help you reframe it <laughs> a little bit, this evening the, what you have in front of you is a plan unit development, which is a concept plan. Um, and, and the question is whether or not you're comfortable with the concept plan, which would then advance it to take care of some of the other issues, such as uh, the screening and the buffering, um, the grading and the, and the drainage and those other types of concerns. That would be the next level of detail. But really what you're asking and what, or when you're, what you're being asked to do when you review a planned unit development is say, what deviations from the underlying zoning is being asked for and are you or are you not comfortable with it? Um, Jacob, I'm going to ask you to correct me if I miss any here, but um, the, the deviations from the underlying zoning that I see is not the unit density. It is not the height of the buildings. Those are both permitted by right. right. Um, there's been a lot of concern about the 40 foot and the comments about mm -hmm. just under 40 feet, but that doesn't, uh, it's a mis misinterpretation of how we interpret height. They could actually take this building probably eight feet taller and still be under the 40 foot limit because we measure at mid peak of the, of the, e of the eaves of the peak, not at the very top of the building. So, so that's, that's a misnomer that's out there. But that being said, really what's being asked for is uh, a change in the parking standard um, is one thing that you need to look at. There's a change in the front yard setback, which would be the Jefferson side, and this change in the side yard setback, which is the East Lawn side. Um, and I think, if I'm not mistaken, that's the only changes or variations from the underlying. Oh, sorry, and to add the clubhouse, uh, the mixed-use uh, type component of it as well. So that is really what you're being asked to decide on. Whether you feel it's been supported or not is your decision, but that's really the focus of the proposal that's in front of you. Yeah. So I have a question. So with all the feedback and discussion we've had, if this were to go forward, could they change part of the concept based on what it is today, based on what they've heard for feedback? And then what does that mean? Do they bring it back to us for another review? Mm -hmm. to move forward with the concept, or does that go into the whole planning side? Could they? Yes. Mm -hmm. they, they certainly could. It would depend, quite frankly, on you as council, whether or not you felt the changes were so significant that you wanted it to go back through the full process, including planning commission review again or not. If it was just changes that tweaked it, I'll call it that for lack of a better description mm -hmm. this evening, um, then you would have the ability to make those changes. The developer would have the choice to deal with those or not deal with those and mm -hmm. accept or not accept those as well. Um, it's a little difficult to do that on the fly in a negotiation uh, with mm -hmm. the developer at that point in time. But what you can always do also, um, you've heard from them, the, the economics don't work with something less than three stories, so I wouldn't suggest it's even worthwhile going down that path uh, to impose that as a condition if you mm -hmm. were to be considering that. But you could, for instance, be looking at... Um, uh, essentially requiring de detailed and sort of over-aggressive, uh, overly aggressive uh, landscaping plans along that north property line mm -hmm. as an example of the buffering considerations mm -hmm. that could go in there as well. That could be a condition that you would impose on it, and then they would be responsible for coming back to propose what that might look like. Okay. So. I'd like to add that in there. Okay. I, I mean, because I did hear that they could do a phase-in. That that there that's a possibility that 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 could happen. But again, I guess I think and thank you, Brad, for pointing that out. As it relates to the height, we have no control over that because by right, that is what that is currently zoned for. So even though we don't like it by right, they can do that, and we have a responsibility to understand what that means for us. That means we can't dis we can't nix it because of that height, because by right, 
they can do that. You, well, it, it, let me clarify just a, a little <laughs> bit of that. On the north property line, that's an accurate statement where they have okay. that 60-foot setback. On the street sides, the, right. the sides fronting the street, they are closer, um, and that's part of the PUD request then, than they would otherwise be able to do at that height. So on those sides, you, the, you do need this approval in order to allow okay. that. But on the north side, the Princeton Court properties in particular, um, that is, yeah, they, they're not asking you for anything as far as the setbacks in that area. Now I need to come up with a motion, and it's after midnight. <laughs> well, there's a motion on the here. table. So. There is a motion, a motion on the, on the table, table, so this would be an amendment if you wanted to add something to it. Yeah. I want to add an amendment. Did we have a table. It, it is, is on right. the table. Right. Resolution, if that's correct. Right. You remember what it was? The, the, I want to make sure. Approval of the concept. The resolution. Yeah. Right. That's but what's on the table at the moment. Do you want us to read the resolution back? No. Okay. I want to make sure there's something in there so they will look at how they're going to... Screen. Yes. Mm -hmm. Between their property and the residents on Princeton. It would be something sim simple where uh -huh. you amend the motion to say that uh, approval be contingent upon... Um, the development and council approval of a an appropriate landscaping plan for the northern property line. Okay. And then they would be required to bring something back to you and staff Jacob basically and his team would be working with them towards that goal. Okay. If you're gonna do that so you probably ought to take into account the, the level of the soil that was mentioned. Right. The five foot difference. Yeah. Okay, so do I need to make a motion to amend? Yes. yes. Make a motion to amend the resolution to include um, developing a more detailed landscape plan for the northern portion of the property that backs into or abuts to property owners on Princeton. Including the five feet, including the land. Including the five feet difference um, between the land which is higher, and theirs is lower. Is Grace? there a second? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> She's taking over okay. your job. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Who was the second? What? We, we don't have one yet. I'll second I'll that. Sec I'll second that. Okay, so we have a first and second. So do we have a motion to, or uh, do we have a first and second on the amendment? All in favor, please say aye. 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 Opposed? That pass, the amendment passes. So now that's that's what we have. We have the motion as written with the addition of enhanced or screening with and also consideration of the five foot difference. Mm -hmm. All right. So then all in favor, please say aye. Of, aye. aye. Of the amended, what, of what? The amended motion? Yeah, of the amended motion. All in favor of the amended motion, please say aye. 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 Opposed? Nay. Okay, so that passes. Aye, aye, aye. Mm -hmm. If I understood that correctly. Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. Aye, aye, aye. Three. And nay. 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 Okay, so that passes. Three, two. All right. So okay. what do you want to do? It's awfully late. Well, I, <laughs> the meeting was only late. for yesterday, not for today. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so that takes He's us. He's right. So <laughs> what is it that... We're still in session. Uh, okay, I need to hear from you. What if we do not address these zoning 
amendment, we need to address some of them. We have one petitioner here tonight for item number seven. That's the simplest and shortest of the remaining planning items tonight. Okay, number seven. I promise I'll keep it brief. Okay, that's that is that number the six one? to another day. Is we that can, the over the overlay district? The overlay we can discuss uh, number seven is the time and date yes. specific. North Jefferson. Yeah, we just pick it up. Yeah. The yes. other yes. items are but not time specific. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Okay. You must be it. Soldiers. <laughs> there you go. All right. All right. So we are going to address item number seven, and we will. Okay, so we'll, we will, okay, so do we, t I want do, we time do we table these or do <laughs> so, we call, is this called tabling? So the why don't we do this? Is there anybody in the audience that's here other than the applicant to speak to this? Which one, number seven? Number yes. seven. Just yourself, right? <laughs> if council is, a, we don't typically do this, but since given the time of day, there's no applicants, there's no public here to express any opposition comments, if council's uh, comfortable with it, we can have Jacob go very quickly rather than the full in-depth presentation um, as to yeah, what the I highlights read, of that are. I read the motion. I, I'll, I'll move to... And we can do number well, seven. Well, you have to hold the public hearing first. We have to hold the public hearing. Wait, 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 wait. It's a public hearing. It's a public hearing, okay, so we go. have to have a let public me, hearing. Let me hear you. What you don't have to have... We don't have to listen to Jacob. <laughs> We've read the materials. I'm kind of For the, There may be people watching at home. Okay. Yeah, and I've read the... I don't want to, like, just blow past this for someone. But I'll keep it... Please, very quickly. So, so the applicant tonight is Cobblestone Commercial Construction LLC. Uh, the property is located at 2025 North Jefferson Road. It's two acres in size. Uh, currently is zoned residential A, Larkin Township. Proposals residential B, multifamily residential. The property is located at the northwest corner of Commerce Drive and North Jefferson Road. It's adjacent to a development that is being developed by the applicant uh, known as Iron Leaf Copper Leaf. Etc. Essentially, a site condominiumized development. The property does currently have a single-family dwelling on it. Future land use is medium-density residential. Uh, there's medium-high and low-density residential future land uses in the area. Most of the properties in the surrounding areas are not zoned under city zoning because they are still located in Larkin Township. Um, the adjacent contiguous city properties are zoned RA4. As you know, residential B is intended to provide multiple family housing. Just really briefly, uh, the applicant's proposal is consistent with the master plan, and it is uh, the property can be developed in accordance with the terms of the RB zoning district on that property. It was annexed into the city in 2022, which is what brings this petition forward to you. Basically, all of the general evaluation criteria are met. We've received one public comment in support. Staff does recommend approval given that it was annexed and does require city zoning and it does align with the city master plan. We're the last step in the process. The applicants here and I take any questions. Madam Mayor. Okay, this is a public hearing. I'll open the public hearing. Is there any comments from the petitioner? If you guys have any questions, I'm happy to answer them. Okay. okay. <laughs> any comments from the public that's sitting here? Okay, seeing no comments, we'll close the public hearing. Can we have a motion? So moved. Okay, we have to read it. Go ahead. This resolution will approve amending Article 21 of the City of Midland Zoning Ordinance to establish development standards for properties located within the center city. Nope, that's no, the wrong no, one. No, 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 no,
This resolution approves amending the City of Midland zoning map by rezoning property located at 2025 North Jefferson Road from Township Zoning to RB Multiple Family Residential. Okay, can we have a so second? Okay, we have a first and second. Any discussion okay, on this? So I will tell you, it's in my ward. I've talked, had some discussions with folks that live back there. Not an issue. Support it. All right. Then all in favor, please say aye. 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 Opposed? Okay, that passes 5 0. Now, that takes us now to public comment. Is there any public comment at all on any issue relevant to council business but not on the agenda? Okay, seeing none then. That will. Don't, don't adjourn. So I'm, don't. Not I'm not going to okay. adjourn. We've got to go back. And <laughs> so now we really um, need to understand how we're handling items 6, 8, and 9. So, and 13. And 13. And 13. Um, oh, yeah, do we want to do 13? <coughs> Well, if, yeah. if, if you're all comfortable with it, you can just pass the, the resolution that receives it. That's all it right. is. Right. That's from uh, a workshop. It receives and follow? Yep. Yeah. Did everyone read, the, yep. read it? Mm-hmm. Okay. Do you want to wanna discuss okay. number 13? Okay. Let's okay, do so it Okay, so can we have a, a motion to... Finance will be happy okay, with it. Okay, can them. you please... <laughs> okay, Lacey, would you please read the resolution for item number 13? This resolution approves the City Council budget objectives for fiscal year 2023-24. Second. First and second. Any discussion on that? Great meeting. Uh, it I just was. would like to say that one of the items in that, in case people are watching and didn't go out and read that, is that we would keep the millage rate flat, and I think that yep. that that Seven is zero. important. And then the rest of that really consists of how we would manage um, some other funding within our organization. But really, the. I think the millage rate flat is something we should comment on. So, mm -hmm. all right, then, all in favor, please say aye. 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 Opposed? Okay, that passes four, five, zero. Okay, so six, eight, and nine. So, so you have two options. Um, one, and I'll look to Jim as our parliamentarian to correct me if I'm wrong, but we can adjourn to a date and time specific uh, to continue this session of council, at which point we would be able to immediately proceed into the hearing of those three petitions. Um, so that's option number one for you. The other option would be to adjourn tonight's meeting without that, in which case we would have to re-advertise all of the public hearings for those three and bring it back again, uh, which would option mean it couldn't come back until February. Okay, so we need to find a date. Well, okay. oh, either way, are, we any, don't... are any of these crucial? Can we just adjourn them to the next meeting? It's February. Well, we can't adjourn them to the next no. meeting. Because... It's a public hearing. They have to re well, just... Why not? Yeah, you could. The next meeting, because that's the next date. Or have it as whatever date it Do we have to repost these public hearings, though? For for those? They're just adjourned until that They're adjourned until the next meeting. They're just simply moved out. How do we do that procedurally? Because it has to be in this session of the council. We can't adjourn it to another session. This session is adjourned, and you can handle that. Do two sessions in one evening. The first session is to complete this one. The second session is to do what's scheduled for that yeah. night. Do we okay. start at 6.30? 6 o'clock. No. Start at 7. Well, well it's our regular meeting starts at the 7. If we're well, we, can, we haven't noticed it yet. We can start at 7.20 or something, or 7.30. Um, we have... <laughs> Except for it's published it's calendar. Unless there's been it's a, it's postings, postings and public notices, and we do publish the time. Well, the date's the same. The time or we hold it after that meeting. <clears throat> You'd want well, to do this first. Well, we could do... Yeah. Jacob, are, are we likely to be able to get through those three in an hour? <laughs> oh, the overlay. With that kind of a presentation? <laughs> well, the overlay's the problem. <laughs> the overlay's yeah. the more complicated one. Yeah, the other I, two are fine. I mean, I, I can fit the time frame that's available. 
Um, and I suppose we could always continue anything that didn't fit within that time frame if there was significant right, public six comment. O'clock. Six o'clock. We our, our next meeting we start at six rather than at seven. We, we turn, like we turn this till six o'clock on January something or other. January twenty third. January twenty third. Okay. Six o'clock. Okay. Yes. Yep. You you can do so that. We have to. Do we have to make a motion on that? that fast. Motion to adjourn to? Well, I think we do Dave. if we're adjourning we to a date and time specific. Okay. Date and time so it has to be specific. Okay, can we have a motion? Okay. Adjourn this meeting until 6 p.m. on January 23rd. I'll second that. It was January, no, January 23rd. January 23rd at 6 p.m. Okay, so we have a motion. We have a second. Any discussion on this? Yes, yes. All right, then. All in favor, please say aye. Aye. Opposed? Okay. Thanks, everyone, for hanging in. (laughs) This meeting is adjourned. Thank you.